The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 1 In Juliet's Sitting Room A maid opened the door leading from a bedroom to a salon of the royal suite at Harridge's Hotel. Dusk had fallen, and entering, she switched on the electricity. The room, with its almost Louis C's decorations, was suddenly flooded with light, and to her surprise, the Frenchwoman saw a slim black figure nestled deep among cushions on a sofa before the fire. A small white face, with a frame of terracotta hair crushed under a morning taupe, turned a pair of big black eyes upon her. Milady Vest! exclaimed the maid. Pardon, madame, I did not know that anyone was here. She spoke in French, with an accent which told that her first language had been Italian, learned in the south of France. Though in looks she was the chic Parisienne, her English was quite good, but when she used that tongue her accent was of New York. She preferred French, however, was proud of being French, and had Frenchified her Nissois Italian name of Simonetta Amarati to Simone Amaranth. All Juliet Fair's friends had to be polite to Simone. Mr. Fair's man let me in, said the red-haired lady in widow's weeds. After I'd had a look at the wedding presents, I was so dazzled that I switched off the lights. She laughed and then cried, Leave the lights now. I suppose Mademoiselle won't be forever? Simone shrugged her thin shoulders just perceptibly. Mademoiselle sent me out on an errand, milady. I have not long returned with the perfume she wanted. It was for the coiffeur who was here to wash the hair of Mademoiselle. She would not have the stuff he brought, so the man was obliged to wait. I am afraid the drying, even with the hot air machine, will take some time. Milady knows what a quantity of hairs there are on the pretty head of Mademoiselle, and how she is exacting of the way everything is done. The red-haired lady guessed from the Frenchwoman's tone that Simone considered the introduction of a coiffure a slight to her own skill. Why, yes, she agreed. Mademoiselle is exacting. But what would you? She is a spoiled child. The least crumple in a rose leaf. By the way, Simone, she stopped for a little throaty chuckle. Is it true about the carpet in the suite? The carpet, milady? Simone flushed faintly through her dark skin, and milady made a second guess. Of course, Juliet trusted Simone and depended upon her blindly. But she, Emmy West, had often wondered how certain spicy little items concerning the Fair family reached the gossip columns of society papers. I read such an amusing paragraph in Modern Ways this morning, she explained. It was apropos of the wedding, of course. Modern Ways loves a chance for a dig at us Americans who marry well-known Englishmen. It said that when Miss Juliet Fair and her Uncle Henry came over from Paris the other day, and took this royal suite which Mr. Fair had engaged, Miss Fair sent for the manager before she'd been in the hotel half an hour. There's a spot of ink on the carpet, she complained according to the paper. I must have another carpet at once. Now do tell me, Simone, I'm very discreet, did that really happen? It did, madame, the maid admitted, though how it got to those sacred journalists. And did the manager say to mademoiselle, We have half the kings of Europe in the suite since that spot appeared, Miss Fair, and not one of them mentioned it. His words were to that effect, milady, so far as I remember, but... Oh, then you were in the room. What fun! You can tell me if Juliet, if Mademoiselle, 
replied that a spotted carpet might be good enough for a king, but it wasn't good enough for a fair. Simone flung out her hands, palm upward. They were beautifully manicured hands, as carefully tended as her mistress's. And as she smiled, her teeth showed very white. When her face was grave, she looked somewhat sullen and might be thirty-five, but the smile was rejuvenating. It put her back to twenty-eight and made her almost handsome as well as chic. Milady has known Mademoiselle since her school days, is it not? she hedged. Milady will be able to judge as well as if I told her whether Mademoiselle would have made that answer. I thought it rang true when I read it, laughed Lady West. But Simone, when you say I have known Mademoiselle since her school days, you make me sound awfully antique. We were at Madame de Seine's together. I came over to England the year I left, and married poor Sir Algy only three months after I was presented. She thought it best to hammer these details into Simone's head, in case the woman really was in touch with those back-door kitchen-stairs reporters. Then, to give an air of carelessness to her words, she turned the subject. Perhaps you might let Mademoiselle know I've come. Parker told me that she was lying down, that she'd promised her uncle to rest till tea-time. So I won't have her disturbed. But if her hair is being washed, she might let me in. I will ask Milady, said Simone. I come to the salon to see if the curtains were drawn. If Madame permits. She tripped with her short, high-heeled step first to one window, then the other, and closed the draperies of old rose brocade. Having done this, she pattered out of the room. Emmy West's eyes followed the thin but graceful figure in black silk. Simone is a character, she thought, and she wondered what the maid's secret opinion was of this marriage which would take place the next day. The richest American heiress with the poorest British duke. Left alone again, Emmy wriggled up from her nest of cushions and beguiled the time in examining the wedding gifts once more. This did not take long, as the marriage had been suddenly hurried on by special license, and friends of Juliet Fair and the Duke of Claremanagh had had only a few days to send in their offerings. Emmy had made this uninvited visit with the object of admiring a certain one of Juliet's presents, but she had already informed herself that it was not on show with the rest. Unless the bride-elect refused to see her, she did not intend to leave Harridge's without a glimpse, or anyhow news, of it. When she had wandered languidly round the three or four tables on which jewel cases, gold, silver, china, and tortoise-shell things were spread, she propped her own black-edged card conspicuously in front of a severus framed mirror, and bent down for a hasty peep at her face in its oval. She wondered if her hair were a tiny touch too red. She liked it herself, and thought the heart-shaped white face, with its wide-apart black eyes set in that copper halo, a siren face. In the weeds of a war widow, it seemed to her that she was almost irresistible. But she could not help realizing that there were people who did resist her. The Duke was one. And an attractive cousin of Juliet's, John Manners, was another. She was vaguely aware that her own taste was decidedly vivid. Perhaps the hair was rather red. She had had it bobbed since Juliet came to London, because it worried her that Juliet should look years younger than she. No one would take Lady West for twenty-seven, but she had been an old girl, and Juliet a new girl the year they had met in school. Juliet was twenty-three now, and she, Emmy, had gone back to twenty-five. One had to be that if one had married before the war. Quickly she dusted on a little powder from her vanity box, and accentuated the cupid's bow of her lips with a stick of red salve, for it was possible that Claremanagh might breeze in. It would be like him. 
This thought was still on her mind when a door behind her opened. She turned nervously, tucking the lip salve into her gold mesh bag, for just now the Duke was having a craze for baby complexions without makeup. But it was not the Duke. It was a girl standing in the doorway between bedroom and salon. Hello, Emmy, she said. Hello, Juliet, said Emmy. And suddenly she felt years older than she had felt a moment ago. Juliet Fair was such a big baby. The girl wore a pale pink chiffon thing which she probably considered a dressing gown. It was embroidered with wild roses and banded with swan's down, and no practical person would have dreamed of keeping it on for a shampoo. Juliet, however, thought herself sufficiently protected with a towel over her shoulders, a silvery damask towel under which her bare girlish arms hung down. Over the towel streamed masses of hair in long wet strands, which must be bright golden brown when dry. These fell, weighted with water, nearly to her knees, and from their curly ends drops poured like unstrung pearls. She was so tall and slender, and brilliant rose and white, that she would have looked to a poet like Undine just out of her fountain. "'You extravagant thing,' Lady West scolded, "'to spoil a lovely boudoir gown like that. "'Simone gets it tomorrow as a perquisite, "'with all my old things,' Juliet dismissed the subject. "'She said you'd been here at age, "'so I thought I'd better come in. "'I'll dry my hair before the fire. "'Presently we'll have tea.' "'So saying, she sat down tailor-fashion "'on a long, fat, velvet cushion "'which lay in front of the low fender. "'Evidently you're not expecting the Duke.' laughed Lady West. No, said the girl, but I'm expecting a letter from him, or something. You haven't got the pearls on show with your other presents, I see, remarked her friend. I don't blame you. Of course, Parker is doing the watchdog act outside, and only your bestest pals come up. Still, the pearls are frightfully valuable, and you can never tell. But do, do let me see them. I'm dying to. I haven't got them yet, Juliet confessed. "'Not got them?' gasped the elder woman. "'You're joking. Why?' and she laughed with great gaiety. "'One marries Claremanagh for his pearls.' "'Does one?' Julia took her up. "'I know whole populations of females who'd give their pearls to marry him. For himself!' This told Emmy West that the bride-to-be knew she had been scratched, and was ready to scratch back. For an instant Emmy hesitated whether to be sweet or sharp, and decided to compromise. "'By Jove, you are in love, aren't you?' she said. "'I am,' Juliet admitted. "'I don't care a rap about being a duchess. "'That sort of thing seems somehow old-fashioned since the war. "'And I don't think I ever was a snob, thank goodness.' "'Emmy wondered if this was another dig. "'She had been a Chicago girl, and only a tuppence haypenny heiress, "'compared to Juliet Fair.' But she had wanted a title, and had paid all she could afford for a mere baronet, such as her few hundred thousand dollars would buy. On the sofa, once more facing her low-seated hostess, she looked Juliet full in the eyes. But Juliet's were innocent, even dreamy. "'I'd have snapped at my boy if he'd been just a Tommy when I met him over there, instead of a perfectly gorgeous guardsman,' the girl went on. "'But, of course, I do want the pearls. I wouldn't be human if I didn't.' Everyone talks about them so much, even my cousin Jack Manners, and says they're so marvelous. I expect they are what Pat is sending round this evening. Sending round, repeated the other. You talk as if, as if they were a box of chocolates. Claremanagh is the carelessest creature on earth, I know. And he has been, um, very careless with the pearls. 
"'But I don't think even he would be so bad as that.' "'Why not?' asked the girl to whom most jewels meant little. "'If he sent them by old Nick, that dear quaint man of his, "'they'd be safer than if he brought them himself. "'I never knew before that he was superstitious, but he is. "'It's bad luck for a Claremont to see his bride the day before the wedding. "'Creepy things have happened, it seems, according to an old story, "'and he said he wasn't running risks. "'For some reason he couldn't give me his present before today. "'So that's why the thing is to come by messenger, you see.' "'I see,' echoed Emmy. "'And you're sure the present will be the pearls?' "'This was rather an impudent question to ask, "'especially for one who knew the Duke's circumstances. "'But, for a wonder, Juliet did not seem to mind. "'She answered quite easily, "'Oh, I suppose so. "'Don't the Claremont men always give them to their brides? "'I believe they have dutifully handed them over so far, "'for several generations, "'since the pearls came into their family in that exciting way,' "'said Lady West.' "'But you know, Peter, I mean Claremont, is very independent and quite, uh, a law unto himself.' "'Why do you call him Peter?' the girl branched off from the subject. "'He has about a dozen names, I know, but I hadn't heard that Peter was one. "'My selection from the lot is Pat.' "'Oh, Peter was only a silly nickname I made up for him. "'Peter Pan, because he just isn't the sort who ever grows up,' Emmy explained elaborately. Of course, he was a lot with algae in me the first year I married, before the war spoiled everything for everyone. And then, when I took up Red Cross work in France, after poor algae... I know, Juliet ruthlessly interrupted. That was where and when I came on the scene. It was, agreed Emmy in a flat voice. You came, you saw, you conquered. But we were talking of the Tsarina Pearls. I do hope the Duke is delivering the goods, as we say in our country. I don't mind confessing to you, my angel child. I dropped in, hoping for a private view. Oh, I guess that the minute Simone told me you were here, and determined to wait. Juliet laughed like a naughty child who dares a grown-up to slap it. Emmy's ears tingled. The girl's tone, though intimate and friendly, told her how unimportant she was in the future Duchess's scheme of things. She had always envied Juliet, and had an old grudge against the heiress for refusing her brother, Bill Lundas. Now she suddenly hated her. Instead of inflicting a kittenish scratch or two, she wanted to strike at Juliet Fair's heart. Well, she excused herself, I never saw the pearls, except, er, uh, at a distance. You have seen them, then? Juliet exclaimed. How was that? Pat's mother died years before you knew him, and only the Duchess is supposed to wear the pearls, isn't she? Only the Duchess is supposed to wear them. Juliet sat up straight on the velvet cushion. Her hair was drying beautifully now. The red background of fire glow lit it to flame, so that Lady West saw the slight figure surrounded by a nimbus. Ever since Pat and I were engaged, you've been hinting at something queer or secret about that rope of pearls, Emmy, the girl blazed. Now out with it, please. Tell me what you mean. The elder woman was taken aback. Don't you know what I mean? She temporized. No, I don't, snapped Juliet. But I'm sure it's something unpleasant. At least I had no intention of telling you, Lady West snapped back. I wouldn't distress you for worlds, dear, especially on your wedding eve. Wedding eve be jizzled, inelegantly remarked the bride-elect. You sound quite early Edwardian. If you don't tell me, I shall think the thing worse than it is. You had better ask Claremont, or Jack Manners, who is a pal of his, said Emmy. I can't, till I have an idea what to ask them about. Ask whether Lydia Pavoya ever... 
No, I won't say it. Whether she ever wore the pearls? That's what you were going to say. So you did know. I didn't, and I don't now. I only know what you have in your mind. I don't believe she was allowed to wear the pearls. Why should you believe it? And even if she did, it was before you knew Peter, the Duke. And anyhow, it was before you were engaged. It was when she was dancing for the Polish Relief Fund in Paris that I saw... You saw what? Saw her. Emmy. You didn't see her wearing the Tsarina pearls. It's not possible. Why, of course, you must be right, dear. Even though they are blue, they'd be like any other pearls, wouldn't they, to see at a distance? That's just what you said about Pat's pearls five minutes ago, that you'd seen them only at a distance. Lady West did not reply. She put on a stricken, trapped expression, which went well with her widow's weeds. The two gazed into each other's eyes, each waiting for the other to speak. Neither heard a sound at the door until a respectable voice, such a voice as is never possessed save by a British butler or valet, announced, His Grace, the Duke of Clermont. End of chapter one. Recording by Todd. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter two. The Explanation. A perfectly charming young man came in, a young man so delightful to look at that it seemed almost too much that he should be a duke. With that merry brown face, the war had left a scar across cheek and temple. Those Celtic grey eyes, that jet black hair, that figure for a fencer, and above all that engaging grin of his, the merest nobody might hope to make his mark at somebody. Breezing in, as Emmy had put it, he smiled his nice smile that brought a dimple like a cut line into each thin, tanned cheek. The smile was for Juliet, whose velvet throne was opposite the door, and for her he waved aloft a small, sealed white parcel. Then he saw Lady West, and his expression changed. As the saying is, his face fell, but in half a second he had controlled his features. "'How do you do?' he inquired. His voice was as pleasant as his grin, but there was a slight stiffness in his tone for the red-haired war-widow. "'I'm going strong, thanks. Going in every sense of the word,' Emmy assured him. "'I should have taken myself off before now, only Juliet pretended not to be expecting you.' Of course, the day before the wedding is supposed by old-fashioned folk to be close time for brides, where their loving bridegrooms are concerned, and so... I'm not old-fashioned, said Claire Manor. Rather not. I've every reason for knowing that. We all have. But Juliet has some story about a bad-luck superstition. I thought you were the last man to be superstitious, Irish as you are, but it didn't sound like a joke. It wasn't a joke. I'm as superstitious as the deuce about one or two things, the man confessed. Juliet wasn't pretending, but... And he turned to the girl. I had to come. There was something I didn't want to explain in a letter, and... Hang bad luck. It's a cross dog that would dare bite us. As Emmy West saw the look he gave Juliet, she felt as though her heart had been sharply pinched between a thumb and a finger. 
She had believed till now that his superstition was an excuse for spending his time with someone whose society he preferred to the bride's. Yet here he was, bouncing in like a bomb, with that eager light in his eyes, and in his hand a packet which might be the pearls. When Juliet explained that there was a reason why Claremanagh couldn't give his present till today, an exciting thought had tumbled into Emmy's head. What if Lyda Pavoya had refused to return the pearls he'd been teased into lending her, and had taken them to New York, where she was now dancing? Emmy visioned the poor Duke fanatically cabling the moment he had secured the American heiress, or perhaps engaging a lawyer to frighten the Polish siren. Lyda wouldn't be easy to frighten, Emmy imagined admiringly. She, in fact, admired the dancer so sincerely that her own attempts at sirenhood were copied from Pavoya. Even if Lyda had disgorged the booty, would there have been time for it to arrive from across the Atlantic? Only the opening of that little parcel would show, and Emmy's jealous pain was complicated by curiosity. Still, she decided, it would be useless to wear out her welcome by lingering. The chances were that Claire Manor wouldn't break those thrilling seals till she had gone. Besides, Juliet was in a state of suppressed fury, and was capable in that mood of banishing her with rudeness. In some moods, the girl was capable of anything. So Lady West kissed air in the neighbourhood of Miss Fair's burning cheeks, and accepted defeat with one's sole satisfaction. If the pearls had come, or if they ever came, she had pretty well spoiled them for the future Duchess. Au revoir, dearest child, she said. I shall be in church tomorrow, of course. Au revoir, Peter, and good luck in spite of the Claremanagh curse. I do hope it won't put on seven-league boots and follow you to New York. Leather's too dear since the war for superannuated old curses to buy seven-league boots, replied the Duke, unflatteringly prompt in opening the door. The pretty lady went to it with worm-like meekness, but turned on the threshold. If I meet the curse, I'll tell it to mind its business, she laughed. The Claremanners have had enough bad luck. You'll create a new record working out your democratic notions in a new country, with one or two old friends there to applaud them. With this exit speech, she put herself in charge of Parker, who would ring up the lift for her. The Duke shut the salon door and turned to the girl. He didn't even say, thank goodness the woman's gone. He seemed to have forgotten her existence. Heavens, what hair you have, he exclaimed. I knew it must be gorgeous, but I didn't dream of this. Tonight I shall dream of it. By rights, I oughtn't to have seen this show till tomorrow night, ought I? But I'm glad I have. All your beauties bursting upon me at once would be too much for my brain. Don't make fun of me, Juliet laughed with a wistfulness rather pathetic in so pretty and so rich a girl. Make fun of you? Clermanna snatched her up from the low seat and crushed the yielding, thin-clad young body in his arms. On the sweet-scented, damp air he rained kisses. Am I a wooden man? Take that, and that, to punish you. Maverine, if it were tomorrow. 
Between warm joy and chilling doubt, Juliet Fair shivered. If only she could believe him, believe that he cared for her and not for the money. She almost had believed before Emmy West came. The girl burned to tell Pat what Emmy had said and hinted. If he could reassure her, it would be balm on a wound never quite healed. But if he couldn't, if questioning should make bad things worse, then she would wish in vain that she'd let sleeping dogs lie, because she loved the man too much to give him up. She had wanted him as a child wants the moon, ever since the day she, a gilt-edged Red Cross nurse, had met him, a soldier on leave, in Paris. Now she had got him, or almost, and the future might be so wonderful. He had promised her uncle, Henry Fair, to live for at least half of each year in America, there to work as other men worked. Fair would supply the employment, and Juliet looked forward to being proud of her adorable husband, happy with him, a living proof, the pair of them, that an American girl can marry a duke for himself, not for his title, that a duke can make an American heiress his wife for love. But now Emmy had raked up those old rags of gossip, nearly forgotten, and Juliet had read the paper only a few days ago about Pavoya's first night in New York, the furore her wild eastern dancing and strange Slavonic fascination had created. The girl felt sick at heart as she asked herself if Pat's pleasure in the thought of seeing New York had any connection with Pavoya's presence there. It was all she could do not to purr out her complaints of that cat, Emmy West, but native prudence prevailed over hot impulse. She enjoyed as much as Emmy permitted Pat's praise of her glorious hair. Surely Pavoya's wasn't as long or thick, and probably its rusty red was due to dye. And then she reminded him of the parcel. "'Is it my present from you?' she asked, almost shyly, nodding toward the table where Pat had thrown the neat white square. Instantly he let her go and took the little parcel again in his hand. "'Yes, sweet, it is my present for you,' he said. "'But not the present I wanted to give you. That's why I risked the curse and came to explain.' "'Oh!' was the girl's non-committal answer. Her heart sank. The pearls were not in the packet, she knew now, but her disappointment was not so much in missing them as in the thought that Emmy could say, I told you so. Before you open these silly seals and see what I have brought, the Duke went on, I want to make my explanation and be sure you understand the whole business. Come and sit by me on the sofa, will you? He drew her down beside him and gathered her close. Of course you know all about our pearls, the one ewe lamb of ancient glory left to us poor Claremanners, he said. I don't know all about them, amended Juliet, her heart missing a beat. Just tell me what you do know, and then I shan't bore you with repetitions. Well, people have told me things, she hedged. Didn't a Tsarina of Russia sell the pearls to some older ancestor of yours? Good Lord, no, he chuckled. Never was a Claremanagh so stony broke as yours truly. Yet never was there one since the days of pterodactyls who could run to the price of a Tsarina's pearls. 
that is in Lucca. My great-great-grandfather bought them with kisses, but joking apart, it's rather a romantic tale. He was a soldier and offered his services to Russia because he'd seen a portrait of the Tsarina, which the Prince of Wales had, and fell in love with it. Well, she fell in love with him, too, at sight. He wasn't bad to look at, judging from his portrait. Was he like you? cut in Juliet. Pat laughed. They say so. When we can get those pill people out of Castle Clare Manor, their lease has a year to run. You shall tell me if you find a likeness. But there was an affair between the two, and great-great-grandfather Pat, he was Patrick too, like all the eldest sons, had it politely intimated to him, through his friend Wales, that he'd better come home. A marriage had been arranged for him. He'd not have stirred a foot if it hadn't been for his love. She begged him to go. There was a plot to murder him, it seems, and as for her, she'd ceased to be very popular with the Tsar, her husband. She made her sweetheart promise to marry the English girl, and she gave him the rope of pearls, which since then had been called after her, the Tsarina's pearls. They were for his wife as a gift from her, so the girl shouldn't hate the thought of their love. "'I should have hated it all the more,' cried Juliet. "'I wouldn't have worn the things if I'd been his bride.' "'Well, as my bride, I hope you will wear them often. "'They'll be dashed becoming to your blondness, "'for the things are unique in one way. "'They're blue, a hundred and eighty immense and perfectly matched blue pearls. "'Never has anything been seen like them,' the expert Johnnies say. "'Was the Tsarina a blonde?' the girl wanted to know. "'A copper-headed blonde. You shall see her miniature.' Juliet said nothing, but she thought of Lyda Pavoya's head. She had never seen the Polish dancer, but she had heard her described the traditional siren green eyes, white face, and red hair. And she knew that Emmy West modelled herself, so far as nature permitted, on Pavoya.' In the ordinary sense of the word, the Tsarina's pearls aren't an heirloom in our family, Clermanagh continued, but the first bride who received them passed on the gift to her eldest son's bride, so it has gone on ever since. The thing falls to the heir or his wife, and it's tacitly understood that neither the rope as a whole nor even one of the pearls shall be sold. Well, I came into the inheritance, if you can call it that, seven years ago, when I was twenty-one. I'm afraid I'd have sold the bally thing more than once if I could have done it in common decency. But I couldn't. So there you are. What did you do with it? Juliet ventured, half dreading the answer. Her head was pressed close to Pat's shoulder. She could not look up at his face, but she thought a muscle jumped in the arm that held her, and that there was a sudden change in his tone do with it he echoed why what should i do but keep it in the bank waiting for the lady of my dreams i couldn't wear it around my neck you know but well i did get it out of the bank now and then to show to beautiful beings who begged to see it once it was in a loan exhibition for the benefit of something or other i forget what the confession i have to make though is this only two months before I met the dearest girl on earth, I was so hard up, I'd have had to grind a monkey organ in the streets if I hadn't been engaged in fighting for king and country. 
I'd had some beastly bad luck with a speculation an alleged pal had let me in for, and honest Injun, I didn't know which way to turn until a chap I know offered me 200,000 francs on the security of the pearls. Francs? echoed Juliet. Yes, the man's a Frenchman, and the business was done in France. He's a dashed good fellow in his way, but it's a queer way. He's a kind of gilded super money lender. His transactions are only with his friends, and the interest he takes is fair and square. Twenty per cent. Instead of sixty or so, as the sharks do. To my bitter knowledge. With what I got from Louis Mayo, I paid my debts and hung on to a bit, a few thousand. Then, two months later, I met you, and the fact was in the fire. How in the fire? Why, I made up my mind at first sight to grab you if I could. Juliet broke out laughing like a child, forgetful of her secret burden. Did you? Really? So did I you. Bold hussy. He kissed her with passion. But it was worse for me than you. I just lost my chance of giving you your legitimate wedding present, if you'd have me. The day you said yes, instead of walking on air, I could have thrown myself in the sea. I felt such a fool. Silly boy, cried the girl. Any real money lender, or even your super gilded one, would have let you have all you wanted if you'd said you were marrying Silas Fair's heiress. I mayn't know much about business, but I know that. And I mayn't be no saint, but I'm not a cad, Clemana capped her. I wouldn't go to a money lender on the strength of being engaged to you. I don't say that if Louis Mayon had been in France, then I'd not have wheedled the pearls back from him on the mere strength of friendship and an IOU or some such arrangement. He'd have trusted me, Pat laughed. Anyhow, in the circumstances. But you and I were engaged a fortnight after the armistice, do you remember? Just a week before our own great day, yours and mine. Mayon went to Russia with a lot of important Frenchmen of Hebrew blood, on a diplomatic mission. He had a bad time in Petrograd. He and his lot were stuck in the prison of St. Peter and St. Paul by the Bolshes. I didn't know where the pearls were and couldn't find them. That was two months ago, but after six weeks in a cell, Mayon was released by order of Lenin, and it was expected in Paris that he and the rest would be back in France by now. We were there ourselves, you and your uncle in Paris, and I at GHQ, you know, till just ten days ago, though it seems longer, and I was hoping against hope that Mayon might turn up. I wouldn't say a word to you, for I didn't want you to be disappointed, and even as late as last night I wouldn't quite give up. Your cousin Jack Manners, who is the best fellow on earth, has been watching things for me in Paris. He'd heard that Mayon had quietly sneaked out, and hadn't let anyone know, in order to get a good rest cure. But this turns out to be a canard. Now you can see why I had to go out and find you a fairing, as the Scots say. I couldn't afford anything worth while unless I borrowed, so I thought things over and decided that you'd prefer a little remembrance of our wedding, bought with my own pocket money, and supplemented by a souvenir of my mother. Am I right? Absolutely. Whatever you give me, I shall love it, said Juliet. I wouldn't care if it costs sixpence. It's from you. 
That makes the value for me. But, Pat, I can't bear to think of your being poor. You won't be after tomorrow. I haven't liked to talk of such things, but I told Uncle Henry I wanted a million dollars settled on you to use as you please. Surely, if he did want, I... He did, my child, but I wasn't taking any. I meant to tell you this myself when we were old married people, a week after the wedding, let's say. But since you've brought up the subject, we might as well have it out. Your money is going to restore Clare Manor and the jolly old London house in Queen Anne's Gate that my great-grandfather bought. I don't so much mind that. You'll enjoy the places, and it won't be till the tenants there turn out. I'm to have a screw from your uncle for pretending to work in the S.P. Fair Bank. A hundred dollars a week to begin with. He offered more, but I wouldn't have it. "'about a fiftieth part of which I'll really earn. "'But even that will bring me nearly a hundred pounds a month, "'so I shan't disgrace my wife by wearing paper collars "'or elastic-sided boots, or not getting my hair cut. "'Then, as my earning power increases, so will my pay. "'Besides, your noble guardian wants to buy my place at Maidenhead, "'when it's free next spring.' He'll give me sixty thousand pounds, which will leave me fifty when the mortgage is paid off. And Mr. Fair will advise me about investments. So you see, you're not marrying a pauper after all, my good girl. As for the pearls, it's only a delay, an annoying delay. When Mayon really does get back to Paris, he'll find a letter from me containing a post-dated cheque for the two hundred thousand francs and interest. That will come out of the fifty thousand pounds and will still leave me a decent pile. Mayon will at once take steps to get the pearls to me. "'But we'll be in New York,' objected Juliet. "'How can Monsieur Mayon send them without danger of their being stolen?' "'Trust him to arrange that,' Clermana soothed her. "'There must be lots of ways. "'Besides, they'll be insured for their full value, "'which is supposed to be intrinsic, not sentimental. "'One hundred thousand pounds. "'What I hope is... They'll be in time for you to make a show in your box at the opera. Metropolitan Opera House, you call it, don't you? You see, I've been reading up a guidebook to New York. And now I've made all my explanations and excuses, my darling. You'd better open the poor little box. His arm still round her, the girl broke the jeweller's seals. Inside the white paper was a white velvet case, and inside the white velvet case was a string of white pearls. They were small, but good, and from them depended an old-fashioned, open-faced locket containing an ivory miniature of a beautiful boy. "'The pearls are from me,' Pat said. "'The locket and miniature are from my mother. She used always to wear the locket, and when she died eight years ago, one of the last things she did was give it to me for my bride.' Juliet Fair would not have been human if she had not forgotten in that moment both Emmy West and Lida Pavoya. End of chapter 2「The Great Pearl Secret » by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 3 To Meet the Duchess Mrs. Lowndes, Emmy West's sister-in-law, was giving a luncheon for the Duchess of Clare Manor, and the Duchess was late. Nine lovely ladies, including the hostess, were waiting for her in the futurist drawing-room 
of an apartment overlooking the park. It was not to all tastes a beautiful drawing-room, but it was expensive for all purses. So was the apartment, too expensive, Billy Lamb's friend said, for his. As for the ladies, each one was beautiful, or her clothes were. For Nat Lowndes had chosen her guests, with the special view of impressing the Duchess, whom Billy had tried to marry when she was Miss Fair. The invitations were for one fifteen, and before one thirty, everyone had arrived except the Duchess. By twenty to two, the nine voices were chattering with almost abnormal gaiety, but ears and eyes were secretly on the alert. Natalie Lowndes was not precisely in the Duchess set, or, if she was, moved on the chilled outer edge of it. These women who chatted in her startling salon would have preferred other engagements if they had not been asked to meet the Duchess of Claremanagh. Most of them knew that Billy had desperately wanted Juliet Fair, and that Juliet had been at school with his sister, Lady West, now in London. Their private opinion was that the Duchess had accepted for Lady West's sake, rather than Mrs. Lowndes, and as the minutes lagged, they wondered if the chief guest were purposely proving her slight esteem of the circle. This idea ruffled their vanity, and as they talked, glancing at wristwatches, their irritation grew. Natalie, who, like her husband, was from the Middle West, felt the atmosphere of her overheated room fall to zero. She began to feel sick at heart, and tears pricked her eyelids, but she kept a brave front. No one had spoken yet of the delay, nor of the lady who caused it, but at a quarter to two it seemed better to be frank. "'I can't think what can have happened to Juliet,' Natalie said. Nat was one of those women who always called her smartest acquaintances by their Christian names behind their backs." We'll wait five minutes more, not a moment longer. I'm sure she wouldn't wish it. Royalties are always so prompt, said Mrs. Sam Selby Saunders, who knew the habits of kings and queens from the Sunday supplements. Evidently, dukes, or anyhow duchesses, don't follow their example. Something must be the matter, Nat defended the absent. At first, Juliet was afraid she couldn't accept today. You know there's a meeting this morning at Mrs. Van Esten's to arrange details of the wonderful roof garden show in aid of the Armenians. Juliet had to be present as she's on the committee, but at last she decided she could get away in time. She must have been kept. Nobody spoke for a minute. If there had been only ten first families in New York, Mrs. Van Esten would still have been high on the list. She was the organiser of the proposed entertainment, the plans for which were thrilling the town. And if this business were keeping the Duchess, she was almost excusable. Anyhow, nobody's feelings had been hurt. Suddenly, in the midst of the pause, Miss Solomon laughed. Her father was as rich as Silas Fair had been, and there was no reason why she shouldn't be a Duchess too, some day, when travel abroad became easier. "'I did hear the loveliest thing,' she chuckled, I wonder if any of you have heard it, that Mrs. Van Esten meant to propose at the committee meeting today the name of Lyda Pavoya. Good gracious, for what? gasped Nat Lowndes. To dance at the entertainment, of course. Mrs. Van E.'s maid and my maid are cousins, so I should say it was true. You know Mrs. Van E. is notorious for never listening to gossip. 
she prides herself on being above it. Very silly, I think, because one can make such awful gaffes if one doesn't know the seamy side of things. No wonder the Duchess is late, cried Mrs. Sam. She has probably had to go home between the meeting and here to faint or have a fit. Nobody could help laughing, and nobody tried to help it. There was a weekly paper in New York, a paper called The Inner Circle. This publication one got one's maid to buy, and hide under a pile of books until it could be read. The moment all its paragraphs had been absorbed, the paper was destroyed, thus making it possible to say, The Inner Circle? I wouldn't give the wretched rag house room. The inside middle pages of the rag were headed, Let's Whisper, and at the time of the fair Clare Manor marriage two months ago, the choicest whispering had concerned the Duke's flirtation with Lyda Pavoya. It is easier to break off a flirtation than an engagement, because you can't be sued for breach of promise, was one mo of the whisperer, and it was intimated that the Duke had profited by this immunity when he proposed to Miss Fair. But what about the pearls, was a question which no one had forgotten, and for which everyone wanted an answer. Oh, yes, it would be a rich joke if Mrs. Van Esten proposed Pavoya for a star turn at the Armenian charity entertainment. If it's true, said Nat, Juliet couldn't very well refuse her consent to have Pavoya. That would make things worse. As it is, none of us could help noticing how she has kept the Duke away from every single opera where Pavoya has danced. Not once has he or she been in their box on a Pavoya night, but... The company hung on the word, as Nat drew in her breath and paused for effect. Never were they to know, however, what revelation was to follow that but, for at this instant Mrs. Lowndes' butler announced, "'The Duchess of Clermanagh,' and left out the preface of Her Grace. His omission upset the hostess so much that she stammered over her greeting and forgot what she had read in a book called English Etiquette about introducing a duchess. Juliet Clemana was so contrite for her own guilt, however, that she had no thought for other's shortcomings. "'Oh, I'm dreadfully sorry to be late. Do forgive me, everyone,' she cried, like a penitent schoolgirl. "'I was kept so long at that meeting, and then I had to dash home for a minute.' My husband have made me promise. You see, this is supposed to be a great day for me. The pearls, perhaps you've heard of them, are due at last. Perhaps they had heard of the pearls. The Duchess was forgiven at once. Introductions were hastily made. As the party sat down, the guest of honour pulling off her gloves, she went on with her excuses. Evidently she was willing to talk of the pearls, so Nat ventured an entering wedge. Emmy wrote me they had to be re-strung, she said, and that the most skilled pearl stringer in England wasn't demobilized or something, so you had to wait. What Emmy had really written was, this is a story they're putting round, but it would be exciting to get Juliet's answer and watch Juliet's face. The Duchess was somewhat paler than Juliet Fair had been, for she and the Duke had made a huge success in New York, and were in such request that they kept appalling hours. But she was rosier than she had ever been, as she replied that, yes, she had had to wait, but at last the pearls had been sent. They were on the Britannia, in care of a trusted person, and that person had wirelessed that they would be at the house by half-past twelve. 
Unluckily, however, the Britannia had been delayed outside for a sister ship to leave the dock. She, Juliet, had gone home from Mrs. Van Esten's to receive the messenger with her husband, but the former and Pat's trusted man, sent to meet him, had not arrived. She had waited a few minutes and had then come on in the car to Mrs. Lowndes. Of course, the auto had been detained for ages at two or three crossings. It was always like that if one were late. And now she could not be at home when the pearls appeared, for there were engagements which couldn't be broken for the whole of the afternoon. After all, the luncheon was a great success. The Duchess atoned for her sins by being sweet to everyone, much sweeter than she had troubled herself to be, as a spoiled young girl, with strangers. She was as pleased as a child with the delicious dishes ordered, almost with prayer, by Nat. And when she was obliged to go, after coffee and cigarettes, she left behind her a charming impression. Mrs. Selby Saunders and Miss Solomon and all the rest made up for their sharp speeches by praising the bride's beauty and exquisite clothes. "'She's much prettier than she used to be,' generously said Nat, who had never seen Juliet as Miss Fair, "'and the Duke must be a fool if he likes Lyda Pavoya better. "'If he neglects his wife, she won't have any trouble finding someone else who won't.' "'What about that cousin of hers, Jack Manners, "'who used to be in love with her when she was almost a child?' "'A nephew of her mother's?' asked Mrs. Selby Saunders. "'An awfully nice fellow. She ought to have married him. "'They say he volunteered before America joined the Allies because she refused him. "'He's in France still,' Nat supplied the information eagerly. "'My sister-in-law, Lady West, met him there. "'I saw in some newspaper that he was to sail for home on the Britannia,' said Miss Solomon. "'Perhaps he is the messenger bringing the pearls.' End of chapter 3《The Great Pearl Secret》by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 4 — The Letter with a Tsarina's Seal John Manners was not the messenger bringing the pearls. Even if he had been asked to bring them, he would not have accepted the responsibility of escorting Clarmenal's ewe lamb across the Atlantic. He knew more about those pearls than he wanted to know for he had been in love with Juliet Fair before he began to like Clermont. To like him in spite of himself, in spite of natural jealousy, and in spite of prejudice. It was a mere coincidence that he should be on the same ship with Monsieur Mayen's messenger, for with the return of Mayen from Russia, Manner's friendly services for the Duke came to an end. His services for France were ended also, and he was keenly interested in his own emotions as he touched the bell on the front door of the Fair house. How would it feel to meet Juliet, married, and married to a man with whom fate had queerly forced him into friendship? The front door was a very elaborate door. It was mostly composed of old wrought iron, so delicately carved as to be like iron lacework. Silas Fair had imported it from an ancient palazzo in Florence, and characteristically had it backed with modern plate glass. The inner side of this crystal screen was curtained with creamy silk tissue, thus forming a sort of mirror for anyone waiting to enter. Manners gazed vaguely at his reflection behind the pattern of wrought iron, and his sense of humor noted that thwarted love had not made of him a haggard wreck. Fighting in France had browned and hardened him. He was lean, but far from frail. The dark tan on his face caused his yellowish hair to seem straw-colored in contrast, and his eyes boyishly blue. This, and the khaki uniform he still wore, 
gave him an air of being younger than he was, twenty-eight. And the man and his image were exchanging an amused grin when a new reflection appeared in the glass. Mechanically, Manners turned and found himself face to face with a woman. She had paused at the foot of the marble steps and hesitated, as if the sight of someone on the threshold had upset her calculations. But at this instant, the door was thrown open, not by one of the imported English footmen whom Manners knew of old, but by an elderly Japanese. The yellow face gave Jack a shock, but he realized that British and American youths had been better employed than his footman since he himself had gone to France. The Japanese looked past the officer in khaki to the lady whom he appeared to recognize and even to be expecting. This look settled manners for her. She decided to keep to her original plan. With a slight inclination of the head to manners, she stepped briskly into the vestibule. Behind her, she left a faint trail of alluring fragrance. Even Jack Manners, who disliked artificial perfumes, breathed it in with pleasure. He had never smelled anything quite like it before. But he thought of an eastern garden in moonlight, and the thrill of that picture mingled with another thrill. He had recognized the woman. He had seen her before, but only on the stage, and now she was veiled with one of those patterned veils almost as concealing for an ordinary woman as a mask. But this was not an ordinary woman. This was Pavoya, the Polish dancer, the divine Pavoya, the diabolical Pavoya, according to the point of view. Even lacking the green glint of slanted eyes, the fiery glow of close-banded hair through the veil, that figure in the plain black dress would have been unmistakable. Portrait painters, photographers, post-impressionists, and caricaturists had rendered it familiar, in all lands, to those who had not seen the dancer herself. Manners could hardly believe in the truth of his swift impression. It was almost incredible that she should come as a guest to this house. Could she have made friends with Juliet? Juliet's cousin wondered. The thing that happened next was still more strange. The slim siren in black did not wait to be ushered in by the servant. She flitted from vestibule to hall beyond, then vanished as if she knew where to go and was in haste to get there. The Japanese did not turn his head to look after her, but gave his attention to the man on the doorstep. I'm Captain Manners, said Jack. I've come to see my cousin, the Duchess. I suppose she is at home? He supposed this, not only because Juliet knew that he was due on the Britannia, and had cabled her desire to see him at once, but also because Mademoiselle Pavoya must have gone in by appointment. Even before the servant answered, however, he read in the troubled dark face that something had gone wrong. "'Please to walk in, sir,' said the Japanese in stiff, correct English. "'I have a note for you from Her Grace the Duchess. She was unfortunately obliged to go out, but I think she hopes to be back early.' If you will kindly walk into the Persian room, sir, I will give you the letter. Well did Jack remember the Persian room. It had been Silas Fair's great fad and favorite, and during his life had been used as a smoking room. Jack half expected to find Lydia Pavoya there, perhaps reading another note from Juliet. But the wonderful room, with its rare tiles and priceless rugs and exquisite old tapestries, was unoccupied. The servant placed an envelope on an antique tray of Persian enamel and presented it with a bow. Then he went out unobtrusively, leaving Manners to study with some interest the seal Juliet had used. It seemed superfluous that she should have used any at all, as the scrawled address showed that the writer had been in haste. But the interesting thing was the seal itself. It was Claremanagh's own seal, which he kept for his private correspondence, and the ring with which he had made it had been given by the Tsarina of the Pearls to his great-great-grandfather. 
Jack happened to know this because the Duke had ordered a copy made for Louise Mayen, with which to seal the box containing the pledged pearls. Claremanagh had told Jack this story before leaving France, and had pointed out the ring which he invariably wore. The design was an eye, and the motto underneath was, Je te regarde. Must have given the ring to Juliet, Manners thought as he opened the envelope. He read, Dear old boy, Don't think me a beast to be out. I really couldn't help it. I was dragged into accepting for a tiresome lunch party given by a tiresome female in my honor. Emmy West's sister-in-law. Some story has been started that I was jealous of Emmy, among other women, with Pat. Nonsense! But I knew if I refused what the creatures would say. Besides, I couldn't be sure just when you'd turn up. And above all, I wanted a chance to see you quite, quite alone. I've got lots of things to tell you that I couldn't tell anyone else. If you call while I'm away, as I expect, stop and see Pat, who is to lunch at home, as he's got a bad cold. Then say you must go, as you have an engagement. That will be true, because I now invite you to make an engagement with me. But if he insists on your visiting us before you go home to Long Island, as he's sure to do, do accept. You were horrid to answer my cable with a refusal, and say you had to go at once to your own place to decide on some silly old improvements you want to make. That's only an excuse, Jack, because you didn't quite see yourself staying in the house with Pat and me. But you are much too strong a man to mind a little thing like that. I don't believe you were ever in love with me, really. You just thought you were, that's all, from knowing me when I was a wee kid, and always being my bestest pal whom I could count on without fail. Oh, Jack, I do count on you now, as I never did before. So you won't fail me for the first time in your life, will you? I suppose this is selfish of me, and exactly like a woman, as Uncle Henry used to say, whenever I wanted to do anything he didn't want me to do. But I can't help it. You'll see when I tell you why nobody else can be of any use to me in this trouble. I have to write all this, though I hope to meet you so soon, because if I didn't, you might refuse Pat's most pressing invitation. And where should I be then? Don't think for an instant that I'm tired of Pat and want a divorce or anything. It isn't that at all. I adore him as much as ever. That's where the trouble comes in. But we've had a row, and every day it will get worse. Why, even the seal ring which I'm using for this letter has become a bone of contention, among other things. This does need a seal, if ever a letter did, for it's dreadfully indiscreet and unwifely, I suppose. Already I've eased my mind a little by pouring out my woes to you, as in old times. And now for that engagement with me, which I trust you to keep. I am supposed to go to an at-home, which I'm not sure isn't given for me. All I am sure about is that I shan't be there. Instead, I'll be in the palm room of the Hotel Lorne, where no one we know ever goes for tea, at five o'clock. And I shall wait for you, so you'll have to come. Afterwards, if you haven't done it before, you can see to sending all your things to our house for a visit of at least a week. But we'll talk of that. Ever your affectionate cousin, Jewel. P.S. You see, I haven't forgotten your old name for me. No one except you ever called me his Jewel. When Manners had read this letter through, he sat with it for some moments in his hand. Then suddenly he roused himself to realize that it was not a document to flaunt in the open. He replaced it in the envelope, which he slipped into an inner pocket of his khaki coat. Had the Japanese told Klamanov his arrival, he wondered? Or had there been some secret understanding between the Duchess and her servant that Captain Manners should be left long enough in the Persian room to read and put out of sight her sealed letter? 
Claremanagh had his own confidential man, Nixon, known as Old Nick. Why should not Juliet have hers? There was no reason. Yet Jack hated to think that the girl should be driven to a rather assordant expedient, and somehow this thought dragged into his head another. By George! he exploded aloud. Then he bit his lip. But the thought could not be pushed away. Since Juliet was out, to whom was the visit of Lydia Pavoya being made? The Japanese seemed to be in the confidence of more than one person in this house. End of chapter 4 Recording by Todd Recording by Indu Nair The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 5 The Third Ringer of the Bell Simone had been in the act of coming downstairs, dressed for a walk with her mistress's English bulldog, Admiral Beatty, when a vision flashed through the hall. A reed-like figure in black with a glint of red hair through a patterned veil. Simone stopped short, petrified, pulling so suddenly at the dog's leash that the reticent bull gave a grunt. It took a great deal to petrify Simone. She had been through an earthquake in Italy. She had escaped from a burning hotel in her first year of service in New York. There had been further sensations also, and her nerves were accustomed to shocks. But to see Lida Pavoya, the dancer, dart unannounced through the hall when the Duke was alone in the house went beyond everything. She was certain, despite the veil, that the woman was Pavoya. No other creature on earth had a figure like that or held her head so like a light flower on a stem. The Duchess was tall and slim and graceful with a slender long throat, but she had the slightness of a normal, charmingly formed young girl. The Polish dancer was almost a thing supernatural, a streak of living flame made woman. Simone's dark skin was thick but her head was not. Her brain worked fast. Like a general at maneuvers, it reviewed the situation at a glance. The Duke was home because of a cold. He had known for days that the Duchess would be out for luncheon and that she was safe not to return home on surprise. He must have invited Pavoya to come in his wife's absence. And more than this, it struck Simone that the visit of today could not be the first. Togo, the Japanese, of whom she was jealous because of her mistress's fancy for his services, seemed to be acquainted with the dancer. He let her pass without a word. No doubt, she had been to the house before, when the Duchess and Simone were out of the way. Either the Duke or Pavoya, or both, had bribed Togo, who was playing a mean double game between his master and mistress. The French woman resolved that she would not, after all, take Beatty for a walk. Bending down, she unfastened the leash from his expensive collar, on which was engraved Miss America from her British ally. PC to JP. Feeling himself free, the dog instantly turned and spraddled back to the adored one's boudoir, 
where he was privileged to wallow among all the prettiest cushions. Such wallowing he much preferred to a promenade with Simone or anyone else save his worshipped Duchess. As Simone rose from her stooping posture, she saw that Togo had ushered a man into the house. A second glance enabled her to recognize this man, and she was more amused than surprised to see that it was Captain Manners. Juliet had not asked her maid to deliver the secret letter because it would be simpler for the man who opened the door to do so, and as the confidential mission was given to another, the Duchess had prudently refrained from mentioning it to Simone. The latter imagined her mistress must mentally have mislaid the fact that she herself had seen in the papers Captain Manners' return on the Britannia from France. In any case, here he was, and all that was cynical in Simone laughed at the contretemps. He was certain to have asked for the Duke as the Duchess was out. Would Togo, who had just let in Pavoya, venture to interrupt a tete a tete by announcing that her grace's cousin had arrived? It occurred to Simone that the Japanese had not dared to turn away so important a person, but that, having let him in, he would find some way of excusing the Duke. The situation was too dramatic to waste. The French woman pictured his grace's expression, faced by his wife's cousin and loyal friend. She had wanted her mistress to marry Clarimana because it was distinguished to be the maid of a duchess. But she had liked manners and received many a tip from him in days gone by. For that reason, and for others even more important, she must help Manners catch his cousin Juliet's husband and Lida Pavoya together. Thinking quickly, she tripped down the broad marble staircase which led to the great hall, a staircase that she was the one servant permitted to use. She had not passed the midway landing, however, when a second Japanese, a youth under the command of Togo, went hurrying toward the front door. The electric bell was not audible to anyone in the hall, but Simone guessed that a third caller had rung. In Togo's absence with Captain Manners, it was the duty of Huji to answer the door. The maid flew down the remaining steps and was in time to hear the Japanese in embarrassed conversation with the latest arrival. This person was speaking broken English and Huji, not as fluent in that tongue as Togo, could not understand. A Frenchman, decided Simone. Mon Dieu! It will be the messenger with the pearls. She stepped forward with a smile. Monsieur, she said, je suis Française, la femme de chambre de la Duchesse. Si je puis être utile. The newcomer turned at the words and beamed at sight of a compatriot. He was youngish, between 30 and 40, Simone thought. He was good-looking too, richly dark, as if he might be a child of the South like herself. His eyes were handsome and his small features well cut. So were his clothes. He had a neat, close-clipped moustache and red lips which made his teeth look white as he gave smile for smile, though in reality they were slightly yellowed by constant cigarette smoking. Simone approved of him. He had the air of being a gentleman, 
and she was glad that fate had made them meet. Naturally, she knew of the Tsarina pearls and that they were expected after tiresome delays, for Juliet was both trustful and careless where Simone was concerned. But save for this little comedy, she would not have met the messenger. Vaguely, the maid understood that he was private secretary to some French financier in whose care the pearls had been left, and a secretary was far above a femme de chambre in the social scale. It was a pleasant accident which enabled her to earn his gratitude, and Simone had a sudden vision of being invited out to dine or to go to the theatre as a reward. Who knew how it might end if she played just the right cards? For a moment the two tossed politeness to each other in their own beautiful language, the Niçoise striving to speak like a Parisienne. But there was no time to waste before the return of Togo, and after a few flowery sentences Simone came to business. Monsieur has arrived on the Britannia, is it not? she fluted. This told, as she intended, that the mission was no secret from her, and the way was cleared for the messenger. He showed her a visiting card, with which he had vainly tried to impress Huji. Leon de Fasquel was the name Simone read, and its owner volubly explained that he was awaited with impatience by the Duke of Claramano. This Oriental, he went on, with a glance at the attentive yellow face, informs me, if I understood aright, that I cannot see the Duke. Monsieur may have understood Huji, but it is Huji who does not understand the situation, smiled Simone. His Grace the Duke is confined to the house with a cold. Otherwise, he would doubtless have met Monsieur at the ship. As it was, he sent his own man. Was not Monsieur received by an Irishman named Nixon? Monsieur de Fasquel shook his head sadly. There must have been a mistake. He had hoped to find someone who would see him through the formalities of landing, but no one had appeared. Possibly, this was due to the fact that his luggage had been placed under the letter F instead of D and so the Duke's man had missed him. Fortunately, through the influence of Mr. Henry Fair, still engaged in the noble work of reconstructing devastated France, and that of the well-known New York banking house of Fair, there had been no difficulty with the customs. His, the Fasquez, mission had, for obvious reasons, been kept secret on shipboard, but the object he brought had been declared and instead of being delayed at the dock, he had been aided by the authorities. It seemed strange now to meet obstacles at the journey's end. Be seated, monsieur, for a moment, his countrywoman cooed. I will go myself and tell his grace that you have arrived. I am a privileged person in this house. Huji had understood not a word of the conversation in French, but seeing Simone start in the direction of the duke's study, he put himself in the woman's way. Togo said Duke no see any peoples. He warned her in his best English. I will take the responsibility on myself, she said. I knew the Duke long before Togo saw either of their graces. With a slight push, she passed the boy 
and in her haste almost skated along the polished floor to the door next that of the Persian room. There she tapped sharply, without a second's hesitation, and waiting for an answer she could hear her heart knock in her breast. For a long moment that fell longer, there was no other sound. The silence behind the door seemed abnormal to her high-keyed nerves. But suddenly, as she was about to rap again, the door was flung open. The Duke stood on the threshold, his charming brown face less charming than usual because of a slight frown. At sight of Simone, he showed surprise, his scowl having been prepared for Togo. What is it? Has your mistress come home? he asked. The frown had faded, the voice was kind. But this change did not deceive Simone. She was sure that the Duke was in what he himself would call a blue funk. And the fear she imagined brought back the last picture her mind had made of him. Quickly she saw the way to kill two birds with one stone. Monsieur le Duc, she said in French. The messenger has arrived from the Britannia and is being detained in the hall by the Japanese. He is very vexed and surprised. I took it on myself to tell you, Grace, as I think this is a man who would go away in anger and that would be a pity. Clarimana flushed. Simone read his confusion. Pavoya was not to be seen but she was in the room, hidden somewhere. There was no doubt of that, either behind the big Spanish screen or in the window recess covered by velvet curtains. If Simone had not learned to control her features, she would have laughed. She knew that the wretched young man must be thinking, What shall I do if I go outside this room to meet Defasquel? Someone may walk in and find Pavoya. Perhaps it may be a plot of my wife's who has come back and seen Pavoya. Yet if I receive Defasquel here, Pavoya will have to remain hidden since there will be no chance for her to escape. It was a case of the frying pan and the fire and to know which was which seemed a toss-up. However, the Duke made the best of things as they were and decided quickly. Of course I'll see this gentleman, he said in rather a loud tone. Have him sent here at once. Bien, Monsieur le Duc, agreed Simone, then added instantly. And the Captain Manners, is he to be kept waiting? Good Lord, exploded Caramagna, is he here too? He has been here some time, the maid had begun to explain when Togo appeared, his eye bright with rage. This woman had upset his careful arrangements. He knew that she had done it to make mischief. But now there was no circumventing her. He had heard the whole story from Huji, and an elaborate plan to keep Captain Manners contented in the Persian room was a burst bubble. Meekly Togo took orders from the Duke to bring both visitors to him. Captain Manners first, because he was a relative, and not more than five minutes later, Monsieur de Fasquel. Does His Grace wish me to make his excuses to the messenger? asked Simone as Togo trotted off to the Persian room. Yes, go, said the Duke, no doubt anxious for an instant with the hidden one, and the maid hurried back to de Fasquel. In order to ingratiate herself rather than exonerate her mistress's husband, 
she threw all her charm into the explanation. In five minutes, no more, his grace would receive monsieur. Meanwhile, was there any information, any aid she could give, she who had known New York for years? By the time Toga appeared to conduct the messenger, the Fasquel and Simone had discovered that they were both of the South. He, no further from Nice than Marseille. It was when the very invitation she had wished for hovered on the Frenchman's lips that the Japanese intervened, and Simone hated Togo more violently than before. End of chapter 5
When will Madame the Duchess return? Defacal inquired. That's more than I know. Not till late, I'm afraid. I have made an, an engagement in a half hour from now, regretted the Frenchman, taking out his watch. It is an appointment that cannot be put off, as the person is not free to change from one time to another. Monsieur, I urge you to open the box. It is only fair to the purser of the Britannia who kept it in his safe. It is only fair to me. Clermana laughed. Oh, don't bother about that side of it. Those seals alone are a proof that the packet hasn't been tampered with since it left Mayen's hand. You're his secretary, Monsieur de Facal, and he trusts you completely, or he wouldn't have chosen you above anyone else as his messenger. But I don't suppose he would take that seal ring I gave him off his finger to lend it even to you. He volunteered the promise to me that it should never leave his hand. In fact, when I pledged the pearls to him for 200,000 francs, it was he who suggested fastening them up in a box sealed with my own particular private seal. You are right so far, Monsieur Le Duc, admitted Defacal. My employer has been true to his agreement. For one thing, the ring you have made with the facsimile of your seal happens to be rather small. I do not think he could remove it from his finger if he wished without having it sawed off by a jeweler. Very well, there you are then, said Pat. I am not there, argued the Frenchman, unfamiliar with English idioms. Seals can be taken off and fastened on again. I have heard without the change leaving a trace. I am certain these are intact, but putting aside myself and the pursuer, Monsieur would not rot, my dear fellow, cut in the Duke. I trust Mayon as I trust myself. Of course, I know. We all three know the pearls are inside that box. You say you can't wait for my wife to come home. I say the seals shan't be broken by any hand but hers. Let's be sensible. Manners, come here, won't you, and reassure Monsieur de Facal by examining those seals. He snatched the box up from the table and held it out to Jack. You've got sharp eyes. I leave it to you. Can't you swear that those five red blobs have never been tampered with, even by the smartest expert alive? Reluctantly, Jack came forward, and accepting the box, closely examined the seals. I think I'd be prepared to swear that, he said. All the same, Monsieur de Vacal is right, in my opinion. You owe it to him, to everyone concerned, including the company who've insured the pearls, to open the box before you let it go out of your sight. You're no true friend of Juliet's to give me such advice, Pat taunted him, and I won't take it. That's flat. Wow, as for the seals, look there. As he retrieved the package, he nodded at a ring on the least finger of his right hand. Both men's eyes went to it, differ cows to note, perhaps, how precisely the raised design of the wax resembled the sunken design on the gold. 
But there was a different thought in Jack Manners mind. He remembered what Juliet had written him about his ring. What had happened between her and Pat was the question that flashed through his head. A few hours ago she had sealed her secret letter with her husband's ring after some dispute concerning it, and now here it was on Pat's finger again. Claire Manor, unconscious of Jack's disparaging reflections, began to regain something like his old gaiety of manner. Are you satisfied, monsieur? he said. Then seeing that Defacal screwed up his brilliant eyes in a near-sighted way, the Duke flung the box on the table, pulled off the ring. Have a good look at it, he said, almost forcing it into the Frenchman's hand. There's a safe in the wall of this room, made by my dead father-in-law, to keep such things as he didn't care to send to the bank. My wife and I are the only people alive who have keys to it, or know the combination. Besides, my own man is the one servant allowed in this room. So you see, Jack, I don't need to keep the box in sight after Monsieur Defacal goes. As he spoke, he walked toward an alcove at the left of the fireplace. It was fitted with bookshelves, and as Manor's eyes followed Claire Manor, he remembered the secret of Silas Fair's safe. Part of the top shelf had to be pulled out from the wall, after touching a spring, and then pushed up. Thus, a small steel door was revealed and could be unlocked only after a certain combination of letters had been made. Jack had not thought of the safe in years, or glanced in its direction on entering the room. But now, to his surprise, he saw that the bookshelf had already been pushed up, and the safe door not only revealed, but opened. Clermanna's back was turned to him, and he could not see by a change of face whether Pat was vexed at his own forgetfulness or indifferent but jack remembered the hidden fourth person in the room and an instinct told him that the safe had not been opened in readiness for the pearls there had been some other motive claire manor and the polish woman had been interrupted in their tete-a-tete and it would be characteristic of pat if an unexpected rap on the door had caught him unawares. Could he have been in the act of giving Pavoya a jewel from the safe when he had been forced to answer a knock? Luckily, no such suspicion could be in the Frenchman's head. He had not seen Pavoya slip into the house. Jack glanced at him and saw that he had laid the Duke's seal ring on the table beside the sealed packet. He was looking at the safe, but showed no surprise at finding it open. For him, it had been prepared to receive the pearls. There's a good little hidey-hole, said Pat. Now I'll sign the receipt. Monsieur, and you may go to your engagement with a light heart. He went back to the table, took the box, and tossed it into the aperture in the wall. Then he closed the steel door, did something to it which the eyes of neither man would follow, and pulled down the concealing bookshelf. A moment later he was scrawling, Claire Manor, on the paper, 
with Defagel rather sulkily put into his hand. End of chapter 6「For at five precisely, Juliet appeared. He had already engaged a table in a secluded corner, half screened by drooping, feather-like branches. But his eyes were on the door, and he sprang up as the tall, girlish figure drifted in between two palms. At sight of his boyhood's love, his heart gave a bound. How lovely she was in her sheath-like gray dress, with dangling silvery things, like clouds of dawn filming a pale sunrise sky. Her hat was simple yet quaint, pushing forward her bright hair and making her face look young as a child's, pathetically young. Yes, pathetic was the word, Jack thought, as he went to meet her, and she came hastening to him as to a haven. And pathetic was a new word in connection with Juliet Fair. She had been proud, fantastic, absurd, charming, obstinate, unaccountable, and a hundred other things, but never pathetic. Manners wondered if it could be the dip of her odd hat brim which gave her that look of transparent pallor and the blue shadows under her big eyes. There were not many people in the room, as tea at the Lorn was far from a fashionable function. Those who were there seemed absorbed in a tired, provincial shopper's way in the muffin and tea business. Still, Juliet was too tall and beautiful not to be conspicuous, even if unrecognized. And a few weeks ago, no Sunday supplement had been complete without her photograph. The two could do no more than gaze deep, eyes and eyes, for an instant as they met near the door, and squeeze instead of shaking hands. But all prudence was Jack's. He saw by Juliet's face that the tea drinkers were of no more importance to her than the chairs they sat in, and he could have kissed the face turned up affectionately to his, if he would. But he would not and he did not speak until he had her seated at their palm-screen table. "'Oh, Jack, it's great to see you,' Juliet said, when a too attentive waiter had finished taking their order. Tears suddenly welled to her eyes. She dived into a gorgeous gold mesh bag for a handkerchief, which was not there. "'Must be lost,' she sniffed. Hastily, Jack passed his across the table, and had a heart-piercing impression that he had lived through this scene before in happier days." But yes, of course. Often when he was a big boy and she was a little girl, she had come to him for consolation, and she had always lost her hanky. It was then, when he was about sixteen and she eleven, that he had first begun to love her, with a protecting love that had changed but never waned as the years passed. Now she belonged to another man, yet she still called to him across the gulf marriage had made for help and comfort. 
Jack Manners wondered what had happened to his red blood, that the pain he suffered was not more acute. I'm too sorry for the child to think of myself just now, he diagnosed his feelings with the picture of Pavoya in his mind. The reaction will come by and by. Juliet began at once to pour out her woes, forgetting to ask what had happened during Jack's visit to the house, what her husband had said, or whether the pearls had come. Pat doesn't love me, she broke out. That's why I'm miserable. I don't know how to live, and I wouldn't have believed it if anyone had told me except himself. You don't believe that Carbonaw says, Jack began to blunder, but Juliet cut him short. Not in words, of course, but I found a letter from that devil, Pavoya. It began, My best and dearest friend. Isn't that the same thing as telling me? The woman wouldn't write to him like that if he didn't encourage her. Jack longed to comfort the girl, but after what he had seen, he was at a loss for consoling words. How did you happen to find the letter? he temporized. Why, it had to do with the fuss about Pat's seal ring. "'the girl confessed. "'But first, I'd better explain. "'When I was being married, "'I made firm resolutions "'never to mention the name of Pavoya to Pat. "'Emmy West almost dared me to, "'and that alone was enough to show me "'it would be a silly mistake. "'But one night after we'd come to New York "'and we were settling down happily, "'we had an exciting, intimate sort of talk "'about our pasts. "'It was a beautiful talk, "'and I felt so sure of Pat.' I just couldn't resist asking if he'd ever loved Pavoya. He swore he hadn't. He'd only admired her a lot and flirted a little. It was nothing at all beside what he felt for me. He was so dear that I burst out about how nasty Emmy West and other people had been, how unhappy they'd made me more than once. Pat said, Damn Emmy West and all the cats. I loved that. And while the mood was on, I asked if he were willing to promise he'd not see Pavoya in New York. The minute those words were spoken, I saw a change in Pat. He said he couldn't make such a promise. There might be circumstances which would force him to see her. He wouldn't call on her, though. I had to be satisfied with that, and I was, almost. Till one day, when I teased him to lend me his seal ring. It's supposed to bring luck, you know so I thought I'd try it for bridge. I had to wear it on my thumb. It's too big for my fingers. I was playing that afternoon at Nancy Van Esten's. I had a Frenchwoman for a partner. I'd never met her before. Perhaps you knew her in Paris? A Comtesse de Saintville. Her husband is on some mission here. She's very impulsive woman, neurotic, I should think. I didn't feel drawn to her, because I'd heard she was a great pal of Lydia Pavoya's, that they went about together a lot. Suddenly, she noticed the ring. She squeaked, Why, I know that eye. I saw it on a letter the other day. Then she shut up and turned red. I could see her color through inches of powder. Of course, I guessed where she'd seen the letter, and there was only one person who would have sent it. Maybe I turned red, too. But I pretended to take no interest, and Nancy Van Esten said, Do, let's play bridge. I went home perfectly wretched. Pat thought I was ill. I didn't contradict him. I hadn't made up my mind what to do, but one thing I did, I kept the ring. Day before yesterday, he asked me for it. 
I knew what that meant. He wanted to write to her again, perhaps had a letter to answer. I showed quite plainly that I hated giving up the ring, but he didn't care. He would have it. The only sort of concession he made was to say he'd give it back the next day, after he'd finished a batch of correspondence. Well, the next day came, and he didn't give the ring back, though I saw he wasn't wearing it. You know how forgetful and careless he often is. I was sure he'd left the ring where his sealed his letters. He'd promised I should have it again. I suppose I had a right to take it, hadn't I? Juliet paused, her eyes dry now, challenging Jack. But he did not speak, and she hurried on to defend herself. I felt I had the right, she persisted without conviction. So yesterday I went into the room that used to be Dad's den. It's Pat's den now. He wasn't in. Did you think he would be? No. As a matter of fact, he'd gone to the bank. You know he works there. He's quite keen. He'd been late about getting off, so he'd started in a hurry. His desk wasn't locked. I don't know whether he ever locks it, because I never tried the drawers before. Anyhow, in the top drawer, a lot of letters were tumbled in. Letters he'd received and letters he'd written. Not in envelopes yet. All sorts of things were there in disorder. Fountain pens, sealing wax, and the ring. It was on an open letter that lay face up, a letter with a purple monogram of L.P. A perfume came up from the paper, a queer perfume, and the writing in purple ink was queer too. I saw the beginning I told you about, my best and dearest friend, in French. Oh, Jack, I thought I should have died. I almost wish I had. Nonsense, Jack scouted her grief. If the letter had had anything in it, Pat was ashamed to have you see. You may be sure even he wouldn't have been so careless. It wasn't exactly carelessness made him leave it, Juliet said sadly. It was trust in me. He didn't dream that I would do such a thing as read a letter of his. And I didn't read it. I didn't read another word, Jack. One side of me wanted to horribly. The other side was disgusted at the idea. The stronger side, it turned out. Good girl, cried Jack. Yes, I do think I was a saint, but virtue never has any reward except its own. I left the ring and the letter, but I felt half dead. I decided things couldn't go on as they were. I meant to speak to Pat when he came home. And did you? No, because he was ill, had a bad headache, the beginning of a cold, or else he was pretending. I can't trust him now. But he looked pale and odd, so I nobly left him alone till this morning. Then I went to the study and asked him to keep his promise about the ring. He pulled open the drawer. There it was in the letter as I saw it yesterday. That gave me my chance. I said, Pavoya has been writing to you. I see her monogram. And I pretended to read my best and dearest friend for the first time. By George! exclaimed Jack as Julia stopped for breath. "'By George, indeed!' she echoed. Pat accused me of being suspicious. I accused him of being untrue. We had a scene. I never thought I could say such things to Pat as I said. The way he took them made me worse. He just looked at me in silence, with his mouth shut like a steel trap. I suppose he hates me now. 
If he hadn't deserved every word I said, I should deserve to be hated for saying them. If he loved me, he would have boxed my ears. I half expected he would. But seeing him stand like a graven image, I turned to leave the room. He opened the door for me to go out and handed me the ring. You took it. I had to, or fling it in his face. I went straight off and wrote that letter to you, which I sealed with the ring. Then I sent it back to him by old Nick. I haven't seen Pat, of course, since he shut the door on me, and I don't know how we are going to behave to each other when we meet next. You will behave as if nothing had happened, of course, Jack said with decision. That's your advice? Certainly, and nothing has really happened, so far as you know. You have no proof that Claremanagh has broken his word about calling up Pavoya, and you've seen no letter from him to her. Someone else saw his seal. The most innocent words may have been under it, and you can't blame a man if a woman chooses to address him as her dearest friend. At least you've no right to do so. Don't you think I have? That's because you're a man, always ready to defend another man, and you don't understand women. Good heavens, I don't claim to, and I do not defend Claremanagh. I merely say, give him the benefit of the doubt. Only men and women in melodrama refuse to hear any defense from the suspected one. You asked for my advice. There it is, my child, whether it pleases you or not. Well, if you want me to be as cool and reasonable as you are, you've got to stand by me and see me through. I'm neither cool nor reasonable where you're concerned, Juliet. But you know I'll stand by you. You mean you'll not go to Long Island? You'll stay in New York and be our guest? I'll not go to Long Island at present. I'll stay in New York, but I won't be your guest. You're cruel, Jack. You're selfish, Juliet cried, as she had often unjustly cried before. You know better, he said. It is the outsider who sees the game. I ought to see it if I'm to help, and I wouldn't be an outsider if I were your guest. I've taken rooms at the Hotel Tarascon, only one street away from your house in Pat's. Juliet was silent for a moment. She had a hideous fear that, in her anger, she had flung her house, her money, her everything at Claremanagh's stone pale face. End of chapter 7. Chapter 8 of The Great Pearl Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elaine Conway, England. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 8 Juliet Breaks the Seals At 6.42, the Duchess of Claremanagh descended from a plebeian taxicab in front of her pretentious home. She had sent away her own car before going to the lawn, and although there was no wrong in her secret, she was weighed down by a sense of guilt she went to her room. This annoyed her, because did she know that the story about Monsieur Mayon was not a fake? 
it was quite possible that Pavoya had had the pearls for months and had only now given them up under cover of Mayan's name and his messenger on the Britannia. Juliet felt as Emmy West had expected her to feel. She hated the pearls. Whatever the truth was, she could take no pleasure in wearing them. All the same, she would wear them to show curiosity mongers that they were not in Lydia Pavoya's hands. She would wear them this very night. She and Claire Manor were engaged to dine at the Van Estens, and he had insisted in the morning that he would be well enough to go. Now, for all she could tell, he might have changed his mind and phoned that his cold would keep him at home. That excuse should not affect her, however. If he did not bring or send the pearls to her room, Simone should take him a note. In this, Juliet would say, not that Jack had told her, but that she supposed the messenger had arrived, and she would ask for the pearls to wear at Nancy's dinner party. Ask for them not as a favour, but because of the right she had as Duchess of Claremanagh. Madame is very late, were Simone's first words as Juliet flung open her bedroom door. I began to be anxious. Juliet glanced at her wristwatch at a French clock on the mantel. It was true, she was late. She had a new gown which there had been no time to try, and dinner was at eight. The girl's nerves, tensely strained all day, began to get out of control. She was jumpy and cross as Simone unfastened the many little hidden hooks and tiny lace buttonholes of the dawn cloud dress. Simone's hands were cold as ice, she complained. She hoped Simone wasn't sickening for something. Then it seemed that the quaint grey hat had spoiled her hair, which usually remained in perfect order throughout the day. It had to be let down, and being immensely long and thick, would take twenty minutes to arrange. Never, never had Simone been so awkward. Her fingers were all thumbs. For a few moments, in her need of haste and her nervous agitation, Juliet forgot the crying question of the pearls. For a knock at the door, which separated Pat's room from hers, set every pulse a-throb. He had come of his own accord. The blood rushed to her cheeks, and as she turned to the opening door, she looked gloriously beautiful. Her eyes met Claremanagh's with a desperate appeal of a loving, tortured soul, and he was disarmed. Could you let Simone go for a few minutes? he asked. I should ask to speak to you alone. A few seconds ago, Juliet had been fuming because every instant counted, but suddenly time ceased to be of importance. She didn't care how late she might be for Nancy's dinner. She didn't care if she were too late to go at all. 
Simone, who knew that things were not as they should be, expected her mistress coldly to refuse the Duke. She was intensely surprised to be sent away and told not to return for fifteen minutes. Sensitively jealous, the maid resented being sent out of the room for ce traiteur, as she mentally called Claremanagh. What a different scene there would be between husband and wife if she had portrayed to the Duchess a secret of the afternoon. To do so would satisfy her love of drama at a peak against the Duke. But Simone knew too well which side her bread was buttered. For one thing, the Duchess would not hear such a tale from a servant, even her trusted maid. The Duke might be sent packing by a, the heiress, but so would Simone. And for another thing, there must be no possible suspicion when the whisperer of the inner circle whispered next as to where the whisper had started. It would not do for Simone to know that Lyda Pavoya had called on the Duke of Clermanagh in his American wife's absence. The instant the French woman was out of the room, Pat came close to Juliet. He was dressed for dinner, all but coat and waistcoat. Juliet adored him thus, in his glittering white expanse of evening shirt. She had often told him so. You were not very kind to me this morning, he said, looking down at her, his face graver than she had ever seen it before this day. I may as well tell you I was a good deal hurt and angry too, though I haven't deserved too well of you, perhaps, but to see you as you are now makes me forget everything, except that we've been dear lovers and that you're the most beautiful girl on earth. My girl, you look just as you looked that evening at Harridge's, a million miles away, in old London, the night before our wedding, when I came in suddenly and you'd been washing your hair. Do you still hate your poor Romeo, Giulietta Mia, or do you feel like forgetting too and beginning all over again? I never hated you, not for a minute cried Juliet. I thought you hated me. Then you were jolly well mistaken, said Pat. They gazed at each other like two fences for a moment, then Juliet sprang up and held out her arms. He clasped her and kissed her hair, her face, her bare white neck. Something he held out in his hand, out of her sight behind his back, out of the floor. She started at the sound, and he let her go, laughing like his old self. History repeats, he exclaimed. Do you remember the little box I bought you with its blobby seals? Well, I have another sealed box for you tonight. You're to open, madame. Le plus belle chasse pour la plus belle dame. The pearls, Juliet breathed. The pearls, echoed Pat. The girl was thrilled. 
How could she have hated the things so angrily an hour ago? Her whole mood concerning them and concerning life had changed under Pat's kisses. She was going to love his pearls for his sake and the sake of their own romance. Why, the seals haven't been broken, she exclaimed as she took the box. No, I was determined you and you alone should do the breaking. But didn't the messenger insist? He did. Two can play at that game, though. What about the receipt? I should have thought he'd object. Object is a mild word. I convinced him in the end, however, if not that I was right anyhow, that I meant to have my own way. Darling, this is a happy moment for me, though I didn't expect to be happy tonight. Break the seals, open the box, and I shall know by your eyes what you think of its contents. With trembling fingers, Juliet obeyed. Each seal was so perfect, it seemed a shame to shatter the delicate eye in crimson wax. Laughing, she remarked that it was clear no thief had touched the box. Pat agreed and took from her the waterproof wrapping as she peeled it off. Within was a wooden box with a sliding lid, such as French jewellers use. Clermanagh had bought it himself at Mayen's request. He exclaimed to Juliet, and the seal, made also by his ring, which held the cover in place and had been pressed by his hand in the presence of his friend, the super moneylender. By Jove, I'm proud of it, he exclaimed. It's a work of art. I'd forgotten how good it was. The best seal I've ever done, and I've called myself an expert, a genie of the ring. It needed a pair of scissors to loosen the wax from the wood. Then Juliet slipped off the lid and looked from the box something wrapped in a handkerchief of fine Irish linen. You'll find my monogram on that rag, said Pat, apparently enjoying himself. Mayan would make me wrap the case with the pearls in something that belonged to me. Something that couldn't be copied easily by a thief. My hair wasn't quite long enough to do up a parcel in, and this was the only other thing we could think of. While he gaily explained, Juliet slowly, tantalising herself, unwound the linen folds. So doing, she smelt a faint fragrance of tobacco, perhaps special tobacco, which left its odour on all his clothes. It had seemed exquisitely exciting to the girl when she was engaged to Claire Manor, and it was more so than ever tonight when they were having this heavenly reconciliation, a reconciliation partly due to Jack's advice and his defence of the Duke. But it was odd that the scent should have lasted all three months. Juliet exclaimed over this to Pat, but he counted for it by reminding her how closely the handkerchief had been shut up in the box. At last she was looking at the jewel case, which had once belonged to the love-sick Tsarina. 
It was of white velvet, creamy now with age, and stamped with crowns in gold, pathetically and appropriately dimmed. The catch was curious and beautiful, a big cabochon ruby shaped like a heart. Juliet pushed it and lifted the satin lid. There, on the cushion, lay the long rope of pearls, curled up like a snake with a curious diamond clasp for its head. The girl had expected to cry out in amazed admiration at sight of the wonderful thing. Clemanus, you lamb, she had expected to be literally dazzled. But instead, she suffered a shock of disappointment. With all the will in the world to be pleased and grateful, she was dumb. She could think of nothing to say, and she tingled with embarrassment under her husband's eyes. Well, darling, he said, after a few seconds of waiting, don't the poor pearls come up to your hopes? Oh, yes, she forced herself to answer. Aren't they big? Aren't they blue? I never saw any so-called blue pearls, so really blue as these. All the same, you're disappointed, Pat judged, his eyes on her face. Don't you think by this time I know your tone and your expressions? Out with it, Jewel. Bless you. I shan't be hurt. I didn't make the pearls, you know, and you're a spoiled pet of fortune, brought up from your babyhood to play with better toys than these. Could have had pearls as big as plums in a rope to your feet if you'd wanted them, only your taste was too good. What's the matter with these baubles? Why, girl hesitated, if I must say what I think you know I'm supposed to be a bit of an expert, in my little amateur way, it seems to me that these pearls aren't as lustrous as they ought to be. Perhaps they're sick, they may need seawater or something, yet they haven't the symptoms of dying pearls. They haven't lost their colour. They've got almost too much to look real. They're real enough. Of course they must be. And the clasp is charming, isn't it? An eye made of a blue sapphire set in white diamonds, rimmed with tiny black ones, an eye like the design of your seal. Except that this one looks to the right and... To the right? Pat caught the words from her mouth. Impossible! Juliet stared. But it does. You may see for yourself. Good God! There was horror in his voice. Juliet could not understand. This scene began to feel like a queer dream. What is the matter? She asked. Give me the thing. She handed him the rope. He glared at the clasp as if the diamond and sapphire eye were a miniature head of Medusa. Then he turned to her with a dazed expression, still in silence. You frighten me she faltered you you say your pearls are always cold false ones can be warmish besides the surface feels different and even if the weight is right test these pat said the girl took back the gleaming blue rope and lifted the largest pearls to her lips they are false she gasped after an instant's pause you are sure yes End of chapter 8
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elaine Conway, England. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 9 The Eye That Looked to the Right. The two stared at each other in silence, and both were pale. Juliet's mind was confused. The pearl's false. She tried to hammer the words into her brain, and understood fully what the thing would mean for her and Pat. She thought of Louis Mayen, the super moneylender, who had kept the pearls for months, and supposed that Clem Manor also must be thinking of him. What a treacherous, horrible man, she broke out at last. The Duke stared, almost stupidly, if he could be stupid. Who is treacherous? Horrible? he stammered. Why, your friend Mayon, of course, she explained. My poor Pat. Comprehension dawned in Claremanagh's eyes. Oh, Mayon had nothing to do with this. He assured her. Who else then? Juliet persisted. The purser on the ship who had the box in his safe coming over? But he didn't have the seal. Mayen had it. He or his messenger could. Put that idea out of your head, my darling, urged Clemana. Mayen had the seal. It's on the cards that De Facal, his messenger, might have stolen it or had an imitation one made, uh, but neither of them had the... Abruptly, the Duke stopped. He had been talking fast and eagerly, and he pulled himself up so short that it was as if he stumbled. Juliet had been examining the quaint clasp of the false pearls, which he still had in her hand, but that shocked pause brought her eyes to her husband's face. It had been pale and strained, but now there was a look upon it of physical suffering. You've thought of the one who did it, she cried. Someone you care for. By an intense effort, Claire Manor seemed to withdraw all expression from his face. It became dull, like a handsome mask. I wished I had thought of anyone, he said. No such luck. Juliet had pitied him unselfishly at first, for after all the pearls were his, not hers, and the loss, sentimental and material, would be very great if the Tsarina's pearls were gone. But his look, his changed tone, and the cloud that seemed to rise between them, like a mist roused a vague resentment. She felt as if she had tried to comfort him, and he had pushed her away. Pat, she exclaimed sharply, it's no use your trying to put me off. You have thought who changed the pearls, or anyhow, of the person who might have done it. You've simply got to tell me. I have a right to know. My dear child, he protested, you do spring to the wildest conclusions. Juliet's anger rose. The whole thing is wild. Only wild conclusions are of any use. If you don't want me to try and help you, I won't. But I can't prevent myself from seeing one thing that perhaps you don't see yet. 
If the real thief isn't soon found and this story gets out, there will be some horrid gossip about you. Clem Manor flushed scarlet. I do see, he said. At least I see what you're hinting at. If I purloin my own pearls and secretly sell them, while getting credit at the same time for giving them to my wife, I bring off a very neat coup. That's what you mean, isn't it? The thing sounded so crudely villainous when put into words that Juliet was ashamed. But there was a fierce light in the eyes, which until today had never looked at her except in love, or seeming love. Juliet would not let her husband fancy for an instant that he had made her flinch. Yes, that's what I mean, she answered. One's dear friends are capable of any insinuation, and even those dearer and nearer than friends. Pat flung at her. Oh, I realize that I'm the classic target, a poor Irish peer, the poorest of the lot, who dares to marry America's richest girl. No beastly trick too vile to believe of him. Of course, a blighter like that couldn't have married the girl for love. To hear the words spoken, even in bitterest sarcasm, was like the prick of a knife. Juliet had pushed them out of her own mind so often that it was the sharpest anguish to have them thrust into it by Pat's adored lips. If he loved her, she could not see how it was possible for him to speak like that. In thinking this, she pitied herself desperately and forgot her own words which had lashed him to retaliation. She forgot, too, how that very morning her lips had flung this very taunt. She had shown him sharply how much her own she considered her fortune, her house, and everything he shared as her husband. It seemed to her that now he was inadvertently confessing, rather than sneering at possible accusers. Juliet defended her own attractions pitifully, yet there was nothing pitiful in her look. She loomed tall and aggressive and cruelly beautiful, with blazing eyes and cheeks. A great many men have told me they loved me, and that no one could help loving me for myself. But I never believed any of them till I met you, and then I was a conceited fool to think you could care for me after Lida Pavoya. Pat started as if she had boxed his ears, and Juliet too was surprised. She had not meant to say that. The thing had said itself. For an instant his eyes flamed, then their fire died out and left them cold. He looked disgusted. I told you once that I had never loved Mademoiselle Pavoya, he said. One isn't used to having one's word doubted. It's rather humiliating to have it happen with one's own wife. But putting that aside, why not keep to the point? I bring up the lady's name when we are discussing quite a different affair. The affair of these pearls. Out of Claire Manor's coldness, a demon was born and flew straight to Juliet's heart. For an instant she lost all sense of her own love for her husband. She hated him and wished to hurt him as much as she could, because it seemed that he had gone out of his way to hurt her. She tingled all over with indignant humiliation. It was as if Pat had said, I happen to be your husband, but you are only a commoner. 
with no traditions of fine breeding behind you, while I am a man whose ancestors might have had yours for servants. No wonder you have no intuitive idea of decent decorum. Is it a different affair, she cried, or is it one single affair, the affair of Lyda, Pavoya, and your pearls? Again the words had spoken themselves, but a flare of enlightenment came with them. Surely something had made her speak, something which knew what she hadn't thought of till this moment, that Lyda Pavoya had taken the pearls. How she could possibly have got them, if they had ever been in Louis Mayon's keeping, Juliet could not see. She had them, that was clear, and the fact would account for Pat's sudden breaking off of a sentence. He had begun to defend Mayon and de Facal, but neither of them had that, he had said, and stopped short, with an awful look on his face. The look of seeing something which no one else must be allowed to see. What thing was there that Mayan and his messenger had not, which another person might have had? A thing which would make theft possible? A person who must be protected at any price? Juliet could not guess yet what the thing might be, but the second guess was all too easy. This time the Duke showed no sign of surprise therefore he was not surprised. He merely looked more disgusted than before, which made his lack of love for his wife and his wish to defend the Polish dancer more evident to Juliet's racked mind. When I gave you my word about not loving Mademoiselle Pavoya, I gave it also about the pearls, Clemana said. I told you then that she had never had them. I can only repeat the statement since you seem to have forgotten. I have forgotten nothing, cried Juliet. It's a man's code of honour, I suppose, to defend a woman, no matter how. But if that's not so, if you don't care enough for Lyda Pavoya to lie for her to your wife, I'd like to know how you'll answer this question. Do you swear that you don't suspect her of somehow stealing the real pearls and putting imitation ones in their place? Clemana's face changed. He had been frankly, though coldly, furious. Now he looked stricken. I would lie for no one on earth except for you, and then only to save your life, he said. It's an insult from you to me to ask that I should swear such a thing. Very well, then. Your simple word is enough, said Juliet. Give it that you don't think Pavoya has the pearls. Clermana was silent, his eyes upon her, and in that silence, short as it was, Juliet heard a tiny voice speak. It whispered, the thing Pavoya had, which the others didn't have, was a copy. She had a copy of the pearls. I could not believe such a thing, the Duke answered. I have known Mademoiselle Pavoya for years. She is a good woman. Juliet laughed, and laughing flung the false pearls on the floor. A good woman, you have original ideas. I've heard a lot of things about her from a lot of people, but never that before. Because only malicious speeches are amusing. They are the ones a lot of people, the lot we know, mostly make. Phew, sneered Juliet. I see the whole thing now. 
except how she got the real pearls. But this imitation rope she had. You can't face me and say she hadn't. I'll say nothing more on the subject while you're in this mood, returned Claremanagh. All right, if you think prevarication more honourable than lying straight out, panted Juliet, holding down sobs. But you won't do her any good with me, or yourself, either. You were scared blue when I said the eye of the class looked to the right instead of to the left, like the eye on your seal ring. You'd hardly believe it till you had to. Then the whole thing grew clear to you, as it's grown for me now. This copy existed. The class was made the wrong way, by mistake or on purpose. As soon as I spoke, you knew what had happened. Your first thought, as soon as you could think, was to save that woman. But you shan't save her. I... Do you intend to make a scandal of this beastly business? The Duke cut her short with violence. If you do, you will repent it all your life. Juliet quivered. I don't care about my life now, she said. You spoilt it. You couldn't punish me any more than you've punished me already for loving and trusting you. So it doesn't matter what I... It matters immensely, he broke in again. You are cruel to yourself, to me, to a woman who has never injured you. When I say that you repent making a scandal, I don't mean because I try to punish you. My God, no. You'll repent because you will be doing a great injustice which can't possibly be repaired. And at heart, when you're true to yourself, you are just. It's no use your trying to appeal to my sense of justice, Juliet warned him. That's the last thing for you to bring up. He looked at her very sadly, very strangely. It seemed to his wife as if anger were dying out, and a great sorrow had taken its place. But that was only his cleverness. His deadly Irish cleverness, of course. What, then, do you intend to do? he asked. Once more confusion fogged the girl's brain. A desolate confusion like chaos after ordered beauty. The end of all joy, all loveliness. I don't know yet, she said dully. I shall have to think. As Juliet spoke, fingers tapped lightly on the door. Simone's fingers, no doubt. Her fifteen minutes of banishment had passed. Come in, Juliet spoke mechanically, and if she wished to withdraw the words, it was too late. The French woman opened the door. Madame la Duchesse is ready for me to finish dressing her? she asked. Vaguely, it struck Juliet that Simone's voice was not quite natural. She had probably been listening at the keyhole, and had heard everything. But on second thoughts, what did it matter? Juliet told herself miserably that nothing could be the same as it had been. She could not go on after this, living with Pat as his wife. All the world would soon know that there was trouble between them, and Simone's knowing first of little importance. She was only a servant, and luckily a loyal and discreet servant. As Juliet paused a second before speaking, Claremanagh answered for her. 
The Duchess is feeling very tired, and as you know, I'm not well. We've about decided to telephone that we can't go out, he said. But not quite decided, his wife amended. I think that if you prefer to stay at home, I shall go and make your excuses in person. Pat showed surprise. He had taken it completely for granted that she would not dream of dining at the Van Estens. No, he decided, after an instant's thought. If you are equal to it, so am I. He's afraid to trust me alone, Juliet told herself, for fear I shall say something. Very well, she said aloud. You better hurry up and get ready then, we're late as it is. Pat did not answer. Without another word or look, he went to his room and shut the door between. Evidently, Nixon had not been with his master tonight. Juliet wondered where the man was, and with a bitter sense of amusement, pictured old Nick's emotions if she began a suit for divorce against the Duke. She had always liked the queer fellow, who had been as fine a soldier, Pat said, as he was an indifferent valet, had liked him partly because of his thrilled admiration of her. Deeply as he adored her at present, however, that love was nothing beside what he felt for the Duke. He made Juliet a shade more miserable than before to know that the worshipping Nick would soon cease to worship. So far she had kept back her tears, but they were becoming irrepressible, and Simone exclaimed, Oh, the wonderful pearls! Madame la Duchesse has let them fall on the floor. The current of Juliet's thoughts changed instantly, and the brimming tears dried their souls. The wonderful pearls, she repeated, with infinite bitterness, sure as she was that Simone had been at the keyhole, with a look of pained astonishment on the woman's face, made her wonder if, after all, Simone had heard everything. Perhaps she had caught parts only of the conversation, and had been trying to find out for sure whether she had heard aright. Juliet had perfect trust in Simone, so far as discretion was concerned, but it was within her estimate of the maid's character that she should eavesdrop. People of her class did that sort of thing, and thought it no harm. It made the drama of their lives. Simone would keep her knowledge or her suspicion to herself. Of course, until whatever was fated to happen had happened. Then, no doubt, she would tell her friends that she'd known all along. Still, Juliet suddenly disliked the thought of being pitied, even by her maid. Simone was aware that her mistress had looked forward to getting the pearls. It was humiliating that she should have instead a mere string of wax or fish scale beads. Simone had heard it couldn't be helped. If she hadn't, however, she should remain in ignorance. They're not quite as glorious as I expected them to be, Juliet remarked. I suppose it's like that with everything in life. But they are very beautiful ventured Simone with a privileged air of the old and trusted servant, which he put on like a sort of chain armour at times. Will Madame la Duchesse wear them tonight? 
Juliet was taken aback. She had, of course, intended to wear the Tsarina pearls. She had told herself that she would do so, if only that everyone should see that she, not Pavoya, had them. But since discovering the truth about them, why, it had not occurred to her that she would wear the things. Rather would she have thrown them into the fire. Suddenly, however, she thought she saw the matter from another point of view. Suppose she did appear wearing the rope. To do so would give her time to think, and it would be interesting to see Pat's face when he caught sight of them. Oh, yes, I'll wear the pearls, she said. You know perfectly well I had this shot blue and silver tissue made on purpose to go with them. Why shouldn't I wear them, Simone? Simone did not answer, because she understood that no answer was expected. She had overheard something, but it was not her fault that she had not overheard all. Unfortunately for her, the room was large, and the Duke and Duchess had stood talking at a good distance from the door. The manner of her mistress, however, filled up several aching gaps in Simone's curiosity, and putting together what she knew and what she surmised, the maid changed her mind as to her own wisest course of conduct. She had intended to sacrifice inclination to prudence, and say nothing to the Duchess about the Polish dancer's visit that afternoon. Now she decided that it would be best to mention it. How to work up to the subject was the only doubt on that score left in her mind. Uh, Madame la Duchesse is merveilleuse et insolent, she cried, as she held the rope of big blue beads over Juliet's head and let it fall gently upon the swan's down whiteness of the bare neck. Madame was perfect as a girl. Now she goes beyond perfection. Other women are charming, the beautiful Pole, Mademoiselle Pavoya, for instance, but Juliet darted upon her a piercing, angry glance. What makes you think or speak of Pavoya just now? She sharply questions. Oh, I hardly know, except that she is of a great beauty and, in her way, of a strange attraction. And then also, as no doubt Togo told Madame la Duchesse, la Pavoya called today. Called today? echoed Juliet. You don't mean here? But yes, Madame. Did not Madame know? I was about to go out with the bulldog. Being permitted to pass down by the front stairs, I saw the lady arrive. To be sure, she had on a thick embroidered veil through which, perhaps, many people would not recognize the most famous features. But my eyes are sharp, and then her figure. There are not two such, though to my taste, that of Madame la Duchesse is more alluring, more human. The dancer is a mere sprite. I said to myself, it must be about the charity performance for the Armenians that she is here to consult with my mistress. As she thus interpreted her own impressions, Simone busied herself in getting Juliet's ermine cloak, which previously she had laid ready on the bed. Sometimes, when the Claremanners were going out together in the evening, the Duke came in and took his wife's coat from Simone, 
slipping it in a leisurely and loving way over the white arms, as if he never tired of touching the adorable creature who belonged to him. But Simone did not think he would come to perform that office tonight, and besides, she wanted an excuse to escape from her mistress's great, wide, open blue eyes. The maid had taken a tactful way of explaining the dancers, possible motive for calling, because if she dared to accuse the Duke, by a hint, the Duchess would be bound to stop her. Juliet was struck dumb for a moment. She would not have thought, after what had passed between her and Pat, that she could be surprised by anything concerning him and Pavoya, but now she knew that she could be astounded. Pavoya had called. Tove had let her in. The traitor, bribed by Claremanagh, who had sunk low enough, even for that. Still, had Togo let the woman in? It was easy to make sure. A pity I was out, Juliet said. I suppose she went away when she heard that. No, madame, she came in, replied Simone with the innocence of a child. I do not know how long she stayed. Monsieur le Duc would tell madame that it was to his study that Togo took her. Oh, very well. I can ask him what message he left. Juliet promptly cut short this confidence. She had no wish to learn more and her suppression of Simone was no triumph of honour over curiosity. She felt a sick, languid repulsion against the whole subject, for she knew the worst now, and any further information would be a kind of horrid anticlimax. Oh, Pat, Pat, her heart mourned, how has my idol fallen? And he talked so nobly about never lying. That night, when the Duke and Duchess of Clermanagh came into their box in time for the second act of Rigoletto, everyone in the know said, Look, she's got the Tsarina pearls at last. And Clermanagh wondered at her. He wondered terribly, abysmally, why, after their scene together and her threats, she had worn the abominable things. He had wondered about that ever since, the ermine cloak removed, he had seen the blue beads on her neck at the Van Estans. He ought, perhaps, to have rejoiced at the sight, for she could not wear a rope of imitation pearls, and accuse Lyda Pavoya of stealing the real ones. That would be to punish him less severely than herself. Yet Pat was uneasy, as well as unhappy. The only thing he understood clearly in all the hideous affair was that he understood Juliet not at all. He asked himself over and over again a question he could not, would not ask her. What, in God's name, she intended to do next? All the way home, when at length they were again alone together in their brilliantly lit limousine, she did not utter one word, nor at once look at him. She sat quite still, pretending to be asleep. But Claremanagh knew that he was no wider awake than she. A dozen times he longed to speak, but there are some things a man cannot do. She seemed to have barricaded herself behind a transparent wall, through which he could see, not yet touch, her, as if she had been a lovely statuette under a glass case. 
At the house she sprang past him quickly, without accepting his help to alight, and ran up the two or three marble steps. Claremanagh had his key, but before he could use it, Juliet pressed the electric bell, and Togo appeared. The girl did not look back at her husband to see whether he meant to follow, and suddenly he did not mean to do so. He hadn't been sure at first what he would do, but he could not bear to have her shut the door of her room upon him, as she surely would. With a gesture he signed to Togo that he was not coming in. The car waited. He said to the chauffeur in the pleasant, courteous tone which won the affection of servants, I shan't want you, thanks. In that mood he could not make use of Juliet's car. He preferred the poor independence of his own feet, even while he laughed at himself, bitterly for so petty a revolt. He walked to the Grumblers, that one of his several clubs at which he was likely to meet a man with whom he had business, business important enough to remember even now. I won't keep the beastly money on me any longer, he thought. The fellow should have it tonight. End of chapter 9「10 of the Great Pearl Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rahul The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter Number 10 The House in a Crosstown Street If Simone had not already telephoned to the private office of the Inner Circle's editor, she might have changed her mind about going there that night. She was less superstitious and of harder mental fiber than most Frenchwomen of the South and of her class. But after the quarrel between the Duke and Duchess, something within her shrank from keeping the secret appointment she had made. It was not that she was suddenly conscience-stricken or that she thought her mistress had suffered enough without having the skeleton in the cupboard dangle in front of the public. The woman was incapable of any real love save self-love, but she liked Juliet and would have inflicted upon her no great gratuitous pain. The pain to be inflicted in this instance, however, as well as other instances in the past, was not gratuitous. Simone would be magnificently paid for inflicting it, and so far as Juliet was concerned, she could earn the reward without a qualm. It was for herself that she hesitated, and she did not quite know why. That was the trouble. If she had known, she could have argued out the two sides of the matter and for and against. But it was a vague sort of presentiment she felt that she would somehow be sorry if she gave this story to the paper she served, and it might not be a proper presentiment at all, but only a form of indigestion. She had, she too vividly recalled, taken at luncheon three helpings of lobster salad, a dish which never agreed with her. Besides, she was naturally excited over her part in the events of the day and that she had telephoned the office. She had camouflaged her message, lest it should be overheard, but what she said would inform the editor that she had up her sleeve 
the best tidbit he had ever gotten from her. Tomorrow afternoon, the Inner Circle, a weekly publication, would be on sale, and the Whisperer's columns were always kept back till the latest possible moment, on account of just morsels dropping in. But tonight, the blast paragraphs were to be held up expressly for Simone almost beyond the time limit. She was bound to make good, or she would never be trusted again. And if the editor was satisfied, she was to receive exactly five times the sum she got for more or less valuable items supplied each week. With a vague, uneasy presentiment in one scale and five hundred dollars in the other, notes not check. The inner circle never paid checks for whisperer stuff. The presentiment was outweighed. Simone had, in any case, a dinner engagement with nothing sort of that would have induced her to miss, and the Duchess had not been quiet ten minutes when she flew out to keep it. She said nothing to her dinner companion, however, about the later appointment, and excused herself early on the plea that it would be like Madame to flash in at home, clamouring for her maid between Mrs. Van Esten's party and the opera, if only for a minute. Certainly, it was more than a minute that Simone remained at the firehouse after being brought back after dinner in the taxi. At the end of that time, she was out again and on her way to the office of the inner circle. About this place, there was always something mysterious even to Simone's practical and unimaginative mind, and the private office of the editor was the heart of the mystery, the inner circle of the inner circle. For years, she had been a highly paid contributor to the scandalous little paper, ever since she had entered her first smart situation in New York, and had been approved by a man whose outward business was straightforward, reporting for the society columns of a reputable daily. When in town, Simone had been in the habit of calling in person instead of trusting to the post, and since her value had become recognized, she was invariably received by the editor himself in that very private sanctuary of his. Yet to this day, she had never seen his face and did not know his real name. Mr. Jones will speak to you, was the message telephoned down from the regions above to the amateurish little reception room where an elderly, mild-faced lady in old-fashioned dress received the visitors and tapped a typewriter. But the Frenchwoman was sure that outside the office, His Excellency was other than Mr. Jones, as sure as that Simone Amarant was at home, Simonetta Amaranti. The editor's private office was divided practically into two by means of a fixed screen or partition of match boarding so high that even if an enterprising caller jumped onto a chair, he or she could not see what lay on the other side. There was no door on the screen, therefore no danger existed that the editor could be rushed. Against the partition was placed a table and a chair of the ordinary office furniture type, and the other decoration there was none. On the table were writing materials and a small house telephone. By means of this instrument, one spoke to the presence on the other side, and he spoke in return. That it was always the same presence, Simone knew by the voice. It was peculiar, mincing, and rather effeminate. 
and though she shrewdly attributed this quality to disguise, it could not well have been initiated by an understudy. This happened to be the first time Simone had ever been to the office at night. It was in a cross-town street within possible walking distance of the firehouse and this was luck for her as she would have taken a taxi with great reluctance. This errand of hers was the most ticklish that she had ever carried out and she could not afford to leave the least detail to chance in case a hue and cry should be raised by the Clermanagh's. Twenty minutes brisk walk brought her to the door of what had been once a private house and was now given up to the officers. The inner circle occupied the two lower floors and above was a quiet well-known though not very fashionable manicurist, Madame Vino. Still higher, the fourth and the top floor was tenanted by a wig maker who widely advertised a hair dye golden glints and once when a wave of rage against the whisperer swept New York, it was rumored that both these businesses were secretly owned by the inner circle. No proof was obtainable. However, and since then, several new managers had come and gone, both for Madame Vino and Golden Glints. Tonight, the whole house front looked so darkly brooding to Simone's worried eyes that she could have believed anything of it, especially anything that was hideous and evil. There were no lights in the windows and the front door, always open by the day, was closed. But the voice which answered Simone's call on the phone that afternoon had warned her that this would be so and had told her what to do. Following instructions, she descended the steps to her basement door and touched an electric bell above which on a small brass plate was the word janitor. Two or three minutes passed and brought no answer, but suddenly, as Simone was about to ring again, the door opened on a chain. What do you want? A woman's voice demanded through the aperture. To see the editor of the inner circle, replied Simone. I have an appointment with him. Oh, what's your name? Questioned the voice. Mademoiselle Simone Amarante. The chain fell and the door opened as if the Frenchwoman challenged had given the countersign. Simone squeezed through the small space allowed her and the door instantly shut. It was dark in the basement passage except for the light that came from a room at the back. The woman, the janitor's wife perhaps, had a little knitted shawl over her head as thought she was suffering from neuralgia. Simone could not see what she was like, whether old or young, except that her silhouette loomed tall and slender against the dim light. Can you find your way up? asked the voice. Yes, said Simone. I was told it would be dark and that I must bring an electric torch I have brought it. Very well, go up and knock when you come to the door. Mr. Jones is expecting you. Simone switched on the flame of her torch and went up. End of chapter. Recording by Rahul. Chapter 11 of The Great Pearl Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain.
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Siobhan McKelpin. Chapter 11 In Jack's Private Sitting Room Next morning, Jack Manners was hideously jerked from sleep before eight by the jangle of a telephone bell close to his bed. In self-defense, he reached out and grabbed the receiver in haste to stop the din. Hello, his voice said, but his tone said, damn. And he was astounded when Juliet answered. Juliet, phoning at this hour? Juliet, who had been at the opera last night, as he happened to know, and who had always loved her beauty sleep, as a young bird loves its nest. I'm so sorry to disturb you, Jack, she was saying. I suppose you were fast asleep, and you'll wish you hadn't told me you were going to stop at the Terrasone. But I can't help it. Do you mind getting up and dressed in a hurry, and letting me come round to see you? Shan't I call you at your house instead, Jack suggested, wide awake now. No, I must come to you. Have you a private sitting room? I haven't. Then take one at once, and be ready to receive me in it. Will half an hour be too soon for you? Not a bit, Jack assured her. He spoke with the warmth of affection and felt it, but that was all he felt. The reaction he'd been expecting yesterday hadn't come yet. He phoned downstairs that he wanted a private sitting room and breakfast for two with flowers on the table in half an hour. Then he plunged into his bath, and as he shaved and dressed with the haste that knows how not to waste a single step or gesture, this was characteristic of him, he wondered, as he had wondered yesterday, about himself and Juliet. Funny how he had dreaded meeting her married, for fear the boiling lava should break through the cooled crust. And the lava hadn't broken through. He couldn't even feel it boil. Juliet had her old sweetness and charm, even more. She was prettier than ever, too. He still loved her, of course. Only the love didn't hurt like a wound with someone twisting a knife in it, as it had hurt when she told him she was engaged, and on the day of her wedding. There was just a gentle, rather interesting pain, like the pain of remembering a beautiful dream which had broken off in the mist. And it was no sharper this morning than when she had came to tea with him yesterday. Just to test himself, he had gone to the opera and stood up, because there wasn't a seat to be had, in order to have Juliet burst upon him in all her glory, wearing the pearls and perhaps beaming with the recovered happiness at Clarinamay's side. Well, she had come late into her box and made a sensation. Everyone had stared at her, and the pearls, through leveled glasses. She had been just as glorious as he'd expected, though she hadn't exactly beamed. And he, Jack, had not turned a hair. He hardly knew whether to attribute this to his superhuman self-control, or the strong moral barrier set up between his thoughts and his love by her marriage. Anyhow, there it was. He was enduring no cavalry, and his heart played none of the tricks it would have played once at being awakened by Juliet's voice, with the request for a meeting alone with him. All he felt was sympathetic interest, and a fear that the girl was coming to say she'd made a hash of things in spite of his advice. In precisely twenty-five minutes after the first call of the telephone bell in his ear, he was dressed and criticizing the arrangement of La France roses on the table in its new sitting room. Sharp on the half hour, again came the jangling call. 
Lady for you, sir. Says she's your cousin, and it's not necessary to give her name. You're expecting her. Quite right, Manners answered. Send her up at once. I'll meet her at the lift. Which he did, and got rather a shock at seeing Juliet in all black, even a black veil. So I did. So I do. That's the reason I'm wearing them today, the girl almost breathlessly explained. I suppose you'll think it's melodramatic of me, and maybe it is, though I don't feel so. I wanted to put on mourning. Good heavens, what for? My happiness. If she had been less beautiful, that announcement certainly would have sounded a melodramatic note, or else it would have been funny. But she was so white, so big-eyed, so like a broken lily in her black draperies, that Jack's heart yearned over her. She leaned to him wistfully, as they stood just inside the closed door, her hands in his, and the man knew suddenly that it would be perfectly safe and good for him to take her in his arms. He held them out, having dropped her hands, and the girl flung herself on his breast as she used to do when she was ten. If a finger had been cut or a knee bruised, the next moment she was crying on his shoulder as though her heart would break, her slim young body an incarnate sob as it heaved and shook in his clasp. Oh, Jack, you're the only one I have in this world now, she gasped. Nonsense, nonsense, child. You've got Claire Nemay. You'll always have him. He soothed her. This is some passing trouble. It will blow over. Tell me about it. But no, first you must have breakfast. You haven't had a bite or sup, I'll bet. History repeated itself. Again, his handkerchief was out. He wiped her eyes with it. He mopped them. How long and dark her lashes were, wet and clinging together. He bent over her and kissed her forehead. It was hot, and she smelled like a ripe, delicious peach. But his pulses hardly tingled. He was too sorry for her, however, to analyze his own feelings much, or even think of himself. Although after years, the adored one, married and belonging to another man, was in his arms. Of course she hadn't had breakfast, she said. She didn't want breakfast. The very idea of it made her sick. She had been awake all night and had been dressed without a maid to help her since seven. She was just one bunch of raw, aching nerves. But somehow Jack was able to soothe her a little, as Pat, at his best, could never have done, because she loved him too wildly. Jack got her to the sofa, her back to the door, so that the waiter bustling in with breakfast should not see the tear-stained face. Soon there were cushions behind her shoulders, the blinds were pulled half down, and there was a cool, dewy rose in her hand. Then, when the waiter had gone, she was sipping hot coffee with cream in it, and on one knee behind the sofa, Jack was feeding her with bits of toasted and buttered roll. In spite of herself, Juliet felt better. She didn't want to feel better, but she did, and she had drunk nearly a cupful of coffee before Jack had let her begin to talk. Having begun, however, she told him everything. It all came out with a rush, and Jack listened in silence. Not once did he interrupt, and, fast as she spoke, she could not control her speech to slowness. She thought that he was judging, classifying each incident, considering how one bore upon another. 
he did not give away his own secret of yesterday, that he had seen Lyda Pavoya go into the house, and that he had known she must be hidden somewhere in the room while he and Dee Pascal were in Clarnamay's study. There was nothing to be gained by telling the poor girl that. She might even be aggravated by the additional proof against Pavoya into accusing the woman as a thief. And the more he thought, the more inclined he was to advise against an open scandal. So you see why I have to put on mourning for my dead happiness, Juliet finished. You said that this was passing trouble, but you can't say that now, can you? Yes, I can and I do, Jack maintained stoutly, for her sake wholly, not for Clarnamay's. He began to believe in his heart that this generous, loving girl had been badly let down between the Duke and the Polish dancer. Nevertheless, it was still only fair to give Pat, as Juliet called him, benefit of the doubt, just as he had urged yesterday. You say yourself that, uh, judging from his manner where the box was opened, when you spoke about the clasp, Clarnamay was as surprised as you were about the false pearls being there. Well, yes, of course I don't accuse him of stealing the real ones himself, as he so cruelly pretended I did. But he must have had a copy made for Pavoya. Probably she thought at first that she had the true pearls. And when she found out she'd been tricked, she made up her mind to turn the tables on Pat. Or else she saw a way to humble me, his wife. Yes, that must be it. I'm glad. Glad I wore this horrible imitation rope last night. I hardly know why I did it, unless it was for a kind of bluff. But I see now, it was more like inspiration. If I chose to stick to it that I have the real pearls, she can't get much fun out of wearing them, can she? People will believe me instead of her if it comes to open defiance. It won't come to that from Pavoya, and it oughtn't to from you, I think, said Jack. My theory is rather different from yours. Well, what is it, for heaven's sake? It's rather scrappy as yet, but so far, I should think Pavoya might have been working in a much more subtle way than you suppose. I knew that once, long ago, and again later, there was a plot to steal the pearls. Apparently, both times it got up by Russians, and you know they were royal pearls, given by the Tsarina of his day to Clarnamay's great-great-grandfather. Pavoya's a Pole, I believe, but she may be in Russian pay or under Bolshevik influence. It certainly looks on circumstantial evidence as if she'd somehow got hold of the pearls, either in Paris through Louis Mayen, unknown to his messenger, or else yesterday by some amazing sleight of hand while she was in Clarnamay's study. If she could have worried out of him the combination of the safe, and if by some excuse she induced him to leave her in the room alone after De Fiscal delivered up the box... We might assume she came at the time on purpose, perhaps not by Pat's invitation. Uh, she might have managed the job. Well, but that's about as far as my mind has worked so far. Except that Clarnamay can't be accepted to give the woman away so long as he isn't dead sure she's guilty, or which he hopes against hope that she isn't. He wouldn't accuse her, or have her accused if he could help it, even to save himself from your suspicions, which much make him writhe. Are you standing up for him? Julian asked quickly. No, not especially. But you've done him an injustice in one detail to begin with. He did not have a copy of the Serena Pearls made for Pavoya. He didn't have it made at all. It was done before his day, 
done by your mother's order. He told me the story in Paris, where the everlasting subject was you, you and the pearls. It seems that the Duchess, your pet's mother, soon after her marriage received an anonymous letter warning her of a plot to steal the Tsarina pearls. It was signed, A Well-Wisher, and the writing looked foreign, but not ill-spelt or uneducated. There was a hint that the plan was Russian, and the thieves would not be ordinary thieves. Immediately after, the Duchess ordered a London jeweler to copy the rope, clasp and all. When it was ready, she had the real thing locked up in the bank. The copy was so good that no one except an expert could tell the difference. But there had been one mistake. The eye of the design in the clasp looked the wrong way, to the right instead of the left. However, hardly anyone knew which way the original eye turned, so the mistake didn't matter much, and the family didn't trouble to have it rectified. Uh, that was a long time ago. But years after, there came another warning, and when it was compared to the first, the handwriting appeared to be the same. This time, the letter was addressed to Claire Nemey, who had come of age and had lent the pearls to some charitable exhibition. Russia will try again to get back her own. Take care, the letter said, or something like that. I've forgotten the precise words Pat used, and uh, it was signed, as before, a well-wisher. Now you see what my mind's working on. I do see, said Juliet. Of course, in a way you make things look better for Pat. At least, he wasn't infatuated enough with the woman to have a copy of those famous pearls actually made for her to wear. Still, he must have given them to her, or lent them. I suppose so, Jack admits. Unless... Unless what? Well, I know nothing about the lady except what I've heard, and that she's a dream of a dancer. But right or wrong, she has the reputation of being a tigerish young person with her bloods up. And it's conceivable she may have simply annexed the imitation pearls, put them on to see how she looked, and refused to disgorge. Lernamay isn't the sort of fellow who would be brutal with a pretty woman. He isn't indeed. But anyhow, he let her keep the things and wear them too, even if she hadn't had the real ones. He receives her at the house when I'm out, when he pretends to be shut up with a cold. Must be arranged that she should come then, and Togo bribed to let her in. Oh, it's nearly as bad as it can be, if not quite. Pat doesn't deserve that his mind should be eased as it might have been when he saw that last minute that I was wearing the horrid false beads last night. He'd been in such a state for fear that I'd make a scandal. When he saw the rope on my neck and heard me calmly accepting compliments on it, I suppose he thought, well, that settles that. She can't accuse dear Lida now. But he forgets. I can find proof enough to divorce him without bringing up a question of the pearls at all. Is that what you intend to do? asked Jack. Juliet threw out her hands in a gesture of feverish weariness. I don't know what I intend, she sighed hopelessly. I wish I could just die, then maybe Pat would be sorry. That's what you used to say about your family when you were a kid. No doubt Pat would be sorry if you died. But wouldn't you be sorry when you divorced him? I don't care whether I'm sorry or not, cried Juliet. I'm too miserable now to care about how I may feel then. That's the state of mind for jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, said Jack. Listen, my kid, did you come here to ask my advice? Yes, uh, partly. 
though I wouldn't promise to take it if it was anything I didn't like. But mostly I came for something else. What? To beg you to help me. Help's better than advice. You ought to know I'll help you any way I jolly well can. In any way? She caught him up. Jack was slightly startled, knowing as he did know her. Impulsive, even unscrupulous, if a thing passionately wished for were to be obtained, like all spoiled young women, to whom life has refused nothing. Why not out with it at once, and not beat around the bush, he asked. You've some special thing in your mind. But truly, Jack, I hadn't when I came. I was just going to ask for your advice and help, mixed up together. You were to advise me what to do, and then if I wanted to do it, you were to help get it done. I've no one except you to depend on, and you were my only hope, if I have any hope left, of making things somehow work out right in the end. It's you yourself who have given me the real idea, the inspiration, the thing to be done. And if you are the one person on earth who can do it, the question is, will you? Can't suppose a question, Manners said. If the thing is a thing that will really help you, it will, it will, more than anything else. But you might think it's caddish. You wouldn't ask me to do it, I'm sure, if it were caddish. Well, you see, I'm a girl, a, a woman. It doesn't seem caddish to me as it might to a man. But Jack, it's to save me. It's the one hope to make life worth living. Or to know the worst and not wear out my soul in suspense. I can't bear suspense. Neither can I, Jack reminded her. He was sitting beside her on the sofa now, and Juliet seized his hands. The thing is, I want you to get acquainted with Lida Pavoya, she ventured at last. To contrive to be your friend. To win her confidence, even if you must make love to her. Stop at nothing till she's told you the whole secret of the pearls. That secret means everything to me. Wrapped up in it is the secret I care so much for. The secret of Pat's love. Whether it's hers or mine. And his honor is bound up with it too. Will you do this for me, Jack? Or is it too much? Never had Jack Manners thought that he could pull his hands away from Juliet's clinging fingers and push her off almost roughly as she would have held him. But now he did both before he had realized what he was doing. And even he felt a hot resentment against her, not unlike repulsion. Juliet, whom he had worshipped for years. Juliet, for whom his life would have been a small gift. Before he quite knew what had happened to him, he was standing at the window, staring out. He had not answered, had spoken no word. She ought to understand that no answer was the one safe answer a man could give. Caddish. She had wondered if he would think it caddish. Perhaps women were cats, just naturally. He had heard it say that they didn't know the difference. But Juliet! Standing there with his back to her, he began to gather his wits together to face her attack. She would reproach him with violence. He would try not to be harsh, because she wasn't herself, of course. He would explain that what she had asked wasn't too much, it wasn't a question of quantity, but quality. There were some things a man couldn't do. But she wasn't reproaching him. She was crying. God, 
He had never heard a woman cry as that girl was crying. Such sobs would tear her soul to pieces. They mustn't go on. They would kill her and him. He went back to her. He knelt on the floor and drew into his arms the shaken figure, abandoned among the cushions. Don't, don't, my dear, my sweet one, he implored, awkwardly smoothing the ruffled gold of her hair. Trust old Jack, I'll do something. I'll find out for you. I don't know how. Goodness knows how. But I'll worm her secret from that Pavoya girl. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of The Great Pearl Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Elaine Conway, England The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 12 The Whisperer Stuff My goodness gracious, gasped Natalie Landes. Billy, wake up. Have you seen the Whisperer stuff? Billy woke up. It was just after dinner, early yet to begin the real evening at the Grumblers, known to some outsiders as the Plunderers Club, and Landes had been killing time with a nap. Whisperer stuff, he repeated in a dazed, almost startled way, and when Billy looked startled, he was not at his best. Some years ago, he had been considered handsome, a big, athletic fellow with wavy, auburn hair brushed back from a low forehead, reddish-bronze skin, and big black eyes like those of his sister, Lady West. But the auburn hair had faded and thinned, growing far back on the forehead, which had now become unnaturally high. He was less athletic than he had been, because his principal exercise was taken indoors these days, and consisted of bridge and poker, poker and bridge, varied by roulette. His splendid muscular development was slowly degenerating, getting into fat, and his large face was all red without the bronze. His eyes, too, had changed, and though still big, had a goggling prominence that was not attractive. This was why he did not, when startled, look his best. The eyes goggled, his wife said to herself, like a pollywogs, and aloud she said to him, Don't pretend not to know what I mean by whisperer stuff. I was asleep, Landes excused himself mildly. You don't need to tell me that by word of mouth, Natalie shrugged. You've been advertising the fact through another organ. Besides, you never can keep awake fifteen minutes after dinner if we're alone together. Not that it matters. What I asked was, have you seen the whisperer stuff in this week's inner circle? No, returned Landes. Don't you know I never read the rag? I've told you so pretty often. Everybody tells everybody else that they never read it, yet I suppose it sells hundreds of thousands a week. My copy's just come in. Jane brought it, and you didn't hear her because you were snoring. I 
thought you might have seen it at the club before you left and not said anything so as to make me speak first why has the viper got in a dig against us vipers don't dig no thanks to heaven or the other thing there's nothing on us but it's all about someone you're just as much interested in more interested than you are in me anyhow juliet claremanagh oh billy sat up straight in his chair though he did not seem to be as intensely excited as his wife had thought he would be does the pig mention her by name the pig does not he might as well though for everybody will know who's meant by jove i wouldn't be juliet tonight i believe you grunted landes but he did not believe her he seldom did and in this instance not at all because he was sure he would give her eye to be juliet just as sure as that he would give his to be juliet's husband what's the racket this time i'll read you the stuff aloud to you said his wife and began let's whisper that a certain foreign gentleman of title one of the prettiest and richest young wives in new york is much to be sympathized with because he has got a bad cold but he is to be congratulated on the marvelous medicine with which he is able to combat his ailment let's whisper again this medicine is worth its weight in gold only millionaires can afford to take it at home and alone as louis of bavaria used to take wagner's operas we know he was alone because the pretty rich young wife was out full up with engagement for the whole afternoon and we know he is a millionaire oh we know it in such a simple way it's because his wife is a millionairess see the whisperer thought she would and now for the medicine that needs another whisper Shh. we spell it with a capital m because it has been a royal medicine since salome the daughter of herodias administered to king herod dancing is a fine art and its greatest exponent at present in our city is fair enough to cure any king to say nothing of the lesser nobility even if she did not dance for him but of course the whisperer is sure she did dance because with what other motive should she pay a call of consolation upon a nobleman with a cold when his wife was not at home to nurse him can you think of any let's whisper that blade is very becoming to tall slender ladies with white skin and copper hair even when they wear thick veils nothing suits them better unless it's pale blue and blue pearls but ladies with golden hair have now taken to appearing in blue pearls ropes of them the whisperer supposes they are real why certainly could they be otherwise yet on the other hand are there two such ropes in the world we shall see we may see any day now and the whisperer hopes and prays that if we do see there won't be trouble but the ladies are so charming pearls are so compromising and the gentleman is so popular let's whisper what a game of consequences there 
Mrs. Lowndes finished with a gasp. What do you think of that? Can you beat it? Her husband answered with a question. I can't, said Natalie. But I guess the Duke will beat something or someone. You'll have to. You mean the Whisperer? Hmm. Before you cook your hair, you've got to catch him. A whole lot of men have tried to catch that one, but the inner circle still circulates. Natalie brooded for a moment. When she was a girl, in a set that was conspicuous, though not first rate, the Whisperer had whispered several nasty things about her. He, she, or it had said that she had come from Peoria or somewhere to New York to buy a husband and had kindly warned her that persons not rich enough to pick and choose their goods had better snap up what they could get the first day of the sale at the cheap bargain counter. Since she had taken that advice and snapped up Billy Landes, the whisperer had for some reason been silent, but Natalie had never forgiven or forgotten the attack on her attractions and she had always burned to have some other victim arraigned for justifiable homicide. I bet Claire Manor will break the vicious circle, she said, and I bet he won't. Why should he bring off a stunt none of us ever brought? They say there's nothing to break. Some husband or father goes murder mad, bursts into the circle office, and finds no one on the premises but a little old lady. Can he bash that? Besides, why make a cap fit you by wearing it? The world knows what that D.D. Whisperer is working up to when he hints at the Clare Manor pearls being false. But if they are, the Duke must have sold them himself and had a copy made. Two copies, perhaps. By George, I shouldn't wonder if that's just what he did do. Sell. I mean, Juliet told my sister Emmy that Clem Manor refused the million or so she wanted to settle on him and intended to join the working classes over here. He doesn't get a salary to be proud of at the fair bank. I know for a fact, but I've seen him playing poker at the Grumblers and uh, another game elsewhere. Last night he walks into the Grumblers after the opera and I happened to see him pass a roll of yellow backs as big as my fist into a man's hand. The other chap dropped the lot by accident, and the noble duke stood still with his nose in the air while they were collected. I saw a $1,000 bill with my own eyes, and I have a hunch there were a heap more of the same sort. Who was the man? Natalie asked, curiously. I've forgotten his name, Billy evaded her. There are a lot of new men in the club lately I know only by sight. Tell that to the Marine, she scoffed. You've got some reason for keeping his name dark. Did anyone else see Claire Manor pay him the money? Because if they did, I'll be sure to find out. I think everyone was pretty busy just then. I wouldn't have seen if I hadn't been cutting out of a game at the moment. It's nothing to me who the man was. You're always so damn suspicious of anything I say. Natalie shrugged her shoulders, a favourite gesture, but not what you do. I don't care enough 
she retaliated, and picked up the _Inner Circle_ again to re read "The Whisperer's Stuff," while she richly pictured Juliet's feelings. She didn't know the Duchess very well, but she thought that there would be "ructions." "Pavoya must have been at the house while Juliet was lunching with me," she told herself. "I shouldn't wonder if the Duke had sold his pearls. Won't Juliet be wild if she finds out the wonderful rope everyone was talking about last night was false?" Natalie grew so absorbed in the settling just what she would write to Emmy West that she did not even speak to Billy when he went out. She was sure he was going to the plunderers, and she was right. Nevertheless, she had made one mistake about him. He had told the truth in saying that he did not know the name of the man to whom Claire Manor had handed a roll of notes. He did, however, wish to know, and as soon as possible. But he arrived to find everyone talking of the Whisperer stuff in the inner circle. Most of the men were defending the Duke, who had an extraordinary way of making himself liked without trying. And this vexed Landes. He had a grudge against Claire Manor for marrying Juliet there, the only girl who had ever given him a heartache. Losing her and getting Natalie had made him the man he was. What I want to find out is who is the chap Claire Manor paid about a hundred thousand dollars to last night. Here in this club, he said. A hundred thousand dollars, somebody echoed. How do you know? I do know, Landes persisted provocatively and made up his mind to stick to the statement. I do know. And what I'd like to know also, in the circumstances, is how did he get the money? Ask the winds, laughed the other. Easier to ask his wife. You believe she knows? No, not how he got the stuff. But I guess she thinks she knows, which is just as interesting. Juliet was utterly indifferent that night as to whether or not her thoughts were interesting to outsiders. Pat and herself filled the world for her. There was no one else, not even Jack Manners, who existed for her after she had read The Whisperer, except Lyda Pavoya. But the Polish dancer was not for Juliet a fellow being. She was a lure light, a mermaid, a siren. Simone was in the habit of buying the inner circle for the Duchess on the day of publication. She had never been ordered to do this, but her mistress in the last place she had filled in New York had expected the rag to appear in her boudoir as soon as it was on sale. And Simone, with a certain cynical enjoyment, had unobtrusively supplied the paper to Juliet without being asked. It was a disgrace to New York, and utterly disgusting and unreliable, of course, and Juliet scorned it as a horrid beast. All the same, she read it every week before flinging it on the floor or pitching it into the waste paper basket. And sometimes she was angry at its nasty digs at people she knew. Sometimes she chuckled. One had to. And her car took her home from Jack Manners' hotel. As her car took her home from Jack Manners' hotel, she suddenly remembered that it was Inner Circle Day. Could that fiend of a whisperer have got hold of anything new about Pat and Pavoya? Juliet could not see that this was possible. But there was almost sure to be some mention of the blue pearl she had worn at the opera. Unless the news had been too late for press, 
She was so miserable already that she wondered at herself for feeling so small a prick in the midst of a deep and all-pervading pain. Yet she was conscious of her uneasiness, and it remained in the back of her mind throughout the day. She had not expected to see Pat at luncheon, and if she had seen him, she would have suffered disappointment. Whether he were merely resentful against her for the things she had said to him, or whether he were ashamed to face her because he had lied, and she knew it, Juliet could not tell. In his absence, he was as vitally present as if she saw him before her eyes. Indeed, she did see him with Lyda Pavoya. It seemed certain that he must have gone to Lyda, if only to demand some explanation of what had happened to the pearls. And it was conceivable that, if he were convinced she had robbed him, he might have a reaction of feeling against the woman. In such a case, he would perhaps return and implore his wife to forgive him. As she thought this, Juliet hardened her heart against his charm, his magnetism, which she knew to be almost irresistible. She would resist it. It would be ridiculous to let herself be cajoled by Pat's Irish ways. He would laugh in his sleeve if he could persuade her that he had never loved Pavoya. But the day wore on, and he did not come home. All she knew about him was that he must have spent some late part of the night in the house, because Simone had casually mentioned an early meeting in the hall as he went out. About nine in the morning, he had handed the maid a few letters, which he said were for the Duchess to read and attend to, rather than for him. That was all. And though Juliet did not mean to pardon him, she would have given him the price of the lost pearl to be begged for her forgiveness. Now and then, like a faint undertone in wild music, returned the thought of the inner circle, and at the time when it should be lying on a certain table in her boudoir, Juliet looked for it. The paper was not there. She had come in from her bedroom, a wrapper thrown over her nightgown, where she was pretending to have a headache and had gone to bed on returning from the Tarascon as an excuse for throwing over all engagements. There's something horrid about Pat or me in the rag, she guessed instantly. Simone's read or heard about it and means to forget the paper. It would not be pleasant to ask, but after all Simone was only a servant. Juliet rang the bell communicating with her maid's room, and soon the neat figure in black presented itself. Madame la Duchesse has run. Where is that horrid inner circle? The Duchess inquired. Simone looked self-conscious. She said that Madame being souffrante, she had forgotten to buy the paper. It was of so little importance. But Juliet would not be put off. The French woman was sent out to get the inner circle, and when she had got it, was told that she would be needed no more for the moment. Therefore, Claire Manor's wife was alone when she read The Whisperer's Insinuations. Strangely enough, or was it strange, her anger turned in a torrent flood against the man who ran the rack. None was left for Pat. Juliet burned for him to come home so that she could, even if on official terms only, join together in scotching this scandal. She felt that she must see her husband at once, but she could not send for him without being misunderstood. If she were able to reach him by phoning to one of his clubs, 
he would think that he was being called back to a scene of reconciliation because his wife was too much in love to live without him for more than a day no even though her rage was too concentrated in another direction to blaze upon pat she didn't wish him to think that he was forgiven again jack manners seemed her best hope and she phoned him at the tarascon he was out the answer came and juliet asked that the duchess of claremanagh should be called up as soon as he came in an hour later the bell of her telephone jingled jack had returned to his suite at the tarascon i thought you'd never come she complained but he excused himself you gave me a mission i've been doing my best to pave the way you mean you've met pavoya not yet but i shall meet her tonight she's dancing you know or why should you know an old friend of mine and hers too has arranged an introduction that's the only news i have for you so far i didn't ring you up to ask for news said his cousin though her quick brain caught at a welcome deduction if jack were to meet pavoya at a party or something it did not look as if pat had pardoned her for the pearls otherwise they would be together i want you to see pat for me juliet went on not to make it up when you find him tell him that that to begin with please but he and i must meet and talk over this horrible whisperer business i don't want a scandal anyhow that kind any more than he does tell him it's cowardly to run away and stay away like this it makes things worse tell him he must come home or bring him i can't put things to pat in that way but i'll see him if you wish answered jack where is he i don't know juliet's voice sounded disconsolate and very young even through the phone some club i suppose do call me when you found him it was seven o'clock after three more hours of suspense juliet rushed to the phone at first sound of the bell if it were not jack or pat she should scream but it was jack i can't find clermana anywhere or hear of his movements since two o'clock madness said he was then at a club you probably never heard of it's called the joint all sorts of men belong actors writers lawyers sportsmen and at least one private detective pat isn't a member i should have thought of the place if a man i know the one who will introduce me to mademoiselle pavoya had mentioned seeing pat there this morning the two men that's why i went round after i tried everywhere else well he was there at five with the detective i spoke of just now and a frenchman named defagal that name will strike you he had an appointment to come back and dine with defagal who it seems came with an introduction and has been made a foreign member in fact he's staying at the club and i have been talking with him in the hope of seeing pat at eight i waited because defacal was so sure he would come but at half past nine he hadn't turned up I phoned everywhere i can think of since and left word that i'm to be called whenever there's news no matter what time when i go out as i must do if i'm to meet this lady 
I shall leave my address with the Tarascon people. What can have happened to Pat? Manners heard Julia cry. Don't worry. He's certain to be all right, Jack assured her, but he wasn't quite comfortable upon that point himself, and he quietly phoned all the hospitals. It looked queer that Claire Manor hadn't kept that engagement with Defacal. He had apparently been anxious to keep it. If there had been an accident to a man so well known, surely the news would have got into the evening papers. Yet there was no news anywhere of any kind, since the Duke had walked out of the joint at five. Were such a thing not too absurdly far-fetched, Jack would have asked himself if anyone existed who might wish Claremanagh to disappear. End of chapter 12「Chapter Thirteen of the Great Pearl Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter Thirteen A Woman's Eyes Mademoiselle Pavoya, this is Captain John Manners, just back from France, a cousin of the Duchess of Claremanagh's, said the manager who was introducing Jack. Lida Pavoya lifted her drooping head a little, only a little, and fixed upon Manners a pair of dark eyes. A pair of dark eyes. Simple words and a simple act. There are many women in the world with dark eyes, and many had looked at John Manners. But these eyes of the Polish woman, as they gave that upward look from under heavy lashes, Manners felt himself a traitor. He had heard all sorts of stories about Lida Pavoya. He had gotten an impression that she was a tigress woman. And then, the dancing that he had seen her do was wild and barbaric. But tonight she was a swan. Her eyes were dark, but not black or even brown. They were perhaps a very deep greenish-gray and extraordinarily luminous. Yes, that was the word. Luminous. Brilliant would be too hard. There was a mysterious moonlight sort of luminescence between the black fringes of the white lids and the whole face, pale, delicate, with pointy chin was mysterious as only Polish or Russian faces are. Why does she look at me so? Jack thought. It was almost as if she guessed, because he was Juliet's cousin, why he had asked for this introduction. He could not believe that she, who had met so many people, could recognize the man in evening dress as the officer in khaki she had seen at the fair doorstep. They were in a room at the theater where Mademoiselle Pavoya received privileged persons, a plainly furnished room, mostly gray, except for masses of flowers, and it suited her better than a background of fantastic color. Perhaps it was this grayness which made her stand out so vividly, and seem of such vital, thrilling importance. She was extremely quiet in manner, and her voice was low, yet her quietness was disturbing, like that of a summer night when lightning may leap from a clear sky. Manners was struck dumb by her, Something had flashed from her eyes to his with that first look. It did not say merely, I am a woman, you are a man. It said, or seemed to say, you are the man, I am the woman. We had to meet, and now, what? He tried to think that this was a trick of hers, which she used on every male worthy of her steel. But he could not believe it to be so. Her perfume, that perfume of an eastern garden by moonlight, had gone to his head. No woman had ever produced such an effect upon him. 
though they had exchanged but a few words, and those not memorable. Yet he was not humiliated by his own surrender. In spite of all reason, he was convinced that she had been stirred by him as he by her. The meeting was between Pavoya's dances, and she had not many minutes to spare. Her manager had impressed upon Manners that the few she gave were an immense concession. There was no hope of prolonging them. Her call came. She had to go. Again, eyes met with that shock to the nerves. Suddenly, Lydda held out her hand to Jack, clasping it. Electricity flashed up his arm and stabbed at his heart. He felt her start slightly, and his breath quickened. For Juliet's sake, and the promise he had made, it was Manor's duty to take instant advantage of his luck with Pavoya. But he was not thinking about Juliet, or the promise. He was neither remorseful nor triumphant. All he thought of, or wanted as they talked in snatches, was to hold this woman, not to let her go till he had arranged to meet her again. He must meet her again. He must know what she really was, what they were to be in each other's lives. But he could not ask permission to call. He was stupidly tongue-tied, and could not put words together as he would have wished. Would you care to have supper with me at my house tonight? She asked, not taking her hand from his. The invitation was so unexpected that Jack could hardly believe it had been given. Yet he heard himself answering, Yes, I should be delighted. I am glad, she said, in her perfect English, with the pretty accent that was part of her charm. Perhaps you don't know where I live. I have taken a house, furnished, Mrs. Lloyd Jackson's house on Park Avenue. You have been there? Supper will be at twelve. Till then, she was gone. By Jingo. You've made a hit, my boy, chuckled Pavoya's manager. It was all Jack could do to detach himself from thoughts of Lydda and go about Juliet's business between 10.40 and midnight. For the first time in his life, the prospect of seeing Juliet was distasteful to him. He didn't want to see her because she would ask him about Lydda Pavoya, and in his present mood, there was nothing he would hate worse than discussing the Polish girl with his cousin. But he was as sorry for Juliet as ever, and just as anxious to help her. Desperately, against the grain, he took a taxi and drove to the fair house, which he found brilliantly lighted. The huge front looked so gay that for a moment he hoped Pat had come back. But he asked for the Duke and was told gravely by Togo that his grace was not at home. The Duchess, however, was expecting Captain Manners. Juliet was waiting, not in her boudoir, but in the Chinese room which her father had loved. She no longer wore the dressing gown she had put on when nursing her headache in the afternoon, but was dazzling in some flame-colored film over shot gold and purple tissue. "'You've had good news?' Jack exclaimed at the sight of her. "'No, I've had none, whatever,' she said. "'If possible, things are worse. I know why you thought something good had happened, all the lights and this dress. But if you were a woman, you'd understand. I've realized that there's a fight in front of me. I want it to be a silent battle.' I don't wish people to know I'm fighting at all till I see what the end's likely to be. I do understand, Jack said. You're a brave girl, and I believe the end will be all right. He hurried on to talk about Pat, and thus put off the bad moment when she would question him about Pavoya. As nothing had been heard of the missing one, and Juliet seemed now even more anxious than angry, Jack decided to confess, having telephoned to all the hospitals. It was good news, he insisted. 
that these inquiries had drawn blank, and he did his best as comforter by saying that Pat had probably gone off in a huff. People who loved each other flew into rages more easily than those who didn't care. Men of Pat's temperament didn't lie down quietly to be trampled on by their wives. He'd write soon, or send word somehow when his first fury had exploded. Or, at worst, he would communicate with the bank, even if he didn't turn up for work there. Meanwhile, however, Jack admitted that they mustn't let things slide and merely hope for the best. Would Juliet like to have a detective engaged, a private one? Of course. Quietly, to make inquiries, in the very unlikely case that something queer had happened. Yes, I was going to suggest that, Juliet said in a hard, bright voice which kept back tears. What about that detective you spoke of, the one who was with Pat and Defascal in the club? Jack hesitated. Well, I think we'd better get a chap of our own. You see, possibly he was Pat's man, engaged for the, the pearl business. He mightn't be able to work for us with a whole heart. I know what you mean. Juliet caught manners up. Pat's man may know where Pat really is and lead us off the track instead of onto it. It's just possible, Jack had to agree. Would you believe it? The girl veered abruptly to a new subject. Two reporters have called to interview me about the inner circle stuff. Impudent beasts, Manners lashed out. Of course you didn't receive them. Jack, I did, said Juliet. I'll tell you why. Here in the house, I've got more and more proof against Pat, or against that woman. Jack winced, but she was not looking at him. Her eyes were full of tears. Still, I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Besides, I've my pride, just as Pat has his. There's my father's name. In its way, that's as good as the name of Claremanagh, or all the dukes in Britain. I came to this room tonight because Dad loved it so, and I felt as if he were here in spirit, helping me to be strong. He was such a busy man, yet he always had time for me. I can almost hear his voice saying, Steady, Jewel, as he used to say when I was in one of my wild moods. I had those newspapermen brought to me here, and I said to one what I said to the other. I admitted that I'd seen the inner circle, and I suppose the horrid rag meant us. But I simply laughed at the whole thing. I told them Pavoya came to see me, something about her dance for the Armenians. You know, the roof garden show Nancy Van Esten's getting up. I said the insinuation about the pearls was nonsense, that I'm an expert, and that they're the realest things I ever saw. I talked about Pat, as if we two were the best of friends, and mentioned just casually that he was away for a few days. I was as nice as I could be to the men, though I longed to... to kick them. I'm sure they both went off to their hard old newspapers to write beautiful things about the family. Don't you think I did right? Perhaps, said Jack, if you don't mind being a bit... infradig. I don't mind anything, Juliet choked. If only Pat comes back safely and... and if we can patch up some sort of life together. If... I don't have to break with him. Then you've given up those ideas you had this morning about divorce? No, I haven't exactly given them up, but they seem far off now, when I'm so afraid for Pat. I've thought of a thousand things that might have happened to him. Suppose he does love me, really, and Pavoya is jealous. She'd be capable of anything. She may have had him stabbed. That reminds me. You've met her? Yes. Well... What do you want me to say? To tell me what she was like, of course. How you got on, 
What have you got out of her? Jack felt suddenly antagonistic to Juliet. I was with Mademoiselle Pavoya, about twenty minutes at most, and her manager was there too, he said. I've got nothing out of her. What did you expect? All the same, you may take it from me, Juliet. You'll be a big mistake if you imagine she has anything to do with Pat's not showing up. I'm sure she hasn't. Oh, she's hypnotized you too, has she? Snapped Juliet. Pat wanted to make me believe she was a good woman. Come with me into his study and I'll show you something. Then perhaps you won't be so quick to defend her. This was worse than Jack's fears. He couldn't refuse to follow his cousin. From everyone's point of view, that would be poor policy. But he hated to go to Pat's study. He did not wish to see anything Juliet had to show him there. If it's a letter, I won't... He began when she cut him short. It isn't a letter. After the scolding you gave me at Thalorn, I wouldn't glance at the wildest love letter of Pavoya's, even if she'd printed it so large I could read every word across the room. I didn't give you a scolding, Jack defended himself. I only said a man wouldn't do what you did, or some such thing as that. Yes, that's just what you did say. Juliet was unlocking the door of Pat's study, of which she had the key. I never knew you not to do what you wanted to do because I or anyone else scolded you. How hard you are on me, Jack, she reproached him. This is different, and I am different. I don't want to do anything a man would think mean. I want to be fair to Pat, whatever happens. But about the pearls, I can't be fair to him and Pavoya both. I'm going to show you why not. As she spoke, she went to Pat's desk where things were wildly scattered as in his notorious carelessness he had left them. Jack Manor's heart beat rather thickly as he remembered his last visit to this room, how Defascal had come in, how he, Jack, had sat on the club fender. Very conscious during the scene which followed that Lita Pavoya must be hidden behind the curtains or the screen, how he had advised Pat to do what Defascal asked, how Pat refused and showed the safe in the wall which was already opened. Here's his seal ring, Juliet was saying, I found it lying on the desk. This is what I brought you in to see. Now take the ring in your hand, please. Look at it closely, and tell me if you notice anything odd. As Jack took the ring, he recalled that Pat had pulled it off his finger and given it to Defascal, telling the Frenchman to compare it with the seals on the packet. Relieved that for a moment Juliet was letting Lydia's name rest in peace, he examined the ring. I see nothing peculiar unless a tiny bit of red stuff stuck in the corner of the eye, he said. Ah, cried Juliet, I thought you'd see that. What do you think the red stuff is? Might be sealing wax. That's just what it is. I used a magnifying glass to make sure, which showed me something else too, but I haven't quite come to that yet. Pat never seals his letters with red wax. He dislikes red things. You know yourself, he always uses gray-blue wax. He said it reminded him of my eyes. You saw the packet de Fascal brought from France? Yes. Then you know it was sealed with five red seals. I have the box and wrappings upstairs, if you don't remember. I do remember. Very well. You can guess what I'm driving at? I suppose I can. Good. Now, for the other thing, the magnifying glass told me, but no, take it yourself. There's a scratch across the eye on the ring. You see it? Yes. Do you know who was supposed to have sealed up the packet? Man, of course, with a duplicate ring. Pat had made for him on purpose. 
Yes, a duplicate. But would the scratch have been copied? It shows on all five seals of the packet. I looked through the magnifier. Juliet, you accuse Pat. Or Pavoya. I said it must lie between him and her. Jack did not answer at once. He saw the sinister importance of this discovery which Juliet had made. His mind rushed back to yesterday. Lydia Pavoya had been left alone in the study for how long he did not know. But Pat had given her a chance to get away. He had made an excuse to show both men something in the Chinese room next door. Then, when Defascal pleaded an engagement, Pat had rung for Togo to guide the Frenchman out. A little later, Jack also had gone. What Pat had done after that, who could tell? His own man Nixon, perhaps, or one of the other servants. Jack pushed the name of Lydia Pavoya violently out of his mind. He would not ask himself what she knew about Pat's next movements and about the Red Seals. When these thoughts had shot through his head, bringing actual bodily pain, he drew a long breath and forced himself to speak. Juliet was waiting. It's very necessary to have a detective to tackle this business, he said. I realize that fact more than ever now. It's essential for Pat's own sake, if for no one else's. A sharp chap may be able somehow or other to pulverize this beastly theory you're forming, Juliet. He'll make tests for fingerprints on the safe in the wall. If there are others besides Pat's, of course. And little Pavoya's. It's not worthy of you to spring to such conclusions. Manners broke out before he could control himself. He expected Juliet to retort furiously, but she did not. She merely looked piteous and young. Jack, she said sadly, what am I going to do if that woman takes you away from me as well as Pat? Nonsense, he bluffed. I hope I shall show that she hasn't taken Pat. Or anything of yours. You don't want her proved guilty, I suppose. Not unless she is. But I'd rather it would be Pavoya than Pat, and it seems as if it must be one or the other. It seems so to you, now, but wait. Juliet looked at him anxiously. Can you think of anyone else to suspect? I haven't had much time to think yet, said Jack. Tomorrow morning early, I'll get the best private detective in town, one who won't talk. Meanwhile, we must be patient. I suppose, of course, you've questioned Nixon about his master. That was one of the first things I did. Poor old Nick was almost bowled over when I said I feared that something had happened to his adored one. I didn't mention the pearls, naturally, or that I thought Pat might have disappeared of his own accord. I watched Nick's face to see what he knew. I don't think he has an idea where Pat has gone, but Jack, he knows something, something wild horses wouldn't drag out of him. I feel I have a... It's about Pavoya. I have an idea Nick has taken messages. Togo has been bribed by her too, I'm sure, and he won't speak. The woman is like Circe, with men of all sorts and classes, but she has but to look at them and turn them into beasts. The woman had looked at Jack, but she had not turned him into a beast. He had never felt less like a beast in his life than he felt at this moment. Yet, saint or Circe, by some magic she had won his loyalty. Wild horses would not have dragged her secrets from Nixon, Juliet said, and Jack believed she might be right. As for him, he would have had his tongue cut out sooner than tell his cousin that he was engaged to sup at Lydda's house, and it was almost time to go. What excuse could he make for leaving Juliet abruptly, without hurting her? 
He would not hurt her for a great deal, but he would hurt her if he must, rather than be late. End of chapter 13. Chapter 14 of The Great Pearl Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 14. The house taken furnished by Lyda Pavoya belonged to a woman well known in society, who had gone abroad. Jack Manners had visited there before the war, but the drawing room was changed. There had been banal things in it. Now they were gone. Banality could not exist near Alida. It seemed that in every form it must shrivel up, burnt away by the still fire of her strange, secret soul. Jack had pictured himself entering a room full of people, fellow guests, and finding no one, he feared that he had come too soon. If stage stars invited one for midnight, they probably meant one to turn up at half-past twelve, so that if they sailed in at one o'clock, one would not be annoyed. When the door opened five minutes after his arrival, therefore, he expected to see some theatrical or social swell, but it was Lydda who appeared, alone. He had never met her off the stage until yesterday, at the door of the fair house. Then she had been dressed in black and thickly veiled. He had guessed her identity from the extreme grace and slimness of her tall figure, and the flame of her red hair glimpsed through embroidered net. In Paris, where she had danced, he had sat too far away to criticize her features, and at the theater tonight he had been dazzled by the wonder of her as a swan woman. Now as she drifted in with the air of a tired, overworked girl needing rest, and mutely asking for help in securing it, Jack had the thrill of a new revelation. How many sides had this Polish dancer's nature? Was he to have a different sort of thrill every time he met her? Always more poignant? More soul-piercing than before? I'm glad to see you, she said. I thought I should be here first. I hope I've not kept you waiting. Not five minutes, Jack assured her. Good. Will you take off my wrap for me? When I heard you had come, I wouldn't wait for my maid. She had unfastened the emerald clasps of a long, oddly shaped cloak of purple velvet lined with clouds of green chiffon over gold. As Jack lifted it from her white shoulders, to his surprise he heard himself exclaim, I'd imagined you in sables. What right had he to make a personal comment like that? So other people have told me, she said. But I have one peculiarity. I never wear furs. To me it is horrible that women can cover themselves with the skins of lovely creatures, murdered for their pleasure, pathetic little faces and feet and tails, dangling all over them. No, when I was a child, I suffered too much from the cruelty of the strong to the weak to find joy in profiting from it. By Jove, exclaimed Jack, I've thought sometimes of that sort of thing. But I didn't suppose it ever occurred to women, even the tenderest ones I've known. The women who have known haven't had childhoods like mine, said Lina. Yet I hoped you'd not be one to make fun of my feeling. Another thing, I do not eat meat for the same reason. You will see at supper, but you shall have some, so don't be discouraged. As she spoke, she smiled, and Jack realized that it was the first time he had seen her smile. That was strange. 
or it would have been strange in another woman. Now he saw that it would be more strange, altogether out of keeping with this character voluntarily opening itself to him, if she laughed or smiled often. Jack had obeyed a gesture of hers, and laid the faintly perfumed cloak on a sofa. Little wore a dress simple enough for the first dinner gown of a schoolgirl, gray and short, almost skimpy, yet somehow perfect, without a single touch of trimming or a jewel. Shall we go into the dining room? she asked. Supper will be ready. It always is. I never have it announced unless I have a party. Tonight, it's only you and me. You'll not mind. Mind? The word spoke itself with a boyish sincerity that Jack could not have pretended. I didn't dare dream. She led the way through open sliding doors to an adjoining room, not turning her head to listen as she let Jack push the half-drawn portiers aside. What a divine back she had, and what dimples in the delicate flat shoulder blades. An almost overpowering desire gripped Jack to kiss the white neck just where a knot of shining red hair was kept in place by a jade pen. He would no more have ventured upon a liberty with this creature of unfathomed reserves than he would have thrown himself into the cage of a tigress. All the same, he had definitely lost his head. He knew that he would have sacrificed Juliet and Pat for this girl, not deliberately, not through conviction, but because he couldn't help himself if it came to a choice. In the octagon-shaped room where its late mistress had given famous dinners for eight, nevertheless never more, a small table was laid and lit with shaded candles, but no servants were there. Violets were scattered on the lace table cover, the only flower decorations. For the guests there were several elaborate cold dishes and champagne and ice. For the hostess, brown bread and a jug of milk. When she saw Jack look at this, Little laughed out loud. I never take anything else at night, she explained. I suppose I'm a queer person. Probably you're thinking me odd in many ways. For one, to have you alone with me at supper. I have a companion who lives with me, Madame Le Mercier, a nice woman. But I do what I wish without thinking of conventions, if I hurt no one. People say so many things about me, they can say no worse, whatever I do. That's partly why I act as I please. Yet I think I'd do the same without an excuse. I invited you because I want to talk with you alone. No Madame Le Mercier, no servants. I'll wait on you myself. Not that, said Manners. You must let me wait on you. We'll wait on each other, she smiled. A sense of exquisite intimacy with this girl, or woman, he knew not what to call her, took possession of Jack. For a few minutes they ate and he talked of anything that flashed into his mind. When Lydda had finished her milk, he jumped up and filled the glass again. Then she said abruptly, I recognized you at the theater from yesterday. Did you think I would? No, Jack reddened to his sun-bleached hair. But you must have known I was in Claremont's study when you were there. I wasn't sure. Yet you thought so. You're not a man who can lie well. And you are the cousin of Claremont's wife. You thought badly of me. I had no right to think badly. Jack staved her off. It wasn't my affair. I asked you here tonight to make it your affair. Jack had a shock of disappointment. That wonderful heart-piercing first look of hers which he had read, You are the man. I am the woman. 
hadn't meant much after all. You see, Lida went on, I think that perhaps you and I have known each other a long time. In another life, perhaps in more lives than one. Souls that have been friends, or more than friends, grouped together on earth many times, no doubt. Did you feel this when we met tonight? Yes, Jack said, his breath choked. I know it must have been that. I knew even then it was the most wonderful thing ever. I felt it even yesterday, when I passed you at Clermanagh's door, she told him. I thought, there's a man I may never see again, but we could be friends. And we have been friends, though maybe he has forgotten. When I was in the study behind the curtains, Clermanagh put me there if he didn't want me seen. I was sorry you should believe things not true. I did not, Jack protested. No? Then, I'm glad. The man felt ashamed, remembering suddenly what he had believed yesterday, even today. Her words, I am glad, cut him to the quick, and he hurried on along the way of atonement. You say you asked me here to make it my affair, about Clermont. Tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. I don't know yet what is best. We will talk it over, she answered. But first you will have to hear a story. It's a long story, how I met Clermont, and the great many things that came of the meeting. You won't be bored. Do you need an answer to that question? Lita gave him one of her rare smiles. No, it was conventional of me to ask, but it will not be conventional to tell you the story. It would be even dangerous to tell it to some men. I'm not afraid of you. Thank you for saying that. She held out her hand to him across the small round table. Jack seized it and pressed it closely instead of kissing the pink palm as he was tempted to do. For a moment, Lita sat still, her eyes cast down, as if she sought for words which eluded her. Then she began in a low voice that was slightly monotonous, as though she spoke out of an old dream. She paused sometimes, but manners remained silent, asking no questions. He felt that she would prefer this. She took him back with her to Petrograd, St. Petersburg then, when she was sixteen, ten years before. She was dancing in a second-rate cafe and attracted attention so that the place became popular. A man named Conrad Markov was the real owner, though he posed as an amateur patron. By his advice, the manager got Lydon to sign a hard and fast contract to dance at the same salary for the next five years. Markov pretended a fatherly kindness for her, and she was invited occasionally to visit his wife, a Frenchwoman who had lived for years in England. One night Markov brought a good-looking English boy of nineteen or so to the cafe. This boy applauded Lita's dancing, and was introduced to her at his own request, the Duke of Clermont. From the first he was enthusiastic about her talent. Not in love, oh, not at all in love, Lita insisted, but anxious to help a budding genius. At the end of a week he had thought out a practical plan. He would pay for the dancing lessons of which she had dreamed as of an impossible paradise, lessons from the great Sofia Verasova. It would cost a lot, yes, but he had just had a few unexpected thousands left to him by an aunt. If Lida wouldn't accept, they were sure to be spent on some foolery. She did accept. Perhaps she might have accepted even if Clermont hadn't made it quite clear how impersonal, how disinterested were his motives. Never, the dancer confessed, had she met a good man in those days. 
She would have made an idol of this handsome boy, but he didn't want her idolatry. He was fancying himself in love with the wife of a don at Oxford just then. To free her from slavery at the cafe, Claremanagh paid a big indemnity. And at the time, Lydda was grateful to Markov for arranging the business, not then aware that he was the power behind the throne. It was nearly two years later when the truth was sprung upon the girl, just as she expected to go with Verasova to make her debut in Paris. Markov had wished her to be educated and become a great dancer without expense to himself. There were several ways in which she could be valuable, and unless she promised her services to him, he would prevent her from leaving Petrograd. Claremont had been too carelessly trustful to have the release from her contract framed in a legal document, and Lilith could still be compelled to carry it out. Unless she agreed to use the charm she had, the fame she might win, and the secret service of Russia, she would thus be compelled. Lida was not old enough to understand the hideousness of this bargain. She wasn't yet 18, and not to go with Verasova would have seemed worse than death. It was only later, when she had soared to brilliant success, that she realized fully what she was expected to do. Engagements were offered to her in the capitals of different countries. After Paris, Rome, and then London, she met many men of distinction, sailors, soldiers, diplomats, financiers. She was to flirt with these men, just how seriously was her own affair, and get them inadvertently to tell her things useful to the Tsar's government. Well, she had flirted, but she had sickened at the business behind the flirtations. Very little information reached Russia through Lida Pavoya. Reproaches and threats came to her from Markov, and as a warning of what he could do to bring about her ruin if he chose, Russians in England, France, Italy, America, set the ball of scandal rolling against her. According to them, she was a professional siren, a mercenary bloodsucker, a tigress woman, a devourer of men's happiness and honor. Against such a campaign, a woman, placed as she was, found herself helpless. She could only shrug her shoulders, go her own way, and try not to care. But the war, like an ill wind that blows good to some, changed the world for Lita. She worked heart and soul in Paris for the Red Cross. The Russian Revolution broke like a red sunrise, and with the end of Tsardom, she hoped that Markov's power over her would end also. For some months she had no word from him. Then he appeared in Paris, at a bad moment for her. Clermont had been there on leave. He had come to her house complaining that he felt ill. At luncheon he had fallen from his chair in a dead faint. The doctor had pronounced the attack a virulent case of influenza. Clermont couldn't be moved. Lida, helped by Madame Le Mercier, had nursed him. He thought she had saved his life, vowed that he owed her more than she had ever owed him. There was endless gossip, of course, but Lida had been so glad to repay her debt of gratitude that she hadn't much cared. It was soon after Clermont had gone back to the front, and while people were still coupling their names in the scandalous way, that Conrad Markov arrived in Paris. At last the time has come when you can be of real use to me, he had said. Lida had hoped this was bluff, but Markov explained. He explained things of which she had never dreamed. With brutal frankness, he told the girl that he had made Clermont's acquaintance in Petrograd for a very special purpose. He had married his French wife because she had been maid to the young Duchess of Clermont and knew something about the famous pearls. Always he and men associated with him had kept track of the family fortunes. 
He had known that the boy intended to visit the scene of his ancestor's great romance. Had it not been for some treachery, he believed that his own wife had sent anonymous warnings to the Klermanovs. The lost treasure would long ago have returned to Russia. Now, though his associates were dead or in Bolshevik prisons, and the crown was a legend, he, Markov, won the pearls for himself. Lita had more than repaid Klermanov's generosity, all of which, Markov argued, she owed directly to him. She was in a position to demand any favor she liked of the Duke. She must get him to lend her the Serena pearls. If she refused to do this, she should be denounced as a spy. Even though her activities had been stopped by the revolution, the war was still on. Markov had letters which would convict her. She, the adored one, the divine dancer, would be tried and shot some morning at dawn. It would be nothing to die, Lida had thought. But she loved France. She could not bear to die as a traitor. What to do then? Suddenly a plan came to her. She agreed to ask Clermanoff for the pearls. You see, she explained to Manners, Markov had had a copy made from an old portrait of the Serena. He meant me to hand him over the real pearls and give the false to Clermanoff, but he didn't know that Clermanoff's mother had had them copied. Hardly anyone did know, but Clermanoff had told me, and it was the copy that I asked him to lend. He couldn't bear to refuse my very first request. Poor fellow. He hated to grant it, though. It was just after he'd fallen in love with Miss Fair, before they were engaged. There was enough talk about him and me without my wearing those well-known pearls. It was part of my bargain with Markov to pair with him in public, for he wanted my name to be coupled with Clermanagh's. It would give me power over his future, and even if the Duke told people that he was lending me a copy, they wouldn't believe it. They would have laughed at the idea of Pavoya accepting false pearls. Clermanagh sent to London for the things. My wearing them made a sensation. Markov was wild with rage when he saw what they were. Wild against Clermanagh, not me. He believed that I had been tricked. Of course the copy was of no use to him. He did not take it. But he would not let me give it back to the Duke. He was working up a scheme of blackmail against us both. I dared not disobey. And once the mischief was done by my wearing the rope, Clermanagh didn't much mind whether I kept it or not. I pretended to forget and he didn't mention the subject. Then I got this surprise offer to dance in New York. I was so glad. I thought I might get rid of Markov. How foolish. He sailed in the ship with the Duke and Duchess, but kept out of their way. Clermanagh never knew he was on board, and perhaps wouldn't have remembered him from those old Petrograd days if he had seen his face. Now we come to these last few days in New York, Lita finished. Do you begin to see Markov's game? Not quite, Jack answered. It was the first time he had spoken since she began her story. It isn't clear to me yet, at least where Pat Clermont was concerned. It wasn't to me at first, but Markov made it clear. He didn't try direct blackmail against the Duke. He was afraid, I think, that Clermont would fight, even though he'd hate scandal for his wife's sake. I was the cat's paw. Markov really did have letters which I sent to him in those hateful days when I had to content him with a pretense of spying. There were always those to hold over my head, and he threatened to order the wearing of those wretched false pearls again as an open insult to the Duchess. He thought that, for answer, she would wear the real ones. 
Then he would be sure they were in New York, and he might have the chance at last which he had been trying for all these years, the chance to steal them. By Jove, you are unraveling the whole mystery, Jack broke out. But Lydia shook her head. No, I'm afraid you'll not think that when you've heard what's to come, she said. I'm afraid I shall make the mystery even deeper. I was faced with shame for myself and the ruin of Clermont's happiness through my fault, my seeming selfishness. The alternative was money, oh, but a great sum of money, enough to console Markov for giving up his hope of the pearls. Never till then had I told Klermanov Markov's tyranny. But for his own sake and mine, I had to explain something. We consulted about what was best to be done. Klermanov wished to do what he called wave the red flag. But I made him realize what his wife's feelings would be if he were mixed up in such a case of law with me. At last we agreed that it would be wise to pay Markov and be free of him. I earn a great deal of money and spend it. It took some time to get the sum together. I sold nearly all my jewels, and what I didn't sell, I pawned. Still there wasn't enough, and Clermont came to the rescue. He said it was for himself, but of course it was far more for me. It was only when the money was every sou in hand that I dared give back the imitation pearls. I went to do that when you met me at the door. To do that, and to hand Clermont two-thirds of the hush money for Markov. The rest he had ready in his safe. He offered, he wanted, to meet the man and exchange the money for the letters. Now, Captain Manners, you know the whole history of the pavoya Clermontau affair, but perhaps you don't yet understand all the reasons why I've told it, two hours after we were introduced to each other, you and I. Her eyes challenged him. Jack saw that she wished him to understand, so he did not mean to make a mistake. He thought before he spoke. I wonder, he said. I could be more sure where I am if I knew whether you're in the secret of Pat's doings tonight. Little looked puzzled and pale. His doings? Tonight? No, last night I saw Markov and got back the letters. But tonight's doings? No. I'm not in the secret, if there is a secret. Jack caught at her words. He was intensely excited by what she had told him, but kept his outward coolness. Little had gone through a great strain. He did not care to alarm her needlessly. You say Pat saw Markov and got the letters. You're sure of that? Yes, he sent me the letters with a short note, just after receiving them, saying all was right. Did the note come from home? No, from a club. The Grumblers. It was written rather late. Didn't Pat say anything about himself? Where he was going from the club? What had happened since you met? Or what he meant to do today? Nothing except he was riding in a hurry after settling up with Markov and seeing the last of him, for he had something rather important to do. That was all, absolutely all. Captain Manners, you look strange. What have you to tell me in exchange for my story? Why, to begin with, I don't understand as I thought I did why you've told it, Jack stammered. I imagined it was because you knew Pat and my cousin had quarreled, that he had left her, or anyhow disappeared and you wanted me to justify you with Juliet. Lita stared at him across the table, her hand suddenly pressed over her heart. Mon Dieu, she whispered. Clermont disappeared? But, went on Jack, collecting his wits, if you didn't know, what did you mean when you said that Markov's hand in the pearl business didn't clear up the mystery, but only made it more mysterious? 
I meant, of course, those innuendos in that horrible paper. The hints that the Duchess was wearing false pearls. It is not to Markov's advantage to start such a rumor now. He has nothing to gain. No longer any hold over Clermont or me. He would do himself no good, but much harm. Oh, Captain Manners, where can the Duke be? I came here tonight racking my brains vainly as to that, Jack encouraged her. Now, thanks to you, I've something to go upon, something to tell the detective whom I shall see first thing tomorrow. This Markov is my starting point now. His scheme of years is to steal the pearls. How he can have got into the house, opened the safe, taken the things out of the box, and sealed it up again with the false pearls inside. I can't see yet, but... Lydia sprang to her feet. You say he has done that? Someone has done that. You, uh, Pat didn't tell you in his letter about what had happened to the box you must have seen? No, no, he didn't mention the pearls or the box. Who discovered the theft? Juliet. Pat gave her the sealed packet, and she's rather an expert. She found the pearls were false. Yet she wore them. Yes. Then that was because she thought I. Don't say it. Can you say it wasn't her thoughts? She accused her own husband, whom she adores. Or me. Was that not it? Jack was silent. With a little cry, Lydia covered her face with her hands, and he saw that she trembled. Hardly knowing what he did, he went to her, took the two cold hands and held them to his lips. She looked up to him with eyes bright with tears, and the next instant she was in his arms. We'll work together, he said, you and I. We'll drag this mystery up by the roots. We'll find Pat, wherever he is, and Juliet shall beg your pardon on her knees. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of The Great Pearl Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 15 The Fortune Teller Manners did not go to his hotel when he left Lydda. He walked for miles. He was happy. He was proud. He was wretched. He was ashamed. He believed in Lydda Pavoya. He doubted her. There would not have been room for the volcano of his feelings between four walls. That moment when he had held her in his arms had been the most wonderful, if not the greatest, in his life. But it had been only a moment. Her surrender for a few seconds had seemed to him then the most exquisite thing in the world. The childlike longing for a man's chivalrous protection in the heart of a woman who had known little chivalry. In an instant, she had drawn herself gently away, and he had not held her. He had wished Lydda to know that if he did not understand everything, at least he understood why she had crept into his arms for that brief breathing space, and that he would take no advantage of her yielding. He had armored himself with an almost exaggerated friendliness afterward, and for a while they had talked not at all of themselves, but of Juliet and Pat. They tried to form some theory which might account for the disappearance of the pearls from the locked safe whose combination was known to only two persons. The replacing of the parcel there, sealed with fresh seals. They had striven to implicate Markov in the affair, 
but all their deductions stumbled against the same blank wall in the end. It seemed impossible that Markov could even have entered the house, much less have got into the study or opened the safe. Lydia did not know how Pat had obtained the money to help her out with the payment to Markov. It had not seemed strange to her that he should have it. Looking back, it seemed strange now, yet it was incredible that he should have juggled with the packet and risked losing his wife's respect by palming off false pearls on her in order to get money for another woman. Incredible. And yet Lydia said, like one in a dream, that he was the only person who could have done the thing, except herself. I know I didn't do it. And yes, I know he didn't do it, she cried to Jack. So again, and again, they came through darkness to that blank wall. And at last, deadly tired in body and brain, Lydia sent Manners away. He was all exultation at first. The glamour and perfume of her ran through his veins. She was noble, magnificent. It was great of this glowing creature to trust him so generously, to tell him her life story, putting herself in his power in a way, for the sake of Claremanagh's happiness. It was fine of her to say he might repeat all to Juliet, who, Lydia must know, detested and distrusted her with the obstinacy of a spoiled, jealous child, to say that, if necessary, a detective might be trusted with her secrets. But as the chill of the night iced his veins, Jack's mood changed. Juliet's point of view suddenly showed itself sharply to his eyes. It was as if she had come from round the corner of the last street he had passed to walk with him. Had Lydia told him the story for Claremanagh's sake and Juliet's? Why not for her own, in the daring wish to make a friend at court? Would that not be more like her, more like the woman she was supposed to be? She knew that he had seen her go into the fair house, that he must have guessed she was hidden in the study, that he was Juliet's cousin and would naturally be inclined to work for Juliet's interest. Would it not be a bold and clever stroke to win him to her side? If it were some other man, not himself, whose prejudices had been thus broken down in an hour by a woman's eyes and voice, wouldn't he pity the poor idiot who believed that he alone fathomed the depths of her smile? Lydia practically admitted that she had fooled many men. Some of them had doubtless known far more about women than he knew. Why, she must have been laughing at him all through. He had been a child in her hands. Lies that were half-truths could be welded into a fabric hard to break down. No doubt there were true details in that life story of Pavoya. But how many true ones? And was it fine of her to consent that he should tell Juliet, and if necessary, a detective? Wasn't that just what she'd worked up to and wanted? Wasn't she purposely turning suspicion toward Pat when she said, as if dazed, that only he or she could have changed the pearls? Jack heard himself again, warmly promising that they two should work together, that they'd drag up the mystery by the roots, and that Juliet should beg her pardon. A spider's dainty web of opal gauze glittering with dew must look a fairy palace to a big blundering blue bottle. Did such a man as Markov from Petrograd even exist? Dawn flowed like a pale river through the canyons of the New York streets when Manor's walk ended at his own hotel. He felt as if he had been through a battle, a battle that he hadn't won, but a cold splash and then dead sleep for an hour braced him physically. He woke with a start, as if somebody had knocked, yet no one was at the door. 
The thought of food disgusted him. Hot, strong black coffee, however, was refreshing. It was early still, yet he was sure that Juliet would be awake and called her up, learning at once that she had no news. Yes, he had things to tell, he answered her eager question. Not news exactly, but important. Before going to her, however, he intended to see the detective they'd talked about. A man named Henry Sanders used to be in the police. Sharp chap, had the nickname of Hawkeye Harry, retired, but got bored with doing nothing and started as a private detective. Had made a big success in the last few years. Absolutely to be trusted, silent as the grave and sharp as a razor. Jack added that he knew the man personally, and, as he didn't wish to wait for office hours, would ring Sanders up at his own house. He would call there and tell the man something of the case to save Juliet useless questions and answers. Then, he hoped, they could both come round to see her. As it turned out, however, Manners went alone to the fair house. He had not seen Sanders, the detective, to whom Jack had vainly tried to phone the night before, had not yet returned from the country, where he had spent the last few days. He had luckily left word that he would be at his office by 10 o'clock, and having sent a request for an immediate appointment there, Jack was ready for a talk with his cousin. It was hard to put Lita Pavoya's case impersonally and impartially to Juliet. As he framed the story in his own words, he saw Lita again as he had seen her last night, heard her sweet, vibrating voice with its delicious accent. The glamour of the woman took possession of him once more. He tried to be judicial, but he could be so only in manner. Telling the tale, he was impressed with the way detail after detail fitted itself into probability. And as Juliet's face showed how the door of her mind shut against Lydda, his own opened. He had left Lydda and had become her judge. Juliet's silent antagonism made him again Lydda Pavoya's defender. I don't believe one word, Juliet flamed out when he had finished. Manners found himself quite unreasonably angry. He, who had walked the streets raging against his own weakness for Pavoya. You wanted me to get her story, he said. Well, I've got it, and all you have to say is that it's a pack of lies. I can do no more. Juliet felt stricken. Do you mean you take it all as gospel truth yourself? She challenged. It seems to me to hang together perfectly. It would. She's clever as a serpent. Jack frowned. You don't seem pleased to have your own husband turned into a hero instead of a villain. Color flew to Juliet's pale cheeks. I don't need Lita Pavoya to do that for me. Then, said Manners coolly, you make this distinction. You believe the good part about Pat and not the good part about her. Juliet broke into tears. Oh, Jack, she reproached him. I might have known. You've gone over absolutely to the enemy. Jack was conscience-stricken, for in a way it was true. He tried to console the girl as he had consoled her yesterday, and in the old days when she was a child. There was no enemy, he said, or at all events the enemy wasn't Mademoiselle Pavoya. It was essential that they should at least seem to work in harmony. Juliet must trust him. She must pull herself together and be ready soon to see the detective. The Duchess was quieter when he had argued for a while and patted her shoulder and called her darling child. She dried her tears and promised to be good. But when Jack had gone to keep his appointment at Sanders' office, 
her heart was lead. He's Pavoya's man now, she said to herself. Having Lydia's permission to speak, and knowing Sanders to be trustworthy, Manners kept nothing back. He began with a brief outline of the history of the pearls and Pat's business transaction with Mayan. This brought him to the arrival of the messenger with the packet and its delivery in his own presence. There, for the first time, Sanders stopped him and asked questions. What had been Defascal's manner? What the Duke's? And Jack believed that his answers impressed the detective favorably toward the Frenchman. It proved the messenger's bona fides that he had insisted upon the opening of the box in his presence. Besides, after the theft, it appeared certain that the new seals had been made with the Duke's ring. And before that could have happened, Manners had seen Defascal leave the house. Sanders would, of course, wish to meet Defascal, but would prefer to talk with the Duchess first of all. Whether Mademoiselle Pavoya's version of her visit to the fair house and her acquaintance with the Duke were true remained to be seen. Sanders had never heard of Markov, but would take immediate steps through the aid of his best boys to find out all about the man, if he existed. As for the Duke, the detective didn't mind admitting to Jack as a friend, not in an official capacity, that he didn't yet believe there had been foul play. He wasn't sure that in Claremanagh's place, assuming his injured innocence, he wouldn't have gone away to punish his wife. These spoiled heiresses are the limit when they get going, he said. And this Duke chap's Irish. I'm Irish myself. We fellows can't sit still even when the prettiest woman forgets the Marquis of Queensberry's rules in a scrap. It gets our goat. Jack was not sure whether Juliet would prefer an outside opinion that Pat had been kidnapped or had left her of his own free will. But the girl's pale beauty bowled Sanders over at first sight. His prejudice against the spoiled heiress melted like ice in morning sunlight, and his Irish heart, as well as his trained discretion, kept back any word which he thought might wound her. The assumption, meant to be comforting, that with Markov lay the clue to the mystery, was, however, salt on an unhealed scar for Juliet. She took it instantly for granted that Sanders agreed with Jack in believing Lydia Pavoya had told the truth. They're going the wrong way to work she thought bitterly when the two men had gone, promising a report the moment there should be news of any sort. The wrong way! If they find out where Pat is, it will be just blundering. By accident. It thwarted wretchedness. The girl realized that it would be worse than useless to make such protests to Sanders. He was the detective, not she. Though he had complimented her upon her smartness in the matter of the ring and the magnifying glass, he would only pity and despise her for jealousy and prejudice if she gave him the advice she burned to give. And Jack, Jack was hopeless. He was lost to her. She felt as miserably alone as if Jack had not promised to be her knight, and as if he had not brought to her one of the best private detectives in the land. She longed to strike out on her own account, to be first in the field and be able to say to these men, see, while you were wandering all round Robin Hood's barn, I found the place where the secret was buried and dug it up. It was mostly about Pat that Juliet thought, and his disappearance. Upon the pearls she wasted little anxiety, though she hated to think that Pavoya should have them. She had cried out to Pat that she believed not one word of the dancer's story, and she had meant it at the time. But brooding alone over the history of Pavoya's years and the link between her and Pat, Juliet found herself almost arbitrarily accepting certain details here and there. 
Yes, that must have been the way those two first met. Pat had told her that he had heard the call of romance in Russia, his great-great-grandfather's romance, and had left Oxford to spend the long vacation among those scenes. How like Pat at 19 to create a romance of his own on the same spot. Her heart yearned to Pat with the thought that he had helped Pavoya because of charity, not love. In that case, he had told the truth, or as much truth as his wife could expect of a man where women were concerned. But certainly, Juliet assured herself, Pavoya had loved Pat and moved heaven and earth to compromise him. That was really why she asked him to lend her the pearls. No doubt she'd begged for the real ones, and he'd lent her a copy. She'd kept the wretched beads, not because of some melodramatic blackmail stunt, but because she wished to wear them as if they were real and get herself talked about with Pat. Then he'd married, and having sent to France for the true pearls for his wife, he couldn't leave the false ones knocking about for Pavoya to play with. He'd practically ordered the woman to return them, and in revenge, when an amazing chance came her way, Pavoya had somehow stolen the genuine rope, changing the contents of the packet. It all seemed clearer and clearer to Juliet, and she wondered that a man with such good brains as Jack could be so easily deceived. In pride of her own superior talent as a detective, the girl would have had moments of triumphant joy had it not been for her wearing anxiety about Pat. Days passed. Pat did not return or write to Juliet or the bank, and no news of importance was obtained for her by Sanders or Jack. Markov, the detective, was unable to trace by name, though he had got upon the track of a Russian who had lately arrived in New York with some good introductions. His description answered that given of Conrad Markov by Mademoiselle Pavoya. Horace Halbin, who had figured at various New York clubs and was now supposed to have sailed for France, was a person of inconspicuous appearance. So too was Markov. Many Russians over 40 are darkish, stoutish, big-faced, blunt-featured, with beards turning gray. Juliet bravely kept up the fiction with her friends that she and Pat were on the best of terms. He was away on business for the bank. He would soon return. That story about the pearls being false was too silly for words. The reason she'd stopped wearing them was because she had broken the string and didn't want the responsibility of choosing the person to mend it till Pat came back. The girl would have given thousands of dollars for the privilege of sporting her oak and refused to see the many people whose devotion she attributed to curiosity. But for the sake of the future, and her own pride's sake, she would not do that. She went out a good deal, kept all her engagements, and made new ones. Her nerves, however, revenged themselves upon her mercilessly. Once she had hardly realized that she possessed such things as nerves. Now they made themselves felt each moment of the day, and through hours of the long, restless nights. Against his will, Sanders had consented to an advertisement appearing in the personal column of several papers. Juliet had pleaded that no one would know for whom it was meant, and she would die if she couldn't put it in. Consequently, curious eyes in many cities of the United States were reading every day this appeal. Playboy, American Beauty, believes in you and wants you. Write or come back if you would not break her heart. Who could guess that the Duchess of Claremont's pet name for the Duke was Playboy, and that he had sent her American Beauty roses every day since they were engaged, because it was the name he had found sweetest, most appropriate for her. Yet someone must have guessed, because in the inner circle, 
A week after the sensational Pearl Whisper, the secret was given away. No names were mentioned, yet none who knew the Claremanaghs could have avoided reading between the lines. It was while Juliet sat with the paper in her hands, shamed, bewildered, almost stunned, that a sealed envelope was brought on a tray to her boudoir. Mechanically, she opened it. Within was a visiting card, with something written upon it in pencil. For an instant, the girl's bruised brain could not find the Comtesse de Saint-Ville in the index of her memory. Then, suddenly, she saw the woman, playing opposite her at some bridge table. Yes, of course, little Pavoya's friend. Forgive my calling uninvited. I hope you can see me. I have something to say which may be important to you. The woman, whom Juliet vaguely disliked, had scribbled in French under her name. Juliet thought for a minute, with the card in her hand. It seemed pushing of this person to come, and probably if she, Juliet, consented to see her, she would regret the weakness. Still, the one really important thing on earth was news of Pat. Madame de Saint-Ville might know something. She might have quarreled with Pavoya and be ready to give her away. Bring the lady up here, the Duchess instructed Huji. Presently, the visitor was shown in, and Juliet, rising to receive her, towered like a tall young goddess over a small, smart creature, painted to look as pretty as she thought she ought to be. She'll begin to speak of Pavoya, Juliet thought, but she was mistaken. I have come on a very queer errand, were the Countess's first words, spoken with much throaty rolling of R's. Perhaps you will be angry. I made up my mind only today that it was my duty to call. Her eyes darted to the inner circle which Juliet had just thrown aside, and quickly returned to a flower with which she herself was playing. But Juliet read that side glance to mean, after reading that paper today, I decided. When people tell one it's a duty to say or do something in particular, it's generally disagreeable. Juliet said dryly, Ah, this is an exception. It is not disagreeable at all. I hope it is only unusual, replied the Comtesse de Saint-Ville. But I will not keep you in suspense. Have you ever heard of a palmist and fortune teller named Madame Venot? Possibly. I'm not sure, answered Juliet, surprised. She is not, or rather, she has not been fashionable, I think, explained the other. I have not lived long enough in New York to know these things. I happened to hear of her through a friend of mine, yours also, is it not? Miss Billy Lowndes. It was there I met you once. Mrs. Lowndes knew I was interested in the psychic things, crystal gazing, palmistry. She spoke of Madame Venot, who was supposed to be only a manicurist. Her real profession is a secret. It has to be. It seems that Madame Venot is a name several women have used, like, one would say a trade name, because they have hired the same rooms or offices, and Madame Venot manicurist is on a door plate. That is odd, is it not? But the first Madame Venot died, or something. The present one is, ah, Duchess, she is marvelous. She has told me things about myself, but things only le bon Dieu or le diable had in their knowledge. Naturally, I have been to her more than once. Last time she looked through her crystal. I do not know if that is forbidden by your law. En tout cas, she does it. The picture she saw must have been strange. 
It seemed to frighten her. When I asked some questions, she said the vision was not for me. It was for another. Why it came, she could not tell unless that person was in my thoughts. Then, Duchess, she spoke your name. The picture was for you. Really? exclaimed Juliet. She pretended to be amused, but the woman's tone was meant to impress, and did impress, the girl in spite of herself. What did the picture represent? Madame Venot did not mention, except that it concerned the Duke. She felt it would be wrong to speak, if not to you alone. She wished me to give you a message, to say, if you would come to her place, she would look again in the crystal, and tell you what she saw. I did not like to call on you. I am not long enough of your acquaintance. But today, don't be afraid to speak out what's in your thoughts, Juliet said with a painful smile. You have read the inner circle. You think the disgusting whisperer is right, that the advertisement which people have been talking about is mine. Of course, that's all nonsense. Please tell everybody you meet who is interested in my affairs, but probably you meant to be kind. Anyhow, I think fortune tellers are great fun. I shall go to this one someday soon. When I have time, you'll give me the address. Par coincidence, Madame Vanneau is in the same building with that Journal de Blas, replied the Comtesse. It goes without saying that they have no connection, one with the other. It is a mere accident. Mrs. Lowndes has told me that the first woman of that trade name, Madame Vanneau, was really a manicurist. So it was necessary to have an office and not be in a private house in some quiet street. I see, said Juliet. I must thank you for coming. As Madame knows my name, she must know a good deal about me, so her pictures won't be as exciting as if I went to her a stranger, but they may be amusing. Her tone, though perfectly courteous, was meant to end the interview. Madame de Sainville rose. Juliet did the same and rang. The moment she was alone, she ran to her bedroom and commanded Simone, who was there, to give her a hat and coat. She had said she would go some day to Madame Vanneau, but she was going now, at once. At once. End of chapter 15. Chapter 16 of The Great Pearl Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 16 The Grey Room. Pat Claremanagh floated in a grey sea, under a grey sky. It seemed to him that the grey sea and sky were part of some existence after death. He vaguely remembered that he had died. If it were not for the constant heavy pain in his head, he thought that he could recall the whole incident. Yes, that was the word. Incident. It hardly mattered now, and wasn't worth while racking his brain over. That tin hat of his was too tight, much too tight. But he was too weak to lift his hands and take it off. Strange, though, that he should be wearing it when he was dead. He must have been killed in the war. Yet how long ago the war seemed. He had thought that a great many things had happened to him after the war. No doubt they were part of this dream. This long, floating dream. After death. 
but they were not grey like the leaden sea and the sky that hung so low over his head. They were beautiful, colourful things. Just straining to remember brought rainbow flashes across his brain. Out of these lights, the girl's face looked at him. Juliet, he heard himself mutter in a thick, tongue-tied voice. Instantly another face appeared and blotted out that of the girl. This one was solid and very real. It bent over him in the greyness. A man's face, somehow familiar, as if he had known it long ago. Long ago disliked it. A fleshy bulk surrounded with hair. He loathed it for itself and hated it for shutting out the vision of Juliet. So he closed his eyes. For a moment consciousness died down like a fading flame. Only a vast, vague greyness was left, and the tight pain of the tin hat. But when a few moments or a few years had passed, a voice spoke. It beat upon his dulled intelligence like the strokes of a clock in the dark, telling an hour. Pat was suddenly keyed up to listening, because it was a woman's voice, and far down within himself he was aware that a woman's voice, a certain woman's voice, was what he yearned to hear. Strange! He was wide awake, and knowledge came to him that he was not dead after all, though he might be close to death. But he did not open his eyes, because he could not bear to see the living mass of flesh and hair again. He lay quite still, and he listened. "'You are always hanging over him like that whenever I turn my back,' said the woman. "'Why not? I do no harm,' answered a man's voice, with a rather soft, monotonous, foreign accent. Pat knew that the voice belonged to the face. It also had association with long past things, which was somehow important. A scene began forming in his tired mind, like bits of an old picture being matched together.' a room with tables and men drinking and smoking, a cleared space, a kind of stage, a girl dancing, slim, lovely, light as a fawn, long red hair waving back and forth. Lida, that was her name. Lida something. He was at one of the tables, very young, only a boy, and the hairy man sat with him, talking, praising the girl. Markov! He stopped, remembering, and listened again. You'd do harm if you dared to, the woman said. You'd like to kill him. I think it will be better for us all if he die, said the man. Much better, much safer. But no violence. Let him go. Fade away. I thought it would soon be finished with him. Then he opened his eyes and looked at me. You hear him speak some word. Yes, I heard him, the woman answered. It's the first time he's made a sound since... Except a sort of groaning. I'm jolly glad. We don't want him to drop off the hooks. Not much. You are very foolish, madam. He can give your husband and the others away. It is only me who have nothing to fear. He do not see me there. Yet I am witness against any ones who treat me wrong. Pooh, said the woman. You are always harping on your powers to hurt us. It's nil. The hunt's out for you. 
Mr. Markoff or Halbin or whatever you like to be, if we're keeping you for our own sakes because you haven't paid up. Anyhow, it's your game to lie low. You daren't show your nose outside this door, but for heaven's sake, let's stop arguing. I'm for nothing in that part of the business. You have all got some plan you try to work behind my back, growled the man. I tell you enough times, the money will come. When it comes, you'll get the pearls, if it comes in time. That's the rub. The word pearls was like a key. It unlocked the door of Pat's memory, and impressions flowed in. But they were confused, without beginning or end, and he lay motionless, hoping for more clues. He was conscious that the woman leaned over him. She brought with her a heavy oriental perfume, and he felt a waft of warm breath on his face. "'Are you awake?' she asked, speaking slowly. "'Do you know what happened to hurt you, eh?' Pat did not show by the quiver of an eyelid that he had heard. "'When he come back to himself, and by, he will remember everything, perhaps. "'And then where will you all be?' the man wanted to know. "'He never will remember unless there's someone to give him the tip. "'People don't remember with concussion,' the woman said." So that was what he had, concussion of the brain. Pat wondered how he had got it. One of the impressions filtering back was of hitting a man and hearing him squeal. What had followed was a blank like everything since. Maybe some other man had hit him from behind. The woman moved away and cautiously Pat opened his eyes. The greyness was still there, but it was more definite, more commonplace, as if belonging to earth and things of everyday life. He thought that he must be lying on his back in a bed, looking straight up at a low grey ceiling. There were grey walls too, but he could not turn his head to see more, as his neck was stiff and painful. The light was so dim that he imagined it must be drawing toward dusk in a room with small windows partly covered with curtains. More talking went on at a distance between the man and woman. Sometimes it sounded so far off that Pat wondered if there was an adjoining room with an open door. Presently, when all had been silent for so long that he had almost dozed off, there was a sudden explosion of voices. The listener fancied that there were two new ones, both voices of men, and one he recognized, though irritatingly, he could not attach the right name label. He kept his eyes closed, because he was sure that the latecomers would look at him, and his caution was rewarded. Someone turned on a light. The two new voices mumbled in sickbed whispers across his pillow. He caught a word here and there, again, the pearls, Markov, and the Duchess. The last gave him an odd thrill. Juliet! She had been angry. How was she feeling now? Was she seeking for him? Or did she give him credit for running off with the pearls? Or Lyda? Or both together? The thought that this might be so, probably was so, made him long to spring up and fight his way to his wife somehow. And perhaps he could not have resisted attempting to move had not a sudden noise snapped the thread of his thought. A quarrel had broken out over something between the men. All three voices rose sharply. 
The woman intervened and was rebuked. Then came a squall of rage, instantly stifled. The woman screamed and drew in her breath with a gasp. All was still again. Hark! whispered someone. The light went out. In place of the greyness, blackness fell. Pat could hear the pounding of his own heart, and another sound almost hidden by the noise in his breast. He thought that stairs were squeaking under a stealthy foot. End of chapter 16「Chapter Seventeen of the Great Pearl Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Siobhan McKelpin. Chapter Seventeen The Crystal. Have you an appointment, madam? asked the elderly woman who opened the door of Madame Vino's flat for Juliet. She was a person of almost oppressively respectable appearance, with gray hair parted in the middle, gold rimmed prince nays resting on a thin nose, and a neat body clad in black silk. If Madame Vino needed a chaperone, her door opener was ideal. Juliet had run upstairs so fast that she was breathing hard. Passing the office of the inner circle had disgusted her. She felt contaminated, almost ill. But the sight of this woman was like a dash of cool water on a hot forehead. I have no appointment, she answered, but I came because of a message. I'm the Duchess of Clernemain. Pleased to walk in, madam, said the woman, without any evidence of being impressed. I will give you a private room to wait in. They stood in a hall, white paneled, carpeted with red. The spruce black silk figure threw open a door, and Juliet entered a tiny room, hardly more than a closet. The only furnishing consisted of a luxurious easy chair, a table on which there were magazines and a box of cigarettes, and on the wall a mirror. This mirror was opposite the chair, and behind the chair was a second door. Anyone opening that door would see a reflected image of the sitter in the chair. As Juliet sank into the chintz-covered depths, the murmur of voices reached her. She thought, in fact, that she had heard sounds from two rooms, one on each side of the tiny cubicle in which she had been put to wait. This little hole is for special visitors, she told herself. Probably that woman was ordered to bring me here if I came. Madame Vino's room must be on the right side of this, and it's her voice I hear on the side, talking to a client. On the left, I suppose, it's the ordinary waiting room, full of people jabbering to each other about Madame Vino and, and the wonderful things they've heard about her from their friends. Or else it's a room where they keep up the practice of manicuring clients' nails. But I'm sure she means to sneak me in ahead of them. Julia was right. In less than ten minutes, there was a click of a latch, and the door opposite the mirror opened. In the long glass, her eyes met the smiling ones of a pale, dark woman with a clever, somewhat common face. There was nothing mystic about her appearance, but on the other hand, there was nothing meretricious, no attempt at eastern allurements. Juliet had already guessed from the ordinary furnishing of the flat that Madame Vino's metier was clean, straightforward frankness, as opposed to the cult of dim rooms, purple curtains, and incense. 
Now this impression was confirmed. The one false note was a heavy perfume such as some women adore and are unable to resist. I'm glad to see you, Duchess, said the woman. I hoped you would call, and I'm going to slip you in before the others who are waiting their turn. They won't know, so no harm's done. Will you come into my room? She spoke cheerfully, briskly, rather more like an Englishwoman than an American, and Juliet wondered if she were an English Jewess. The door led into an alcove of a fair-sized room decorated in green. It was as little as possible like the mysterious sanctum of an ordinary fortune-teller or crystal-gazer. Juliet had seen two or three of these in several countries. They had always been Egyptian, or at least reminiscent of Leon Baxt. This might have been any woman's boudoir, but when Madame Vino had drawn the thin green curtains, the place seemed to fill with an emerald dusk, like the dusk of dreams, or the green dimness under sea. I suppose you think I'm not very psychic, the mistress of the room remarked placing a chair for her visitor on a table covered with a square of green velvet. People do think that. Then, when they've consulted me, they're surprised sometimes. They get better results than from those who go in for what I call scenery. You know what I mean? Yes, said Juliet. I suppose I do know. All I want to put me in the right frame of mind is green, explained Madame Vino. This kind of green twilight. She switched away the velvet covering from the table. Underneath was a cushion and a crystal which reflected the prevailing color. Then she sat down opposite the Duchess. The Countess told you what happened when I was looking into the crystal for her? She asked. Madame de Saintville said that you saw something which concerned me. But how do you know it concerned me? Your face came into the crystal. I'd seen your photograph and recognized you. Besides, I felt, I felt you were in great trouble. What else did you see in the crystal? Let me look again. Now you are here and see if the same thing comes. As she spoke, Madame Vino bent forward and gazed closely into the transparent ball on a black base. Some moments passed in dead silence. Juliet watched the woman's features, which became fixed and mask-like. Suddenly, Madame Vino started slightly and began to speak. I see a handsome young man, very charming. It is your husband, Duchess. He is lying ill in a poor room. Seems to be a kind of a cellar. He tosses about. He is delirious. He calls for you. I know that because at the same time I see the picture, I hear his voice. The name is Juliet. I think he has had an accident, but I, I can't see what it was. I only know that he has hurt his head. I feel the pain myself, and I feel what he is thinking about you and something else. Ah, a rope of pearls. Now I get a whisper. It comes to me from his thoughts. He went in search of something that was lost, a thing of great value. Yes, the pearls. Did he get them? Juliet asked mechanically. 
She had little, if any, faith in the woman, but a faint thrill ran through her. She could not help being slightly impressed by the seeress's change of manner and the hypnotized look in her eyes. He got them, and then they were taken away. But they are in the house where he is. It is not a good house. It is a house of thieves. Ah, I must find out where it is, or I can do you no good. Or else, if I cannot find the house, I must will the man who has got the pearls to communicate with me. I see him plainly. Why shouldn't he communicate with me? asked Juliet. Willpower doesn't act like that, explained Madame Vino. I could create a cord between another intelligence and my own. Not between two outside intelligences. Ah, the picture has faded from the crystal. But it will come again, and for the moment we've seen enough. I have the man's face clearly before my eyes. I will concentrate upon him as I have never concentrated before. I feel sure of the power to draw him to me. How? Juliet inquired. I can't tell yet. He may be impelled to consult me about his future, to have his luck foretold. That's the light I will work on in exerting influence. I shall remember his face from the crystal. I can't make a mistake. Once I get him here, I shan't hesitate to use hypnotism. If that succeeds, I'll phone you to come round at once. With a detective, said Juliet. Madame Vino's face changed, flushing slightly over its sallowness. Oh no, Duchess, she explained emphatically. That wouldn't do at all. Women in my profession can't encourage detectives to come spying into their methods. So far I've never had any trouble, but I've had to be very careful. Detectives are the enemy. I shall be very sorry indeed to be disobliging, but I'm afraid I must let this business drop unless you give me your word not to bring a detective into it. Indeed, I think I must ask you not to bring any third party. If you promise this, I don't think I'm conceited in saying I can positively make you an important promise in return. By my willpower, I will do for you what no detective on this earth could do. I'll draw into your circle the man who has got your husband lying helpless in this house, and who has got your pearls. Do you believe I am able to do this, or do you not? I can't say I quite believe, Juliet confessed. She might have been more definite, yet not had gone beyond the truth. She might have said, What I think is that you're a trickster. If there's anything in this at all beyond mere nonsense, you know where my husband is, and you're playing a deep game for money. But something warned the girl not to say this. She was afraid to say it. Afraid to make the seeress afraid. If Pat had been kidnapped, and this woman were a cat's paw of those who wanted a ransom, Juliet was willing to pay. If only Pat were true. If only he hadn't left her of his own free will for the love of Lida. She would give every penny she had in the world to get him back, and not grudge it. She reflected hastily that... If Madame Vino took her for a fool, it would be better to let it go at that, rather than risk losing a chance, possibly the only chance, of saving Pat. As for telling Jack and Sanders secretly, 
This course must be decided later. There was surely no more harm in deceiving such a woman than in tricking a dangerous animal, so far as moral principles were concerned. The one question was, could Madame Vino safely be deceived, or would she find a way of forcing a promise to be kept? That question was answered at once. I don't blame you, said Madame, with a good-natured smile. These great forces of nature are beyond belief to those who haven't tested them. But I know by experience what I can do. I know also what I can't do. I can do nothing if the people whose interests I serve work against me consciously or unconsciously. Now, I read your mind as I read the crystal. I see you're thinking whether or not to make a mental reservation about that promise. Well, I don't want to control you, Duchess, though I could do so. But if you bring anyone into this, the whole effort will be in vain. I might get the man we want here. I might hypnotize him to the point of speaking out. I might phone you. And yet, if you weren't alone, or if someone were spying outside, my power over him would break like that. She snapped her fingers together, her black eyes holding Juliet's. Now, she went on when she'd gotten her effect. I'm going to give you a proof of good faith. My fee for a consultation, just an ordinary one, not a special like this, is $25. No, don't take out your purse, Duchess. I won't accept a cent unless I bring off the stunt. The rest is up to you. Very well, said Juliet, on a sudden resolution. Let it be so. I'll promise what you ask, and I'll keep my promise. If you send for me, I'll come alone, and I'll tell nobody. But I'm not a child. I must protect myself in some way. When I start for your place next time, I shall leave a letter for my cousin, Captain Manners, to be delivered by hand if I'm not back in two hours after leaving home. In the letter, I shall tell him everything. But it won't be sent if all goes right. So if you play fair, you've nothing to dread. Unless the letter should be sent to your cousin by mistake. My maid is a very intelligent woman, said Juliet. She doesn't make mistakes. Oh, you'll leave the letter with your maid, echoed Madame Vino. Yes, do you agree to the arrangement? I do, returned Madame. Juliet rose to go. She was feeling intensely excited, if not really hopeful. Even if there were a plot, it seemed as if it might be the best way of setting to work, and she saw herself beating Sanders as a detective. So far, he had made only trifling discoveries. Fingerprints on the safe which told nothing. Since they were Pat and Lida Pavoyas, there were no clues which might solve the mystery of Pat's disappearance or lead to finding the lost pearls. As for Jack, he was Lida's man now. He believed the story which explained the fingerprints. She, Julia might soon show these two men that alone she had accomplished more than either in solving the double mystery. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 of The Great Pearl Secret This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria de Fatima da Silva. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 18 The Bargain. Two days passed, and small as Juliet's faith in Madame Vino, she did not stir from the house lest the woman should telephone in her absence. The strain of constant suspense was like a screw tightening her nerves to breaking point. Her irritation grew against Jack, who persisted in warning her that she would repent her suspicions of Leda Pavoya. To his mind, apparently, the dancer's story accounted for everything. Leda had volunteered a statement that she had touched the safe after Claremana opened it, and she had offered to give Sanders her own fingerprints in order that they might be identified with those taken on the door of the safe, the only ones found there with the exception of the Duke's. Even this fact that there should be no other marks visible didn't prejudice Jack against the siren. According to him, and he said to Sanders, the real thief or thieves had used rubber gloves. As for Sanders, he tried to calm the Duchess's impatience by assuring her that everything possible was being done. He even had a theory. But of what comfort was that to her as he refused to tell her what it was until, or if, he could obtain positive proof. It hardly interested Juliet that he should have cabled Monsieur Mayen and learned in reply that there was no scratch on the duplicate ring given Mayen by Pat. She hadn't for a moment supposed there would be. Of course, it merely made matters worse that Mayen should be left-handed and that a specimen seal he sent by cabled request should have an entirely different appearance from those on the covering of the packet. Also, it seems stupid rather than intelligent that De Fasquel should be watched. The detective admitted that the Frenchman seemed above suspicion. He had begged the Duke to open the packet in his presence, which alone proved his innocence as Sanders couldn't help seeing. Besides, the French police had replied to a wired demand for de Fasquel's dossier by saying that he was a person of unblemished character. He appeared to deserve the trust reposed in him by Monsieur Mayen, had saved up a little money and was engaged to a pretty girl with a good dot the daughter of a hotel keeper in Marseille. Not only that, de Fasquel was remaining in New York for the purpose of giving what aid he could. Altogether, Juliet considered that Sanders' activities were disappointing, and Jack's no better. She refused to meet Lida and talk with her in person, as Jack advised her to do and between her sense of being deserted and her desperate anxiety for the truth about Pat, she found more and more that her thoughts clung to the broken reed of hope held out by Madame Vino. At last, when she was making up her mind to see the woman again without waiting longer, 
the message came. Juliet was in the act of answering a letter from Nancy Van Esten, begging her to be at the dress rehearsal for the great show, which was to benefit the Armenians. There was an undertone of friendly insistence, which Juliet understood very well. Nancy knew what people were saying about Pat and Pavoya and the pearls. If she, Juliet, refused to attend this rehearsal to which all her most intimate pals were going, everyone would draw certain conclusions. She hated to go, but had written to say that she'd drop in about five o'clock. The rehearsal had to be in the afternoon, as the roof garden theatre was wanted in the evening for the last night of a review. When the telephone bell rang almost in her ear, she picked up the receiver from the writing table and her heart leapt at the sound of Madame Vino's voice. Is that you yourself, Duchess? Yes? Well, he's here. Can you come around at once? Yes, said Juliet, and putting down the receiver, had begun to get ready when she remembered the letter which ought to be left for Jack. There was no time, after all, to write details. She ought to have had the note ready for emergencies, but it hadn't occurred to her till now. Hurriedly, she jotted down the address of Madame Vino and a request to Jack to send there. Then, when she had scrawled Captain Manners' Tarascon Hotel and sealed the envelope, the Duchess rang for her maid. "'I'm going out, Simone,' she said. "'It's now 4.30.' If I'm not back by 6.30, it will mean that, that I must miss an appointment with Captain Manners. So at that time, take this to his hotel yourself. He tells me that he's always at home between 6.30 and 7.30, so he's sure to be there. But if not, you can ring up Mr. Sanders at his private address, which I'll jot down for you, and ask him to call for Captain... Manners's letter, which concerns his business as well. I expect to come in much sooner, however, in which case you will simply hand this envelope back to me. You quite understand? I quite understand, Madame La Duchesse, echoed Simone, pinning on her mistress's hat and handing her a pair of gloves. So well did she understand that, the moment Juliet was out of the house, the car having been ordered, she examined the back of the said envelope. In her hurry, Juliet had not sealed it firmly. The flap was still wet and came loose with almost ridiculous ease. Simone had been somewhat surprised by the Duchess's instructions. Her reason for wishing to acquaint herself with the contents of the letter but she was still more surprised by the letter itself. The Duchess was going to Madame Vino's, evidently to keep an engagement already made, and it would seem that she considered herself in some danger. Could Madame Vino mean to give away Mademoiselle Amaranthi's connection with the inner circle? Simone told herself that this was an absurd and far-fetched suspicion because it was not probable that Madame Vino knew anything about her activities. Besides, why should the woman, even if she knew them, betray valuable secrets of the paper 
and its best correspondence. It was but an idea born of an uncomfortable conscience, another name for fear. Juliet was admitted to Madame Vino's flat by the respectable creature in black silk who had impressed her so favorably two days before. Again, she was taken into the cubicle of a private waiting room, and then Madame came at once from her own room. He's still here, she announced, having closed the door. Everything is wonderful, but different from what I expected. Who is the man, Juliet abruptly asked. I don't know. I haven't been able yet to make him tell me that. He seemed so obstinate that I thought I'd better extract more important details first. In case in his struggles not to obey, I should lose my control of him, which does happen now and then in such experiments. You mean to tell me that this man, whoever he is, actually came to you from heaven knows where because you willed him to come and that you hypnotized him to find out about my husband? I mean just that, answered Madame Vino triumphantly. I've done this sort of thing before. It's the secret of my success over other psychics. I found out that your husband was kidnapped, just as I thought. As for the pearls, so far as I can understand, he had them on him. Anyhow, they're in these people's possession. But you'd better come into my room and talk to the man. Is he still hypnotized? Juliet wanted to know, irritated by her feeling that she was being deceived, yet eager and curious. No, not now. I've released him from the influence. He was going pale about the lips, which shows a weak heart, and I was scared. I can't take big risks of that sort. But when I explained what I'd got out of him, and when I'd even made him put on paper a short statement of his own handwriting, he saw that he might as well be frank. If the statement was signed, you must have got his name. And if not, what use is it? He thinks he's signed it, for I covered up the place where the name should be as if accidentally, and snatched the paper away as though I was afraid he'd grab it for me. It was when I was willing him so hard to sign that he began to look queer, so I had to give it up. I see, said Juliet. Well, take me into the next room and let me try what I can get out of him. You can get everything out of him, Duchess. And you can get back your husband and your pearls. That is, if you're willing to pay the price this man asks. Even in his sleep, he was firm about that. And he hasn't told where the Duke is. Juliet did not believe that the man knew where the Duke was. It was so much more likely that the whole business was a trick to extract money and give nothing of value in return. Still, she was more eager to see the occupant of Madame Vino's room than she had ever been to see anyone, except Pat in the blessed old days. The green curtains were drawn, and though twilight was falling out of doors, the only lamp was a small green-shaded one on the table of the crystal. The man who stood facing the two women as they entered was in shadow, all except his hands, which showed white and large crossed unfolded arms. It was an instant before Juliette realized that something more than shadow obscured the features. 
Then her piercing eyes made out that a layer of black crepe was drawn across them as far up as the forehead, as far down as the mouth. Beneath this mask, a beard protruded like a fringe, but Juliet told herself it might be false. Oh, you have masked yourself, exclaimed Madame Vino. He wasn't masked when I left him, Duchess. Juliet made no comment, though if the man and woman were in collusion, it was probable the Madame lied. There's no objection to my being masked, I suppose, said the man. I have a right to protect myself. Does he speak rather like an Englishman, or do I imagine it? Juliet wondered. I don't object, she said aloud. I don't care who you are, if you can give me news of my husband, and if, if you can bring him back to me. I can give you news now, the man replied, and you can have him back tomorrow night if you choose. What are your conditions? Juliet asked. One million dollars for the Duke and the pearls. Oh, said the Duchess. And what for the Duke without the pearls? We don't treat separately. Indeed, and what if I refuse to treat at all? In that case, you'll never see your husband again on this side the grave. You mean you'll murder him if I don't pay ransom? Not at all. This is the Duke's own affair. He's in it with us. That is, the man spoke quickly when anger flamed on Juliet's face and he must have feared that she would cease bargaining for a man capable of holding up his wife. That is, he's in it to this extent. He's taken an oath not to give us away. He was hurt in an accident, an affair neither he nor you would like to have come out. And I and a friend of mine saved his life. When we've done that, as we're poor men, we didn't see why we shouldn't get something for ourselves. We're amateurs at these things, my mate and I, and we were at odds how to approach you, madam, without risking trouble. Then I had a hunch to consult this lady. Dreamed about her, felt I must come. Madame Vino gave Juliette a look. Now I find she was mesmerizing me, or something of the sort, but she's given me good advice. And she's brought you and me together, so maybe all's well that ends well. Where's my husband? asked Juliet. Where I live. And you could have me followed all around New York without finding out where that is. I'm up to every dodge of that kind, I can tell you. But what my friend and I, the Duke, standing by us because of what we've done for him, what we propose is this. You get hold of a million dollars without telling anyone what the money's for. We'll know if you play is false. We have our spies. It must be all in notes. Then, if this lady, Madame Vino, is willing to see the thing through, you'll bring to her flat the whole sum, only with the notes cut in two. That plan is to prove my good faith. An hour after the Duke shall arrive with the pearls in an auto at your own house. And the remaining halves of the notes shall be handed to the chauffeur by you in person before your husband leaves the car. Does that scheme look good to you? Juliet paused for an instant, but not to consider the money question. For she would have given not one million, but all the millions she possessed to have Pat with her alive and safe. Nor did she now care a straw whether or not 
these two creatures were in a plot together. She hesitated only because it seemed too good to be true that Pat should be given back to her so easily. She had suffered so much, had realized so bitterly her need of him, guilty or innocent, that she was actually dazzled by the man's offer. And when she had calmed herself by drawing a deep breath or two, she answered, Yes, it seems good to me. Then it is good, all right. How soon can you do this? How soon can you get hold of the money? Tomorrow, of course, it's too late today. Tomorrow then, come here at this same time. Can you manage that? I will manage it, Juliet said. She remembered that she had written to Nancy Van Esten, meaning to attend the rehearsal. The letter wasn't posted yet, but she would send it and go to the theater for a few minutes. From there, she would come here to Madame Vino's. No one could think then that she had avoided meeting Lida Pavoya. But if she had a pressing engagement to keep, it wouldn't be her fault if there were no time for introductions. Besides, Jack Manners and Sanders were supposed to be coming tomorrow afternoon to discuss some new detail in the Duke's study, what Juliet didn't know. The rehearsal would give her an excuse for absence while they were there, and as it was to meet Lida, Jack would be pleased to have her go. Remember, madam, if you don't keep the business strictly to yourself, the Duke won't materialize, the man in the mask went on. I assure you, not on my honor, because that's a minus quantity to you, but on your husband's. You can take my word for this. And furthermore, if you attempt to trick us, you'll never have a chance again. If there were as little chance of your tricking me as of my tricking you, Juliet exclaimed, I should be happy. Be happy then, retorted the man. The thing settled. I'm off. And I'll tell the Duke that you send him a good message. He was out of the room before Juliet had realized that he meant to suit his action to his word. With a wild impulse, she would have sprung after him to ask other questions, but the door slammed in her face. She was too late. And besides, what would have been gained by keeping the man a moment more? I don't think there's anything further to do or say, but let him go quietly, Madame Vino advised. Juliet turned upon her. I believe you're in this, she cried. The older woman smiled indulgently as at a petulant child. My dear, I'm not, she said. But I can't prove that if you don't want to take my word. Oh, well, it doesn't matter, Juliet sighed. What do I owe you for your services? What you think they're worth? Pay me tomorrow, madame replied. Tomorrow, it seemed that Juliet could not live till then. End of chapter 18Chapter 19 of The Great Pearl Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Maria Fatima da Silva The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson Chapter 19 Old Nick 
I wish to heaven the scent of Pat's tobacco weren't so dumb strong on that handkerchief in the packet. It's the blackest bit of evidence against him. Manners was saying to the detective in Claire Marner's study when a tap came at the door. The two locked themselves in for their occasional seances in this room, and Jack himself answered the knock. He was about to scold Togo for disturbing him, a thing strictly forbidden to all except the Duchess, when the sight of Lida's handwriting penciled on an envelope caused him to bite back the words. Who brought this? he asked. A boy, sir, replied the Japanese. He is from some theater. He said he went first to the Tarascon Hotel, but they told him you'd left word to have you called up here for anything important, so he came round. Is he waiting for an answer? No, sir. He was in a hurry to get back. He said there was no answer. Jack retired into the study with the letter and carefully, gently opened the envelope. Even though he was eager to know what Linda had to say, he couldn't deal roughly with anything she had touched. This was not the only letter he had had from her, but it made his heart beat as if it were the first. My dear friend, she wrote with pencil, evidently in haste, I have something very important to tell you. I cannot put it well in a letter, but it has to do with the Duchess, your cousin. She may be running into some danger. I should like to save her from that, if I could. Come to the theater and see me for a few minutes. I shall be free at six precisely, after rehearsing my new dance of the Swan and the Signet with Mrs. Van Esten's little girl. Then I shall have a few minutes for you. Meanwhile, however, if you have time after getting this, try to make your cousin's maid tell if she knows where her mistress has gone. Yours ever, Lida P. This was all, but to Jack Manners it was sweet as the perfume of an eastern garden by moonlight, her perfume. It was all he could do to wrench his mind from entranced thoughts of Lida, to concentrate them upon Juliet. Poor Juliet! He understood now why he hadn't suffered at seeing her after her marriage, or cared a single rap. It was because he'd never been in love with her, really, except as a dear, rather trying cousin, and because what he'd called love had worn off even before that, like thinly spread guilt on gingerbread. He had not known what love was till the night when Lida Pavoya's eyes said to him with her first blinding look, You are the man, I am the woman. He believed in her utterly now, and if he had not, he would have wished to kill himself. To know her, a good and glorious woman, made the splendor of life. Why, Juliet has gone to the dress rehearsal of the roof garden show, he remembered. That was the word she had left with Togo to give him and Sanders on opening the door for them. But Lida was at the rehearsal, and she hadn't seen Juliet. Before sending such a message to him, 
she would have made certain that the Duchess hadn't arrived. He would have Simone down at once. But Simone, the report came, was not in the house. She had gone out with Admiral Beatty, the Duchess's bulldog. Neither Togo nor Hughie could say when she was likely to return. But Togo made a suggestion. Nixon, the Duke's English valet, might know something of her movements. Nixon, echoed Jack, surprised. This is a new development, isn't it? Nick knowing anything about Simone. I had an idea there was no love lost there. Togo ventured on this encouragement to smile dryly. At heart, he had as little affection for Mademoiselle as old Nick had. He would have liked to do her an ill turn in payment of many snubs, if it could be managed safely. There is not much love, Captain, he said. Perhaps that is why Mr. Nixon watches Mademoiselle when she takes the dog for a walk. Is he afraid she'll do BT harm? asked Jack. I do not know, Captain. Mr. Nixon has not much talk, but perhaps he would answer some questions. Is he in the house? Yes, Captain. I noticed he left soon after Mademoiselle, soon enough to see where she went. As he often does these days now. His grace is gone, and Mr. Nixon has not so much to keep him busy. But he is back. Ask him to come here, said Manners. He spoke gravely, and as the respectful Togo retired, threw Sanders a puzzled look. Is there anything in this? he asked. That's what I've been wondering myself, vouchsafed the detective. You knew old Nick was dogging Simone's footsteps. Yes, but I didn't know why. I've been trying to find out. How? By having the said footsteps dogged on my own account. You've had Simone shadowed? Certainly, but that doesn't necessarily imply suspicion. I'd be a poor sort of chap at my job if I didn't have every servant in the house shadowed. Great Scott! And without a word to me or my cousin. I can't bother you two with every detail. Besides, she or you might have objected, and that would have made things awkward all around. Hmm, I see. Well, where does Simone go? She goes quite naturally to a French cafe where she can drink her native coffee and chat with compatriots in her native tongue. Nothing much in that then, it would seem. No, nothing much, or so it would seem, as you say. All the same, you're putting two and two together? That would be a mistake. From my point of view, the great thing is to see whether two and two put themselves together. Shall I come in, sir? asked the man known to the household as Old Nick, when his tap on the door left ajar for him had not been answered. Yes, come in, said Jack. Old Nick was in reality not old. He might have been anywhere between 30 and 40 and was the typical British soldier turned valet. There was, however, a glint in his eye at times when fixed on a person detested, which made his nickname not inappropriate. 
Togo thinks you may know when Simone is likely to return, Manners explained. She generally does about this time, sir. I'm expecting her any minute. Is it her movements or beaties that interest you? Nixon swallowed discreetly. May I speak out, sir? That's what we want you to do. Well, sir, I was with His Grace one way or another all through the war, and there's nobody to me like him. Never was, nor never will be. So there it is. And when he just vanished, as you might say, without so much as tipping the wink to me, I was dead sure he hadn't gone of his own accord. So I sets my wits to work the best I could, and I listens to talk, and I reads all that blinking newspaper rot. Thinks I, looks as if them beastly pearls has something to say in the business. So I asks myself, who's walked off with them, if anyone? And is his grace doing a flit in the hope of tracking the bloke down? If them pearls was ever in this house, they must have gone out again. Who could have done the trick? Well, I never trusted Mamselle the why her grace did. She had the run of the police. It was just on the cards she might have laid her hands on the combination for opening the safe. Well, I puts that in my pipe and smokes it. Strikes me she goes out a bit more regular for a promenade with Beatty since that French monsieur brought his packet of pearls than she used to do. So I asked the curiosity to follow at a respectful distance one day and sees lady step into a French restaurant. Not long after comes along Monsieur of the Pearls. I was sent to meet him at the dock, but missed him there cause of some mistake about his initials where you whites for the customs men. But I seed him here at the house later when I comes home to report to his grace. I recognized him all right. The question to my mind was whether you choose that restaurant cause towards French or cause au mademoiselle. Jack's eyes flashed to Sanders who smiled. You and I have been rivals in this game, Nixon, he remarked. What conclusion did you come to about Mademoiselle? Nixon flushed. Didn't know I was on your pitch, sir. But if he asks me, in my opinion, he comes for her, or else she comes for him. A cat may look at a king, said Sanders. They're compatriots. Why shouldn't they meet? On the other hand, why should they? Ventured Nixon. I wouldn't if I was him. And see here, sir, begging your pardon, I know you're a detective in a private way. I've told you all I done, but ain't all I want to do. I want to find his grace. If you and the captain make any frontal attack, so to speak, will you take me along? I'd give my life for the dog, and I might come in handy, who knows? Who knows indeed, echoed Sanders, but you shall have the chance of finding out when the time comes, and it may come soon, any day, any hour, even any minute. Now, if you think Mademoiselle's due back, I suggest 
that you give us as we've sent for her here. If there's anything in your suspicions, we don't want her to smell a rat. Right you are, sir. And thank you, sir, said Nixon. I'll be off and leave all clear. So you actually suspect Simone and Defasquel, Jack turned on Sanders when they were alone. I can't go as far as that yet. There's no evidence against them, not even circumstantial. There's no crime in a flirtation between a man and woman, both of the midi thrown together in a foreign land. I meant to spring this on you only when or if I had cause to be sure. Up to date, my indoors man at Rudin's, that's a French place in 12th Street where they meet, hasn't been able to overhear a word between the two, though he speaks French. He's acting as a waiter there now. He has instructions to ring me up if he gets onto anything queer. And I always leave word at home and the office where I'm going to be. This conversation following Lida's letter had keyed up Manners' nerves. He started as rather a sharp knock sounded on the door. It was Simone. She was very neat and chic and led Beatty, whose bored look suggested that he had been denied his proper share of exercise. Monsieur le Capitaine, she purred, and bowed discreetly to the detective. Togo says Monsieur has asked for me the moment I am home. I come, but the dog... Never mind the dog, Sanders caught the word from Jack. We've some questions to ask you, mademoiselle. Please stay where you are. His tone was rough, and he had put on a professional hectoring air. There had been no time to arrange a plan of action, but Manners guessed what was in Sanders' mind. He meant to try scaring Simone, and he wanted to do it off his own bat. Jack trusted him, and was willing to keep out of the business. Though the French woman's black eyes appealed to him as her mistress's relative against the rude stranger, he sat still and lit a cigarette. End of chapter 19。Chapter 20 of The Great Pearl Secret。This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Fatima da Silva. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 20 The Third Degree. To begin with, where's the Duchess? At a rehearsal, monsieur, of an entertainment Madame Van Esten has got up. Mademoiselle Pavoya will... We don't want to hear about her. The Duchess isn't at the rehearsal. Then I do not know where she is. It is her affair, not mine. Simone looked the picture of injured innocence. Perhaps you don't know, agreed Sanders. But you see, you've made so many of her affairs your affairs. It's hard to tell where you draw the line. The French maid turned pale in rather repulsive way she had, beginning at the lips which she bit to keep their color. From her looks she might have been furious or frightened. 
I do not understand you, monsieur, she almost spat. That doesn't matter much. What does matter is, we understand you. Under her black-dotted veil, Simone's olive sallowness greened. Monsieur accuses me of something? Sanders grinned with the utmost cruelty. Well, what do you think? I think a person has perhaps told lies about me, monsieur. Ah, the detective leapt in his chair as if he had caught her, as if she had given him a chance for which he'd waited. Ah, what's the name of that person? The Frenchwoman began to feel sick. Her fears, though acute, had been vague. Suddenly they became definite. She floundered. So much depended on saying the right thing that she was terribly afraid of saying the wrong one. She glanced at Captain Manners again, but he had taken up a paper. To her horror, it was the inner circle, which Sanders had bought and brought in to discuss. Her knees turned to water. She could not help giving a faint gasp. Her eyes were fixed on the whisperer's page, which was held up, as if purposely. Both men saw the stare, and into the minds of both sprang the same thought. Jack had had it before. He had even hinted it to Juliet, who laughed it to scorn, and remarked that she knew Simone better than he could possibly know her. Sanders had had the thought and mentioned it to Manners, but there was no proof, and the Frenchwoman's shadower had never seen her go to the office of the inner circle. As for letters, Sanders had put Togo onto watching for them. Simone had sent out none at all from the house. Yet now that one bleak glare at the open paper and both men were as sure as if the woman had confessed. You think your editor has been talking, eh? The detective said. That's as may be. Anyhow, we know. The telephone bell rang. Jack took up the receiver. Yes, Mr. Sanders is here, he replied to some question. He'll speak with you in a second. Hold the line. Sanders bounded to the phone. Yes, yes, good, were the only words he said. But Jack knew he was speaking to his man at the cafe. Then he turned again to Simone. Come here and call your friend Defasquel. He sharply ordered. Tell him he must turn up at his house at once or there'll be a disaster for you both. Simone grasped the back of a chair and clung to it. I cannot, monsieur, she gulped. I know Monsieur de Fasquel only by seeing him here. I... Don't waste words, Sanders cut her short. It'll be the worst for you if you do. You've just been with him now, at Rudin's. Call him up at his hotel. If, if I will not, she stammered. Do you want to go to prison while he's left free to marry his girl in Marseille? That was a chance shot, but it found its billet. He has no girl in Marseille, Simone shrilled. Oh, yes, he has. I have his dossier from the Paris police. If you get him here and make him tell the truth, I promise you that marriage won't take place. I will call him, said Simone, sickly pale. She flitted across the room to the telephone. 
Sanders rubbed his hands and nodded to Jack. But Jack was glancing at his wristwatch. What am I to do? He asked the detective in a low voice. The time's almost here for me to keep my appointment with Mademoiselle Parvoye. Go to it, said Sanders. I'm equal to Simone and Ifasquel. Now I've got proof enough to bluff on. My waiter man phoned that the pair were talking about the pearls and apparently blackguarding each other. I'll strip them of their secrets like a tree of ripe fruit. But look here. I have a hunch that there's more in this inner circle business than meets the eye. Simone's been a cat's paw. There may be wheels within wheels. When you go to meet Mademoiselle Pavoya, take my tip and accept old Nick's offer. What? Have him with me? Yes, wherever Pavoya sends you. She may not send me anywhere. I think she will send you somewhere. Meanwhile, I'll pump Simone and Ifasquel dry. When you get back, I may have the pearls in pink cotton. Manners was torn. He wished to hear what Simone said over the telephone. He wished to stay and witness the scene through between her, Ifasquel and Sanders. But most of all, he wished not to be late for Leda. Nothing was worth that. Jack arrived at the theater just after Leda had finished rehearsing a dance which she herself had arranged for the charity fete with Mrs. Van Esten's spoiled little girl. Mademoiselle Pavoya was in her dressing room, he was told, and was expecting him. He went there quickly, afraid of being caught by someone he knew on the way, and forced to stop and talk nonsense for the place was like a rabbit warren, alive with pretty women and men who thought they were society incarnate. Lida wore the swan costume she had worn the first night of their meeting, or one much like it, and the thought of that wonderful night thrilled him. How had he lived before that time? Yet he had gone out of her presence to doubt her truth, her honor. Never could he forgive himself for that. Never could he worship her quite enough to make up for those hours of disloyalty. She held out her hands to him, and he crushed first one, then the other against his lips. My swan goddess, he exclaimed, you're too marvelous like this. I can hardly believe your flesh and blood that I'm not dreaming you. I love you so much. She drew her hands away and pushed him back when he would have taken her in his arms, wings and all. Perhaps you are dreaming me, she smiled, dreaming the woman you think I am. And you're not to do that, my hands only. Yet you said you cared, you said you'd never felt for any man as you felt when our eyes first met. Ah, I said that when you'd confessed doubting me and begged forgiveness and vowed that nothing on earth or in heaven or the other place could ever make you doubt again. I owed you some confession in return. Then it was true. Yes, it was true. And it's still? But of course, I do not change. Yet we are to be friends and nothing more until all is made clear, until even your cousin believes in me and doesn't think you'd be better dead than loving leader Pavoya if that day could ever come. It will come soon, 
Oh, Lida, remember that first night at your house. You let me hold you in my arms then. But that was as a friend. You understood, I know. I was so stirred, so hard-pressed. I wanted protection from someone sincere. And you were the sincerest man I ever saw. Yes, I did understand. I do now. And I won't bother you, Lida. Though it's hard work, this friendship business to a man who worships a beautiful woman as I worship you. But it's a bargain. Friendship till the day. May it be tomorrow. Amen, she echoed, with one of her fleeting smiles that came so seldom. Now let us talk not of ourselves, but of your cousin. We ought to have begun with her. No. Yes, because there may be danger. I'll tell you quickly all I know. You have met a friend, an acquaintance of mine, the Comtesse de Saintville. Oh yes, wife of a diplomat of sorts, isn't she? I've heard you were intimate. That isn't true, but she has Polish blood, and for that, or some other reason, she likes to come to my house. I have been able to do her a good turn now and then. I wouldn't tell this to anyone except you, mon ami, but she's a great bridge player and loses more money than she ought. Lately, she got into a bad, what you call, scrape. She asked me to lend her a thousand dollars. You see, she dared not let her husband know. But I couldn't. It was when I was putting aside every sou for Markov. I could do nothing except promise to help later. I do not love Sonia de Saintville, yet I am sorry for her. I was afraid that in desperation she would do some stupid thing. The other day I had a windfall. A friend in Paris who'd borrowed 50,000 francs sent it back to me. I never expected to see the money again. So I phoned Sonia that now I could let her have the thousand dollars. She answered that the thousand would no longer be of use, but two thousand would save her. From the way she spoke, I understood that things were very grave. I said she should have the two thousand. She came to my house and I gave it to her in notes. I hadn't seen her for days and she was looking ill, changed. I spoke kindly to the poor thing and she broke down. It is a confession she made which will interest you, my friend. You would never guess. She had got into the power of that inner circle band. They were blackmailing her? Yes, in a queer way. Did you ever suspect that Mr. Lounce, Billy Lounce, I hear him called, was for something in that paper? Good Lord, no. Billy Lowndes, not that I ever liked him, but I didn't think he was as big a rotter as that. He was in love with my cousin Juliet, hard hit, before she married. And by a sort of coincidence, Lowndes' sister Emmy, Lady West, you may have met her while working in Paris or London, made rather an ass of herself over Claire Manor. Perhaps that partly explains some things, if we can patch them together. Listen, it was at Mrs. Billy Lounds, Sonia said, that she lost most of her money. There's a set there that plays very high. They make the Lounds' flat a sort of private club. Sonia was dunned, 
and frightened of her husband. Billy Lance offered to lend her the whole lot. She thought, how good-natured. But soon she learned it was not goodness. He wanted something. The condition was that she should get the Duchess of Claremanagh to go and consult a palmist, crystal gazer person, a Madame Vino. Did you ever hear of her? No. Yes, by Jove, her name's on the building of the inner circle. The plot thickens. But how? Oh, Sanders and I have caught my cousin Juliet's maid. We're sure it's she who gave away things to the Whisperer. Sanders is putting her through the third degree now. I couldn't stop to hear it out. I was due here. Besides, it looks as if the woman, Simone, was mixed up in the disappearance of the pearls with the chap who brought them from France, the Fasquel. Perhaps this Vino person is in the affair too. And the whole business may be one with ramifications. That is what I've wondered, since Sonia confessed today what they made her do. She was to go to the Duchess and tell her that Madame Vino had seen Claire Manor in the crystal, that she could help her find him. Sonia suspected something queer. She was sure at once that Lowndes was on that horrid paper, perhaps editor of that vile whisperer. And she'd heard the story about his being in love with your cousin when she was Miss Fair. So she told him she couldn't do this commission. Then Lowndes lost all his good nature. He threatened that the whisperer of the inner circle might get some new material from him to whisper about that there'd be paragraphs hinting of her debts and the ruin of her husband's career. That would have been the end of all things for Sonia. So she consented after all. She called on the Duchess and told her that Madame Vino wanted to see her. When was that? Three days ago. Juliet never breathed a word to Sanders or me. She left us in the dark. She would. Most women would. I should have let you know before, but Sonia told me only today. I wrote at once and asked you to come. Thank you, my white swan. Many women in your place would have sat still and let poor Juliet go to the devil for treating you in the cattish way she has. I've no grudge against her. I should have done so in her place if, if the man had been you instead of Claremana. Darling, you expect to keep me at arm's length after that? Yes, yes. Listen, the Duchess went to Madame Vino. How do you know? The Vino woman herself was to inform Sonia if she didn't turn up. In that case, Sonia was to urge the Duchess. She, Sonia, I mean, was forced to go to Vino's place as if to have her hand read because they wouldn't risk anything in writing. Luckily, she had to make only one visit, because the very first time she was told the Duchess had been there. She was to come again on the third day. That was all arranged, though Sonia imagined that the Duchess didn't know this. She was to think the arrangement was made later. But the third day is today. Sonia thought the first call the Duchess maid was late in the afternoon. 
and something was dropped about the same hour next time. I believe she must be at Vino's at this moment. And if those inner circle people are in the thing, and it's a plot of some sort... I'll go there now. What? To the inner circle office? Not first anyhow, maybe later. That depends, but now to Madame Vino's. Oh, I'm worried. Lida put out her hands and laid them on his khaki-clad arms. They say these inner circle people may be a nest of crooks. I don't doubt they are right for once, but I'm not going alone. I thought your detective was busy with the maid and the pearl carrier. He is, but you know old Nick. You must. You couldn't have known Pat without old Nick. Good old Nick. Of course I know him, since Paris, when Claire Marner was ill at my house. Well, Nick's going over the top with me as a volunteer. I don't know whether I shall find anything for him to do, but if so, he'll be ready. Yes, yes, he'd do anything for Claire Manor. And even for Claire Manor's wife. Goodbye, my darling. Wish me luck. I do, I do. A kiss to speed the wish? No, only in my hand. Wait. How long, in God's name? Till the Duke's found and the pearls. End of chapter 20「Tell her two gentlemen for a consultation, Jack Manners announced at Madame Vino's door, Nixon at his heels. Madame can see no more clients this afternoon, sir, replied the neat woman in black silk. She closes for business at six, and... It's not six yet, cut in Jack. No, sir, but she has a lady with her now. I have orders to receive no one else. Can't you forget those orders and... Persuade her to make an exception for us. As he spoke, Manners took from his pocket a cigarette case and extracted from it a $20 bill. It would have been simple, physically, to push past the spinster-like person in black. But Jack could more easily have got over a high stone wall. Luckily, she liked the look of the banknote. I might try, sir, she hesitated, if trying's worth twenty dollars to you. It is, he replied promptly. The money changed hands. The woman in black silk ceased to bar the entrance with her neat person. Jack walked into the flat, Nixon after him. Again there was hesitation. Evidently their guide was not sure where she ought to put them. Jack imagined that he could read her thoughts. She feared to lead the forbidden visitors into the ordinary waiting room. Either there was someone there or something that ought not to be seen. 
or the room was next the one where Madame Vina was with her last client, Juliet. In that case, words might be overheard through a wall or door. As he and Nick were invited into a dining room, Manners counted three doors on the opposite side of the hall, all closed. Behind one of those, he believed Juliet to be hidden at that moment, probably in process of being blackmailed. He made up his mind quickly as to a plan of action, already half decided on between Nixon and himself. We're in no great hurry, so long as we see Madame sooner or later, he told the woman who had let them in. We wouldn't think of having you interrupt her. Oh, I shouldn't dare do that, sir, she broke in, pocketing the twenty dollars. As she spoke, Jack caught a glance of awed respect, which she cast across the corridor. The middle door, he said to himself. Of course not, he said aloud. We'll wait. How'll you know when the client goes? I expect Madame will ring for me to open the front door and let the lady out. That's what she usually does. Very well, when the lady's gone, speak for us. Perhaps the black silk woman wondered why the nice young gentleman hadn't given her ten dollars to try and a promise of ten more if she succeeded, but that was his affair. Personally, she didn't expect to succeed. She was not acquainted with Madame's private business, but there was certainly something of the first importance on this afternoon. No clients had been admitted since four o'clock except the beautiful blonde young lady who had announced herself the other day as the Duchess of Claremanagh or some name like that. Before she was due, two gentlemen had come up and hadn't given their names. But Madame had expected them, and they were still with her when the Duchess arrived. The black silk woman had seen those gentlemen before, though never together. She had not much curiosity about them, for she was not of a curious disposition. That, Madame said, was one reason why she had engaged her. She had been a stewardess on board ship, but had disliked the sea, especially during the war, when she had been torpedoed once. Madame had crossed with her on three occasions and the last time had offered her this place. Some things she had seen had surprised and even shocked her a little, but she was well paid and dry land was a good deal better than that nasty grey wet thing, the sea. She felt that she had done right in putting these two new gentlemen into the dining room. If Madame firmly refused to see them, they might possibly be smuggled away without her knowing they had actually been let into the flat. That elderly party isn't going to stay on watch, Jack said to Nixon, when they had been shut into the commonplace little room where Madame Vino ate her meals. There's no uneasy curiosity in that meek makeup. That's what I was thinking myself, sir, agreed old Nick. Where did it look so far? Jack went on. It's time to begin reconnoitring. He went to the door. If that decent body is in the hall, I shall ask her what time it is and say my watch has gone slow, which is more than my heart has. Nixon grinned. Jack peered out into the white and red corridor. Nobody was there. 
The red glass lamp suspended from the ceiling looked to him like a mass of clotted blood. He took two steps across to the middle door and listened. Then he returned hastily to Nick. There in there, I heard the Duchess's voice. Sounds as if she were angry or frightened, or both. And there are two or more men. You and I have got to open the door, locked or unlocked. That's it, sir, said Nixon. But it won't be locked. Why should it? They don't suspect nothing. And if there's two men, Her Grace couldn't get past them. You let me make a dash and see what happens, sir. No, Jack decided. The dash is my job. You stand by, and if there's any dashing from the wrong side of the door, you'll know how to stop it, male or female. Yes, sir. Manners went again to the middle door. As he moved, Nixon closed in behind him, a substantial bulk, and in his eyes the light which made old Nick his right name. He stood in such a position that if anyone rushed for the front door or even some back exit, escape could be made only over his body. He saw that Captain Manners took hold of the doorknob with his left hand. The right hand was in the outer pocket of his coat. And Nixon knew what else was there. A similar thing was in a similar pocket of his own coat. It had been given to him by the captain, whom he now liked and respected next to the Duke. Suddenly Manus turned the handle and flung the door wide open with such violence that it struck the wall. He strode into the room. Nixon blocked the doorway, but seeing with one glance that there was a door leading to another room, he took a step back to guard both. It was a very green room, green as arsenic, he thought, lighted by one lamp, like a big emerald on the center table. Looking in from across the threshold, however, Nick could see four figures besides Manus's. There was the Duchess, tall and strangely white, in a black dress and white hat. There was another woman without a hat, also in black. A big, common hussy she looked to Nixon, with an eye like a fierce snake's. And there were two men. About the pair, an odd thing was that they had some thin black stuff tied over their faces. Captain Manners went for one man, the one who seemed to show fight. And when the other, who hadn't spied Nick yet, made for the door, Nick received him in open arms. The big woman squealed and the Duchess shrank back against the wall, then started forward again. Oh, Jack, she cried. They mustn't be killed. They know where Pat is. They say if they aren't back there soon, someone will put an end to him. Nick saw the woman, Madame Vino, he didn't doubt, spring for the electric light button. But dragging his man with him, he was upon her like a tiger. One hand was enough for the man, who must have been a coward, for he splashed about like a jelly with Nick's fist in his collar. The other hand seized Madame's arm as it was stretched out and twisted it sharply. She gave a shriek and sat down on the floor. Then Nick became unconscious of a stealthy intelligence in the jelly. It was feeling toward his pocket, the pocket. But before the groping fingers reached their goal, Nick had snatched out the browning and pressed 
the muzzle against a crepe-covered forehead. There wasn't much time for looking around just then, but Nixon had done observation work in the war. The sixth of a second showed him that Captain Manners had reached this identical stage in his program, which meant that each had a man at his mercy. Take your mask off, ordered Jack. Same to you, my beauty, echoed Nick. The two obeyed. Peel lounge, cried Manners. Know this brute, sir, inquired Nick. I do, Juliet gasped. Oh, you horrid wretch, and Bill Lowndes. I shouldn't have dreamed. They're nightmares, both of them, broke in Jack. Now, Juliet, don't be scared. That's all rot about Pat being done away with. Nick and I are going to save time by making these, these skunks tell us where he is. But we've a minute or so to spare. They've kept Pat safe, I bet, for the sake of the ransom they meant to get out of you. There's a third-degree stunt going on in your house. Sanders is grilling DeFasquel and Simone. It all comes back to this building that's like the web of a black spider, the inner circle, and we'll repeat that third-degree stunt here. Who's this man you call a wretch? His name's Piggott, Juliet panted. He was editor of a hateful paper in London, Modern Ways, almost as vile as the inner circle. Emmy West introduced me to him. She said he wasn't bad, really. If I'd meet him, he'd put nice things in his paper instead of horrors, especially about Pat. I said yes, for Pat's sake. Emmy insisted so. He came to Harridge's, where I was staying, but before he or I had time to speak, Pat was shown in. He gave one look and begged me to go out to leave this man to him. I have never seen Pat like that. And I went. I never even heard the wretch's voice, or I'd have recognized it, I think. He came here and talked to me three days ago with this mask on. Now Bill Lowndes comes with him. I don't know yet how or why he should be mixed up. I do, said Jack. It's because they're both concerned with the inner circle on the floor below. They've had Simone in their pay, selling them news, and as for the pearls... Oh, if you let my husband go, I'll tell you everything, wailed Madame Vino, stumbling up from the floor. That's my husband, Sam Piggott. He's got nothing to do with the inner circle, except a little interest he's bought, because the owner is my stepbrother. I'm English and Sam's Irish, and now being in this business is an accident. It was all the Duke's fault and Markov's fault. Shut your mouth, grunted the big man, whom old Nick held. A man few others could have held at all. Shut yours, that's more to the point, said Nixon. Apparently he meant the pistol's point, and Piggott was silenced. Will you let him go if I tell you things, repeated a woman, shuddering at Nick's gesture. That depends on how much you can tell, decided Jack, coolly. I can tell everything, she moaned. Begin by telling where the Duke is. Both men started, but collapsed. Madame Vino choked and went on. He's in the room downstairs in the basement. He's been there all the time. What happened was like this. The Duke came one night to the office, I mean, of the inner circle. He'd heard the editor would be there. I may as well tell you, he'd got an anonymous letter to say so. 
It was found in his pocket. The Duchess's maid or Mademoiselle's French pal is sure to have sent it, wanting to get the Duke out of their way. And they did get him out. It was a night of the first whisper about the pearls and Pavoya calling at the fair house. The Duke got into the place by a trick, sent word by an office boy that he had information to give. He was let into a room divided by a partition from the one where my stepbrother was, the editor. You have to say what you've got to say by telephone there. You don't see anyone, but the Duke guessed who was on the other side. He put the chair on the table and climbed up so he could get over the partition. He'd wrenched off the receiver from the phone to hit my stepbrother with. When he was going for him, my husband heard the row and ran in from another room. He didn't make any noise, but came up from behind and cracked the duke over the back of the head with a big ruler. He had a right to do that because the duke horsewhipped him publicly in London for what he published in modern ways and spoiled England for us both. That's why we came to New York and I took over the Madame Vino business. I was Madame Ayesha in Bond Street and wore Egyptian dress. I told you it was an accident we were mixed up in this. It wasn't my husband's fault. He had to defend his brother-in-law against a cowardly attack like that. As for Mr. Lowndes, he hated the Duke for marrying Miss Fair, just as Lady West, who used to send us lots of news about folks she didn't like in London and Paris, hated Miss Fair for marrying the Duke. Mr. Lowndes is one of the Whisper a lot. I mean, he's one of several men who put together the Whisperer stuff that comes out under one name. He was in the office that night, and so was Markov, the Russian. Your private detective was after Markov. More about him and the others by and by, Manners cut her short almost gently. Nick, would you like the job of going down to look for the Duke? I would that, sir, Nixon answered. I'll give this big chap a smash the way he did his grace and put him out of count for while I'm away. No need for that. See if he's armed. Nixon went through his prisoner's pockets. There was only a pocket knife. For Piggott and Lounce, I'd expected to meet no one more formidable than the Duchess of Claremanagh. Lounce was also unarmed. That's all right, pronounced Jack. I and the Browning can keep the pair and Madame too in order. No, on second thoughts, take her down with you. She'll show you the way, won't you, Madame? Needs must when the devil drives, she snapped. Thanks for the compliment, laughed Jack. If anyone knows the gentleman by sight, it must be you. I shall go with them, Juliet said. Of course, agreed Manners. Madame Vino turned and glared at her. You gave us away in spite of your promise. You deserve to see what you will see down there. A dead man killed by your husband. You'll save your dear Duke only to have him sent to the chair. Juliet gave her look for look. I didn't give you away. I did not dream my cousin was coming here. And I'd know by your face, even if I didn't know Claire Manor, that he has killed no man. If there's a dead man where my husband is, someone else committed the murder. Here, here, you grace, shouted Nixon, before he could remember to be respectful. 
Suddenly, Juliet heard herself laughing. Then she began to sob. Oh, Pat, Pat, Nick, take me to him. Nixon flung Piggott across the room and grabbed Madame Vino by the arm. The next thing the Duchess knew, the door had shut behind them. Jack was left alone with the two men. But Juliet had forgotten Jack. End of chapter 21「had a key to the door of the janitor's flat. She, her husband, and their associates could come and go as they chose when the janitor was away or upstairs. "'You won't get anything out of your husband,' she said to Juliet as the three went down, she leading with mingled defiance and reluctance. "'He hasn't come back to his senses yet. It wasn't so much the blow. Mind you, my husband was within his rights defending his brother-in-law from assault. It wasn't the blow so much as the fall.' The Duke fell on the back of his head. It was concussion. We had a doctor in, a friend of ours we could trust. And we weren't going to let you know till we were sure he was out of danger, ready to be moved. If he has to stand his trial for killing Markov, why? How does a man with a concussion of the brain commit murder? Juliet's question stabbed like a stiletto. By this time they were at the door of the basement flat and Madame Vino was fumbling with a bunch of keys. Nixon's eyes upon her hand. Naturally, the killing was done before the concussion, Madame sneered. The Duke hated Markov because of Pavoya. Perhaps he had reason, but that won't help him with a jury. Juliet could have struck the woman and trampled her underfoot. She turned upon her in the dimly lit passage so fiercely that the nervous fingers jumped and let fall the key. You fool, the Duchess said. You told me I should see a dead man here. Yet according to your own story, my husband was struck down the night after I saw him last. One doesn't keep a dead man in a flat for weeks. Madame Vino drew in a sharp breath and mumbled something which Juliet could not hear. It was easy to deduce that the story of Markov's death by Claremanagh's hand was an impromptu effort, an inspiration which didn't quite come off. The woman had suddenly caught at a desperate chance. The Duke, having lost all memory of events, could be made to believe what they chose about himself. And if the Duchess and her friends could be got to credit the tale, the Markoff affair would be simplified. He had always been known to Madame's husband and stepbrother for years, even before the war, when he had fed modern ways in London and the inner circle in New York with rich tidbits of scandal concerning the Russian court. He had told Piggott that Russia had a grievance against the Claremanagh family, a connection with the Tsarina Pearls, that this treasure ought to be returned to the crown, and Piggott had suspected that Markov was out to get it if he could. This visit of his to New York was for some reason sub rosa. His passport was made out for a merchant of skins named Halbin, but he had called upon his two old acquaintances and was offered for sale the most intimate personal secrets of Trotsky and Lenin. The brothers-in-law had guessed that he wanted the Tsarina pearls for himself, if they could be got, as he had once pretended to want them for the Russian crown. 
So when by amazing luck they found themselves in possession of the famous rope, their first thought was to bargain with Markov Halbin. He had risen to the bait and had made an offer. It sounded satisfactory, but the money was not forthcoming. A friend was to produce it. Meanwhile, when it was learned through the leak at the Duchess's that Sanders sought Markov, shelter was given him. Also, the benefit of the doubt. But little doubt remained when he tried to steal the pearls. As for the consequences of this attempt, they were upon the man's own head. And at worst, the doctor would certify that death had not been the direct result of a blow, but of heart failure. The end had come the day before the Duchess was invited to Madame Vino's, and had it not come, Madame de Saintville might have been left in peace till her help was wanted in some other direction. With Markoff dead and his problematic offer wiped from the slate, the best remaining hope was the Duchess. Claremanagh would not be able to testify against the man who had struck him down, would not even know that Sam Piggott had revenged himself at last for the caning episode in London. He and the pearls could be handed over to the Duchess, price a million dollars, and no one would ever know where and how he had spent those weeks missing from his calendar. The scheme had been in fine working order up to the moment when that middle door had suddenly opened. Madame Vino thought bitterly of the mistake they had all made in sending for the Duchess. The thing might surely have been managed in another way. But it was useless to cry over spilt milk, a million dollars worth of spilt milk. They must be grateful if the enemy held his tongue and they kept out of jail. She laughed when the Duchess called aloud, Pat, where are you? It's Juliet who loves you. She was so sure that the cry would be answered by silence, for there was a dead man in one room, an unconscious man in another. But there was no laugh left in her when Claremanagh's voice rang out, clear and saying, Hello, my darling, here I am. He had been shamming, then. How much had he heard? How much could he tell? How much did he remember? Juliet flew in the direction of the beloved voice. It was heaven to hear it after the hell she had suffered. There were two doors opposite each other. She tried the first, locked, but the key was there. It turned, and she threw the door open, only to slam it shut with a stifled gasp, for on the bed was a long shape covered with a sheet. It was the body of Markov, of whom she had heard so much of late from Jack and Sanders, though till now, when he had ceased to live, she'd hardly believed in his existence. Again, Pat called. She realized that he was in the room opposite, and in less than a minute she was with him, in a gray room where a pale Pat lay in a squalid bed. He sat up, a strange, unkempt figure, the immaculate Claremanagh unshaven, his smooth hair rumpled, a torn shirt open at the throat instead of those smart silk pajamas in futurist colors, which she'd often smiled at and admired. She rushed into his arms. He was strong enough to clasp her tight. Oh, my Pat, my dearest one, she sobbed. I have you again. Say you're not going to die. Say you still love me. I adore you, and I'm not going to die. Perhaps I came near it. I don't know. But this is new life, and Juliet, I've got back the pearls for you. Oh, the pearls! I'd forgotten them! I hadn't. You see, it meant a lot to me to prove to you that it wasn't I who walked off with them. Darling, I suppose you wouldn't be here now if you didn't know how I got to this place? I know, partly. I know you went at night to the Inner Circle office to punish that beast, and the horrible London man, Piggott, his brother-in-law, struck you from behind. Was it like that? I wasn't sure what happened, and I don't know yet where I am. 
But since I woke up to things, I've lain still and listened when they thought I was nothing but a log. I wasn't strong enough to do much. I had to lie low. But there was a row about the pearls. Markoff was here, hiding, I think. How these people got the pearls, I haven't made out. They had them, though, and Markoff tried to steal them instead of buying, as he'd promised. He fell in a fit or something and died. I heard a doctor talking, a pal of the people here. The night Markov died, they were squabbling over the pearls, a woman and two men in the next room. I heard them say where they were kept, in the room where they'd put Markov's body till they could get rid of it. They'd no idea I'd come alive. At last, today, when they were all out and the coast clear, it can't have been two hours ago, I struggled up and got the pearls, beneath a loose board in the floor under the carpet. They're inside this mattress now. I was planning how to make my getaway when I heard your voice. Jove, this has been a bad dream, but thank God it's over for us both. You'll have to believe in me when I give you the pearls. Give me your love, your forgiveness, begged Juliet. I want nothing else. You'll have to take the lot, Pat almost laughed. But as to forgiveness, why, darling one, there's nothing to forgive. Leon de Fasquel's look when he saw Sanders instead of the Frenchwoman alone was in itself a confession. He knew he was trapped. His dark southern face faded to the yellow-green of seasickness. Speechless, anxious-eyed as a kicked dog, he would have backed to the door, but Sanders was ready for that. He stepped between him and the hope of escape. It's all up, my friend, the detective said in his quiet voice. Then, remembering that de Fasquel had little English, he went on in half-forgotten school French, a little slang thrown in from novels he'd read. Your cher ami has split on you. No good getting out the pistol from your pocket. Nothing doing in that line. He showed his browning. We can settle this business without blood if you've got common sense. That woman, that devil has told her side of the story, de Fasquel raged with a look that longed to kill. Now you shall have mine. She was the temptress. She has ruined me. Liar, shrilled Simone. Coward and deceiver, you have a fiancé in Marseille. You let me think you'd marry me. You threatened to betray. I had to defend myself. You made me a thief. Ah, accuse me. Because you are guilty. It was thus that Sanders heard the story, bit by bit. And patching together these torn rags of recrimination, he got the pattern of the whole cloth. Simone had scraped acquaintance with her countrymen. He had complained of the Duke's carelessness and lack of consideration in refusing to break the seals of the packet. Then a dazzling idea had come to Simone. The packet, de Fasquel said, had been flung into a wall safe. Simone knew all about that safe. She also knew where the Duchess, as careless in some ways as the Duke, kept the combination jotted down on a bit of paper. De Fasquel could not be suspected, she pointed out, as he had earnestly implored the Duke to open the package in his presence. Nor was there the least danger for herself. She was completely trusted. It would be tempting Providence not to seize such an opportunity of fortune. As for stealing, that was not the word. These pearls didn't properly belong to the Claremanaghs. They should have been returned to the Russian crown. Now there was no Russian crown. The pearls belonged to no one, unless to those with pluck enough to take them. According to de Fasquel, those were Simone's arguments, and he saw too late that she'd drawn him into the intrigue instead of managing it alone. 
drawn him in so as to hold him in her power, and get a husband at the sword's point. He, in his heart, had thought of the girl at Marseilles. The one objection to him there was his lack of money. The girl's father accused him of presenting his prospects in two rosy colors. If the pearls could be disposed of, as Mademoiselle vowed they could, even known as they were, over the world, the future would be ideal. Simone had opened the safe with the aid of her mistress's memorandum, Defascal having gone away and come back again. To their surprise, they had found, on the same shelf with the packet, a rope of great blue pearls. At first, Defascal had taken them for the genuine ones, though the seals on the packet appeared intact. But Simone was an expert in pearls, like the Duchess. A simple test had shown that the rope was a copy. As for the clasp, neither thought of the difference in the watching eye. It seemed to both that the find was almost a miracle in their favor. The Duchess, argued Simone, was unlikely to suspect a substitution. She would not test the pearls and might wear them for months or years without guessing that they weren't genuine. Meanwhile, Simone would leave her service and never need to take a place again. She would go home to France and live on her share from the sale of the pearls. The Duke being absent, and the Duchess too, she and Defascal could work safely in the study. Simone had some red sealing wax, and the Duke's famous ring lay on the desk where he'd left it after displaying the design to Mayen's messenger. Simone had thought of everything, even to a pair of rubber gloves which she used when cleaning her mistress's gold toilet things. These gloves she had put on before touching the safe, the packet, or the seal ring. And having opened the packet, she had made Defascal smoke out one of the Duke's special brand of cigarettes to set the handkerchief wrapped around the jewel case. If worse came to worse, and suspicion were excited, let it fall upon the Duke himself and Lida Pavoya. Then that very night, suspicion had fallen. The Duchess had discovered that the pearls were false. Simone had overheard snatches of talk between her and the Duke, and it had seemed well to mention Pavoya's visit in order that Lida might be suspected from the beginning. Also, Simone had felt it safe to give the whole story to the inner circle. The Duke and Duchess had quarreled, so why not? She would get extra pay. And soon she would be leaving the Claremanaghs forever. One of her first thoughts in connection with the pearls was to hint it in the office at having secured a great treasure, to sell for a comparatively low price. If the invisible editor rose to the bait, as Simone hoped he might, she would be saved much trouble and danger. Also, she would have protection in case of trouble. She had been right about the bait, but once she was in his power, the man put on the screw, and too late, Simone regretted applying to him. Defascal reproached her bitterly, and they quarreled, yet he could not break free. Simone held him in chains, as both were held by the inner circle. The fortune she had visioned dwindled to a few thousand dollars, which were all the inner circle men would pay for stolen property. This was maddening, because the fortune would go to them. There was nothing to do, however, save consent. It was by Defascal's suggestion, Simone vowed, that she'd sent an anonymous letter to the Duke, mentioning an hour when the elusive editor could be found, and at the same time warning the editor himself that violence might be expected. If the Duke were smashed up, there would be just half the danger to face in the future, and Defascal owed him a grudge for laughing at his first request, which, if granted, would have saved him from temptation. So there, in its patched design, the great pearl secret lay exposed. 
fitted in with the forced confessions from the side of the inner circle, and from what Claremanagh had overheard, it was complete. What to do with the guilty ones was the next question. Sanders, being a private detective, not a member of the police, considered that his obligation was to his employers, not to the public. He was going to leave the decision to Captain Manners and the Duchess, who were paying for his services. If they and the Duke wanted to pack the lot to prison, at the price of a big scandal, well and good. If, on the contrary, the culprits were to be let off and silence kept, it was the same to him. Later, when he learned by telephone from Manners what had happened in the Inner Circle building, he did not change his mind. He obeyed instructions and ordered the Duchess's car to go there at once. Fortunately, night had fallen, and the Duke, in any sort of toilet, could easily be smuggled home. Claremanagh has the pearls, phoned Jack, and he'll soon be fit again, the two principal things. These blighters have got a dead man here, Markov, but they've a doctor's certificate testifying that he died of heart failure. Arrangements have been made to bury him tomorrow. We think, on the whole, that the dead past had best bury its dead too. No great crime has actually been done, as it turns out, but the scandal would be great for a number of innocent ones who don't deserve it. What? Sanders grinned quietly. He guessed which innocent one was most in Manners' thoughts. Right, he said, though it seems a pity that damned inner circle should get off scot-free. Oh, I forgot to tell you, it won't. Pat not only found the pearls, but overheard such a lot he's in a position to turn blackmailer. He's held up the rotters. They've had to sign a paper swearing to mend their ways. Lowens is one of them. There's an Irishman, a compatriot of Pat's from a London rag who slugged him. And the editor? Gee, you'd never guess who he's turned out to be. But I know, said the detective. Well, anyhow, he's going to transform the inner circle into a sort of inner shrine if he keeps his promise. Lord, won't the next number be a sensation? Yes, make up to the public a bit for losing the truth about the great pearl secret. Jack laughed joyfully, his first happy laugh for weeks. And then, even from that unblessed place, the flat of Madame Vino, he could not admit calling up Lita at her house. She was at home and answered, "'Oh, I'm thankful to hear your voice. Is all well with the Duchess?' "'Yes, and also with the Duke.' "'He's found?' "'Yes, and the pearls. So all's well with everyone except me.' "'Why not with you?' "'How can it be till you give me that promise?' "'But since these things have happened, it's yours already, and so am I. You are the man, I am the woman.' "'My goddess!' cried Jack through the uncongenial telephone. "'I'm coming to you the instant I'm free. "'Juliet and Pat send you their love. "'You've got all mine already.'" The End End of Chapter 22 End of The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson